Uh, everybody will get three minutes um, at the podium there. At, at the end of three minutes, the, uh, the microphone will turn off and nothing will be recorded after that point. So please keep it two, three minutes. Um, also, please silence your cell phones now. Put them on airplane mode if you don't need to talk to anybody. Making sure I'm not missing anything here. Um, so during the, uh, during the public comment, uh, please refrain from um, reacting to anything <coughs> that's said, whether you agree or disagree. Uh, we're all here to, to hear one another out, and we really need to hear from all of you. Um, it takes extra time when uh, folks are disruptive, applauding and, and such is disruptive, and it, it's not appropriate at this time. If you do support and want to show support, you're free to use the American Sign Language form of, of applause. Okay, looks like that. So please feel free. Worked really well last time. Some of you were here. Uh, if you have signs, don't block the people behind you. Um, we will break 12 to 1 uh, for lunch. We will likely break um, earlier than 12 uh, for restroom break. And if you see any of us stand up back here, it's just because we're nursing sore backs and we're going to have to sit for a couple of days. So uh, nothing to be noticed there. And finally, if you have any questions, uh, especially those of you who are not in this room, um, outside we've got a couple staff members, uh, Marie Maniscalco and uh, Vera De, De Ferrari are located in the lobby, I'm told, and they can field questions um, if you have any. Make sure I haven't missed anything here. How'd I do, Shelly? Is that everything? Did great. <laughs> Go ahead and take a roll. <laughs> Thank you. Commissioner Millman? Here. Commissioner Duncan? Here. Commissioner McAteer? Present. Commissioner Master Donato? Here. And Chair Greeno? Here. With that, we will hear from Senior Planner Matt Kelly with the staff presentation. Thank you, Mr. Chair, members of the Planning Commission. Uh, Matt Kelly, Planner with the Nevada County Planning Department. Um, I'm going to share my screen here briefly so the rooms upstairs can see that. Okay, thank you. So um, seated to my left is Nick Papani. Uh, he's with Rainey Planning and Management, one of our consultants on the on the project. To my further left is Diane Kinderman uh, of Abbott Kinderman. She's with uh, also a consultant on the project. She is serving as counsel to staff for this project. Uh, and seated to her left is Cindy Ganos with Rainey Planning and Management, uh, consultant on the proposed project. So just a brief meeting overview. Um, I'll do a brief introduction, um, and then Nick is going to do a project summary. Uh, he'll then also talk about the EIR, or the Environmental Impact Report. Um, I'm going to do a discussion on the general plan and zoning consistency, and then finish with recommendations. Um, so purpose of today's meeting is to present the proposed Idaho-Maryland mine project to the Nevada County Planning Commission. Uh, we will open uh, with a public hearing. Uh, based on the information presented today and public testimony, uh, Planning Commission will make a recommendation uh, that staff will forward to the Board of Supervisors, who will take final action and consider the proposed project. So just a brief project timeline. Uh, in November of 2019, uh, the application was received from Risegrass Valley. Uh, resubmittals through the, uh, were submitted through February of 2020, and final submission of the project and CEQA documents with the release of the EIR was January 22. Um, the uh, notice of preparation was prepared and, and released from July through August of 2020. 
the draft EIR was circulated um, for a 91-day public comment period starting in January of 22. Uh, between March or in March, uh, Commission held a draft EIR public comment meeting where we heard from the public um, and then presented um, those public comments in the final EIR, which is for your consideration today as well. Um, in December of 2022, the final EIR was released, um, which it was a culmination of all the public comments that were received and responses to those public comments. The final EIR also included um, an erratum um, and updates to the uh, analysis that was included from the draft EIR. Um, and then finally, in April of 2023, uh, the staff report was released for the proposed project that you're considering today. So the project sites, uh, they are located uh, with an unincorporated Western Nevada County. Um, the project is, is comprised of two project sites. Uh, the Brent, the um, Brunswick Industrial Site, which is zoned M1 Light Industrial, has a combining district of SP or site performance. Uh, the general plan of the project site is also industrial and it's um, on this map here to your right. It's located here. Um, the project is also located on what's called the Centennial Industrial Site, um, located on Whispering Pines Lane, um, accessed through the City of Grass Valley. Um, it is zoned Light Industrial, or M1, uh, and it also has a general plan designation of industrial. The project site uh, surface components make up approximately 175 acres um, between the two project locations. Um, there is also a proposed water line that would be constructed under East Bennett Road that makes up a portion of the surface components of the proposed project. The subsurface components of the proposed project um, are about 2,500 acres. Um, they're comprised of this green or this this orange line here um, on the map. Um, the in addition, um, the applicant has agreed to through a condition of approval would limit. Uh, subsurface mining to about 1,400 acres, and that's shown on subsequent site plans. But uh, the subsurface estate of the entire project site is about 2,500 acres. So this is just a map of the project boundary, uh, the project location, uh, to show the Centennial Industrial Site and the Brunswick Industrial Site. And then the water line, as I was speaking to earlier, is along East Bennett Road that would be connected here. So this is the Brunswick Industrial Site. Um, the site uh, is the location of the existing uh, Idaho Maryland mine. Um, it did also contain a former, former Bohemian Mill um, sawmill site um, at one point that was located generally on this paved area. Um, the project entrance or the entrance to the underground mine workings is located in the existing concrete silo, uh, the Brunswick shaft here, um, and then the applicant would construct the mine, the additional service shaft um, that would be located on the project site um, in this general location. Project also, or the, there's an existing clay line pond, um, as well as the tailings that would be deposited on the Brunswick site in the Brunswick site fill pile would be located in this area here. This is the Centennial site. Um, this is the historic tailings area uh, for the Idaho Maryland mine. Um, this is located off of, it's off of, located and connect, accessed off of Whispering Pines Lane, uh, and then it does also border uh, Idaho Maryland Road. Uh, Wolf Creek does uh, front along it. Um, there's an exact inactive sawmill um, that's on the applicant's property that's not proposed to be used as this project, or part of the project, but it's, it's there. Um, and then the, this is the existing uh, historical tailings location for the Idaho Maryland mine. The applicant 
um, proposes to utilize this site in addition to deposit tailings um, as well. Um, and this is the mineral rights boundary. This map just shows the, the extent of the mineral rights boundary. Um, and the, as I was speaking to earlier, the approximately 1,400 acres that the applicant would actually mine or actively mine is located here in red. Um, it's in, outlined here in this red box. Um, the subsurface total estate is outlined in this dashed line here. And then we'll turn it over to Nick. Thank you, Matt. Good morning, Chair, members of the Commission. Nick Papani, Vice President with Rainy Planning and Management. Pleasure to be here before you this morning. We were retained by the county to prepare the environmental impact report and assist with the planning services associated with the project. As Matt mentioned, I'm going to present the project summary as well as the environmental impact report overview. So starting with this slide, generally the project consists of several components. Um, including the installation, as Matt mentioned, of a potable water pipeline for residential potable water supply. And this is just overview. We'll talk about each of these components in more detail. Um, Dewatering of the existing underground mine workings. Underground mining at a depth of 500 feet or more in areas underlying the mineral rights. Construction and operation of above ground processing and water treatment facilities at the Brunswick industrial site. Engineer fill placement for potential future industrial pad development at Centennial and Brunswick and reclamation of the project sites in accordance with the reclamation plan. So the first component would be the potable water pipeline prior to commencement of initial mine dewatering the project applicant will install a buried potable water pipeline along East Bennett Road to connect up to 30 properties to NID's potable water supply. This is a requirement of mitigation measure 4.8-2C of the EIR. Pipeline will be approximately 1.25 miles long, eight inches in diameter, and contained within the existing right-of-way. Connection to the pipeline would be voluntary. Here again is an exhibit. Uh, that shows uh, just generally in blue the potable water pipeline and that runs along East Bennett between the two surface properties. Getting into a little more detail on the Brunswick industrial site, I want to kind of go over the water treatment plant um, that would be utilized for the initial uh, and ongoing dewatering. Uh, the mine is currently flooded, so there would be a need to pump groundwater uh, into an on-site pond for removal of total suspended solids, um, iron and manganese. As I mentioned, the initial mine dewatering would be required as well as some what's called maintenance dewatering um, due to continual inflow of groundwater within the underground mine workings. Groundwater sampling has identified two constituents of concern, um, which are iron and manganese uh, above regional water control board Quality Control Board discharge standards. Uh, so the iron and manganese would be removed at the on-site water treatment plant that would be built at the outset of the project. The manganese and the iron would be removed at the treatment plant through filtration. Uh, the filter media will remove those two constituents to compliant levels specified by the state. Um, out of caution, secondary treatment would also be employed at the water treatment plant. 
The water treatment plant would be permitted through the state, Regional Water Quality Control Board, prior to discharge of any treated water uh, to South Fork Wolf Creek. Water will be discharged to South Fork Wolf Creek at a maximum rate of 5.6 CFS during the approximately six month initial dewatering of the mine. After initial dewatering, groundwater is anticipated to continue to infiltrate the underground workings, as I mentioned, at a rate of 1.9 CFS, so lesser than the initial dewatering. And so you have kind of a, a range of discharge treated water discharge into South Wolf Creek from an, an initial 5.6 CFS to 1.9 CFS on that ongoing um, time frame. Uh, those levels of treated water discharge when combined with observed base flows to the creek um, would be below flows that commonly exhibit significant work on the channel. Initial and ongoing water sampling will be required to demonstrate that the treated water complies with the state discharge requirements. Uh, quarterly reports are re submitted to the Regional Water Quality Control Board to demonstrate that the treated water complies uh, with the standards set by the state. Okay. So at the Brunswick site, underground mining will occur. Mine development will occur in non-mineralized barren rock, uh, i.e. non-gold bearing. Um, approximately 500 tons per day would be uh, produced to create tunnels to access mineralized rock. And tunneling and blasting would occur in mineralized rock as well to access the ore. New underground workings, except for the service shaft, which we'll talk about, would be below 500 feet of the ground surface. And tunnels would be constructed in 10-foot advances um, per blast round. And the blasting is a controlled process generally whereby holes would be drilled into the rock face and loaded with explosives and then detonated to fragment rock. And so this is a controlled process that basically advances approximately 10 feet um, per blast round. All electric equipment would be utilized underground in the mining process. Barren rock would be crushed, loaded, and hoisted up the Brunswick shaft to the concrete silo and head frame building. Barren rock would be transported from the silo to an enclosed truck loading building using a covered conveyor. And mineralized rock will also be hoisted up the shaft and transported to the on-site processing plant using a covered conveyor. And the intent of the conveyors being covered is, of course, to minimize noise. Um, so the process plant, a little more detail on that. Approximately 1,000 tons of mineralized rock would be processed through the plant uh, per day. There's grinding mills within the plant that would crush the rock down, um, and then water would be added to produce a slurry. Gold would be extracted from that slurry through gravity concentration and secondary gold recovery processes. No mercury or cyanide would be utilized uh, in the process. 20 tons of gold concentrate would be produced per day and shipped off-site. 
through that processing, sand tailings would be produced. Sand tailings would be dewatered for use as cement paste backfill in the mine voids, as well as um, combined with barren rock to produce engineered fill. Uh, as I mentioned, the cement paste backfill would be utilized in voids. It'd be pumped underground, and that would help ensure the stability of the underground workings. The cement paste backfill would be subject to state review and approval. A waste discharge requirement from the Regional Water Quality Control Board would be required uh, for utilization of cement paste backfill in the mine. Brunswick site will have uh, a complex of buildings as generally illustrated in this chart here, as well as the proposed maximum heights. There's a total of approximately 126,000 square feet of industrial buildings and 9,800 square feet of additional structures such as uh, tanks, water treatment plant, covered conveyors. And we'll talk about some of these components a little further as we move through the presentation. Well, this is a map of the uh, Brunswick site, particularly the northern portion. Just going to cover a couple of these features here. Yeah. So uh, as Matt pointed out, that is the site of the Brunswick head frame, um, which is currently the site of the uh, existing shaft and silo. Um, there is an 80-foot tall head frame or approximately 85 foot tall, I believe, existing silo uh, there now. Um, service head frame would be a, a new uh, shaft and head frame that would be excavated um, at that location. Um, it would be an 80 foot tall head frame and it would move workers and materials underground and provide a fresh air intake. Um, no barren rock or mineralized rock would be moved in the, the service shaft. You can see there the north of the uh, Brunswick head frame would be the truck loading area. In a, and that is in a, a covered building. East Bennett Road access, where the trucks would uh, load out and turn right onto East Bennett Road and then onto Brunswick north. Proposed process plant where the processing of the gold mineralization would occur. Warehouse building on site, provide various functions, the water treatment plant that's on site. And the upper left is the South Fork Wolf Creek discharge point where treated water at the treatment plant would be routed and discharged into South Fork Wolf Creek. Okay. Buildings shown on this slide um, consist of the process plant. You have a front and a rear elevation, rear elevation being that which would face uh, Brunswick Road. Um, these buildings would include the use of vertical rib metal wall panels with standing seam metal roofing panels. Exterior colors are a combination of gray and brown earth tones with some contrasting wainscot. Buildings would be designed with windows, structural bays, roof overhangs, awnings, and other details. 
Um, it is noted that a condition of approval is required for the rear elevation at the bottom of the screen um, to break that structure up further with awnings and additional bays and roof overhangs to better conform to the Western Nevada County design guidelines. Okay. Here's an elevation of the proposed Brunswick shaft head frame building. Um, you can see that the has a similar uh, materials and colors as the other buildings um, that we just looked at. The head frame would be approximately 165 feet tall. Vertical head frame structure would be clad with weathered copper, perforated, perforated at the top, which you can kind of see there, but uh, and that would be to help kind of blur the lines between the structure and the sky. There'd be some level of kind of ability to see through that top portion of the head frame. The dark color may contrast sharply against the sky given the height, so staff has included a condition uh, on the project to use a different material at the top to better blend in with the sky. Site development standards for lighting. Um, the proposed light, lighting has been identified throughout the Brunswick site. Um, new light structures are proposed for various purposes, including pedestrian safety along internal walkways and around equipment areas, as well as project entry points and parking lot lighting and building lighting. A total of 41 pole-mounted LED lights at 15 feet tall uh, have been identified and are kind of generally shown in the those exhibits as little kind of crosses on there. Um, the proposed lighting would be compliant with International Dark Sky Association standards. It would be uh, downcast lights and fully shielded. Um, to, to ensure that is what the ultimate building is, uh, ultimate building lighting and, and on-site lighting does comply with that, a condition has been required to ensure that, in fact, the final design reflects that, that all lighting is compliant with International Dark Sky Association standards. Uh, landscaping has also been identified. We have a preliminary landscape plan. The landscape plan generally reflects heavy landscaping within the parking lot area on the Brunswick site. You can see that on the right side of the uh, slide. Um, on the left side of the slide, you can see generally the landscaping that is proposed at the northern corner of the site. That's basically south of the intersection of Brunswick and East Bennett. Trees are anticipated to reach full maturity in approximately 30 years. Um, what the EIR identifies and we'll talk a little bit more about is that the impacts associated with the engineer fill pad uh, would re represent a significant and unavoidable impact associated with the project. Uh, we, there is a mitigation measure that requires a preparation of a final landscaping plan that would have some minimum performance standards that must be met. Um, including such things as additional plantings uh, along the, the Brunswick frontage, as well as that northern corner there um, to ensure that maximal screening is provided uh, eventually. Obviously, it's going to take some time for those trees to reach maturity, but uh, we are requiring some additional landscaping. This is a, and I know it's a little hard in terms of the scale, but this shows the cross-sections associated with the Brunswick Industrial Site um, with incorporation of the engineered fill pad. And 
particularly maybe if you want to point, I don't know if they can see that, but the second from the bottom, you can see the fill pad there, um, probably at, at its maximal height. The fill pad would be approximately 50 to 60 feet tall um, above the existing the existing grade, and it would take approximately six years to reach that design elevation at the proposed um, processing rates. Fill slopes would be three to one, horizontal, excuse me, horizontal to vertical. So a little bit more on Brunswick here. Um, the engineer fill placement would occur at a 31 acre portion, and that's shown at the kind of southern end there in the light gray. So that's a 31 acre portion of the approximately 119 acre Brunswick site. 1,000 tons per day of engineered fill uh, would be um, produced. And that's 500 tons of barren rock and 500 tons of uh, sand tailings, as well as the 500 tons of mineralized rock and sand tailing uh, results. The on site haul hours at Brunswick. In terms of engineered fill deposition at the pad area, that would occur from uh, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And that's identified in the EIR project description. That consists of about 50 round trips. So from the, from the truck loading building to the pad area, there's 50 round trips um, from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. The project includes a detention basin that's at the toe of the engineered fill pad area. You can see that um, actually just below that, perfect, yeah, right there. That is a proposed detention basin um, that would be sized to contain flows to compensate for the amount of treated mine water discharged to South Fork Wolf Creek. So it's sized sufficiently to hold back stormwater in up to a 100-year storm event um, to make sure that the water does not exceed um, the current levels with uh, input of mine water, treated mine water into the channel. And in fact, the predictions are that in the 100-year storm event, the levels discharge would be less um, than existing conditions because it would hold the water back sufficiently. Okay, let's go to the next one. The Centennial Industrial Site Plan. Uh, fill would not be placed within the 100-year floodplain limits of Wolf Creek. Uh, there would be some grading work within the 100-foot setback from the floodplain area, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, the uh, floodplain management plan has been prepared in order to address that. Uh, this uh, site would also include on-site detention that would be sized um, to ensure that the 100-year storm can be detained. Uh, the engineer fill here would be on about 44 acres of the 56-acre centennial site, and 1,000 tons per day of engineered fill uh, would be hauled um, to this site from the hours of 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. with the same amount of trips, 50 round trips, from the Brunswick site to the centennial site. <clears throat> so here's a illustration of some cross-sections for the engineer fill pad at the Centennial site at its full design height, which would be approximately 50 feet tall uh, from the existing grade. Um, the Centennial site slopes up to the back of the property, if you will, so you can kind of get a sense from these cross-sections that it would be a, a greater height towards the front 
and then as you move towards the back of the property, um, the fill height would be less. And the proposed placement of fill at the Centennial location, it would take approximately five years to reach the design height that's shown in these cross sections. Project also requires a reclamation plan approved by the state. The reclamation would occur um, as the mining um, is completed um, over the course of the process. Um, the ultimate land use would be 37 acres of an engineered fill pad on the Centennial site and 12 acres of open space associated primarily with the Wolf Creek portion on the Centennial site. At the Brunswick Industrial Site, the fully reclaimed uh, condition after the 80-year term of the use permit uh, would be 21 acres of an engineered fill pad. Um, the industrial buildings would remain on site for potential future industrial uses, uh, though any future industrial uses on that site would require further discretionary review and approval um, through the county, as well as 59 acres of open space on the Brunswick site. So in a quick overview of the entitlements, and then we'll talk a little bit further about them. Um, the project requires a rezone, a use permit, reclamation plan and financial assurance cost estimate, variance, management plans, amendment to the final map for the BET acres subdivision. We'll talk about that further. Boundary line adjustment and development agreement. So the rezone was, uh, entails a request to rezone the Brunswick parcels from light industrial site performance combining district to light industrial with mineral extraction combining district. The site performance combining district was placed on the site in 1994 when Sierra Pacific Industries proposed the Nevada County Business and Industrial Center. Uh, the ME um, is required to allow surface mining facilities related to the underground mining operations. The use permit is entail, uh, entails the various components of the proposed project uh, as shown here on the screen. The ME overlay um, allows surface mining, which includes the above ground processing facilities um, in the industrial M1 zone. And as mentioned, the subsurface mining uh, is also allowed subject to a use permit. Reclamation plan we talked a little bit about that also entails a financial assurance cost estimate or FACE. Um, that is associated with the reclamation of the site. The FACE includes 100% of all reclamation costs for the first full year of mining, as well as drainage improvements and erosion control and the face is adjusted annually as mining uh, progresses. The variance for the project is associated with several structures and their proposed heights. Those are listed here. The ma maximum height per the code is 45 feet. Uh, you can see here the proposed 64 foot tall process plant, the 165 foot tall head frame, 80 foot tall uh, service shaft that we spoke briefly about, and 50-foot-tall hoist buildings. Management plans, county code, as you all are familiar with, requires management plans if a 
project may potentially impact certain resources. Um, those management plans must identify, as way, identify ways that the, those impacts will be minimized. Um, and so various management plans have been prepared for the project, including uh, water resource riparian area management plans for both uh, surface properties. Um, it's Centennial Habitat Management Plan for Pine Hill Flannel Bush. Steep Slopes and High Erosion Potential Management Plans for Centennial and Brunswick Sites. And a, a Seismic Hazard Management Plan for a portion of the Brunswick Site, as well as for Centennial, a Floodplain Management Plan that I briefly mentioned uh, earlier. The amendment to the final map for Bet Acres and the boundary line adjustment. So the final map for the formerly proposed Bet Acres subdivision um, includes a setback of approximately 200 feet from a identified fault. Um, based on substantial evidence from our geotechnical team, um, we believe that that if there is a fault there, it is not active, and thus the setback could be removed uh, from that map. We have our geological experts here, so if there's any specific discussion on that, we certainly can and can do that. Um, so basically, based on the understood inactive status of that fault um, and its imprecise location, uh, we believe that that it can be removed, and that is the proposal to amend that final map. There's also a boundary line adjustment, and that is just to reconfigure property lines on Brunswick so buildings would not cross property lines. The proposed development agreement is between the applicant and Nevada County to establish uh, necessary processes for the payments of cents per ton for roadway maintenance and other public benefits uh, that we will discuss a little bit further in the presentation. DA would ensure that the project can proceed consistent with all plans, policies, ordinance, and regulations, and will remain in effect for 20 years with two possible 10-year extensions. So the environmental impact report, um, Matt covered a few of these points here. We'll recap a bit of the process. The NLP, or Notice of Preparation, which is a required kind of initial step in the CEQA process, notifying agencies and interested public that the county or lead agency is going to prepare an EIR. It's a, it's a process that solicits uh, comments on the scope of the EIR and what should be studied. So that was released in July of 2020 with a scoping meeting held on July 27, 2020. Um, subsequent to that process in reviewing those uh, scoping comments and in working with our technical consultants to prepare various technical studies, we prepared uh, a draft environmental impact report in concert with the county staff. And that was released in January of 2022 for public review. The initial period for the release and review was 60 days. And that is typically the maximum uh, review period for a, an EIR unless there are unusual circumstances. And this is pursuant to CEQA guidelines of 15105 um, that typically the draft EIR will not be released for more than 60-day review unless there's unusual circumstances. 
and essentially the county determined that in response to public comments and consideration of some unusual circumstances such as power outages due to winter storms uh, that the review period was extended beyond the 60 days and ran a total of 91 days. The draft EIR was prepared pursuant to the guidelines um, by our firm under direct contract with Nevada County. Nevada County reviewed and we worked in concert to finalize that draft document and then release that document, which identified several potentially significant environmental impacts that would result from the project. Just want to cover uh, briefly here in terms of notifying the public of the availability of the draft EIR. Um, noticing was uh, released in accordance with CEQA guidelines 15087. A notice of availability indicating the availability of the draft EIR was published in the Nevada Union newspaper, posted at the county clerk's office, and mailed to all those who commented on the notice of preparation. And the document was routed through the state clearinghouse for review by state agencies. So the environmental impact report identified, as I said, several potentially significant environmental impacts um, in the following categories, um, ultimately determining that these specific impacts in these specific categories could be reduced to a less than significant level that is below their applicable thresholds. Um, there are a set of significant and unavoidable impacts as well that couldn't be fully mitigated, and we'll cover that on the next slide. But I'm going to spend a little time here kind of going over um, a couple of what, what we might consider key topics and key mitigation in terms of interest and concern from the public. But so as I do that, you can see here the, the, the range of topics for which significant project impacts were identified but could be mitigated to less than significant levels. So I'm going to start with um, hydrology and water quality. There were several potentially significant impacts that the project would have associated with hydrology and water quality. And we have uh, our experts here to answer any particular questions you may have um, a follow on to the presentation. But just kind of at a, at a higher level, uh, we, we want to point out that um, Atasca Denver is a hydrology consultant that utilized a 3D groundwater model to assess the project's potential impacts to the, to the uh, aquifer. Um, the groundwater model that was utilized has undergone an extensive third-party review and is approved by the Nevada Division of Environmental Protection for use in um, mine permitting applications. This uh, the provenance of the model, the adequacy of the model uh, for the type of fractured rock system here um, is dealt with in detail in master response 14 of the final EIR. The model was calibrated based on regional and local data, including well data. Based on extensive 3D modeling prepared by Atasca Denver and peer reviewed by um, the county's independent consultant, West Yost. And the predicted drawdown from mine dewatering range from approximately 5 to 10 feet in the East Bennett area. <clears throat> That's where two-thirds of the maintenance dewatering would occur. 
So the East Bennett area is the area that would be most affected by the dewatering. Uh, MCO Environmental, another professional as part of the team, um, reviewed Atasca's modeling results and identified a impact threshold for wells. That impact threshold is if the total water column of the well would be reduced by 10%. That includes a 100% safety factor, uh, meaning that typically 20% is considered an adverse impact. And so by making it 10%, that's that 100% safety factor. So the analysis identified that up to seven domestic wells would be subject to that 10% reduction in total water column. That's illustrated in, in the, the draft EIR and figure 4.8-12. As a result of the projected adverse impacts on those seven wells, the draft EIR includes uh, mitigation 4.8-2C, which is a well mitigation plan. Uh, that, that plan is Appendix K.9 to the DEIR and is also um, part of the staff report attachments. Um, notwithstanding those seven predicted impacted wells, uh, the, the mitigation requires connection of up to 30 properties within a, a, that's, that area that would be affected um, to Nevada Irrigation District's potable water system. Uh, connection would be voluntary. <clears throat> the water that would be required for up to those 30 properties um, is was assessed in a water supply assessment uh, that is also a component of the draft EIR. And the water supply assessment, which was prepared in accordance with the California Water Code, uh, determined that NID has sufficient water to serve the project's potable water needs. The NID board adopted the water supply assessment uh, on February 9th, 2022. <clears throat> the project EIR also requires the implementation of a groundwater monitoring plan. The monitoring plan would include the installation of a network of monitoring wells at 15 different locations that were strategically identified to make sure that the effects of the project are captured. The 15 locations, would each of them would have two wells, a shallow well and a deeper well, so there's a total of 30 wells in that monitoring network. The groundwater monitoring wells would collect data for 12 months prior to any dewatering. And there would be ongoing monitoring and evaluation of data on a quarterly basis. If that monitoring determines that any additional wells would be impacted, so that is more than 10% of the total water column of any additional well is impacted, and the applicant is responsible for providing a comparable supply. We'll talk a little bit later as well that, that the project now also includes implementation of a domestic well monitoring plan. Um, so this is, a com this component here, it was born out of the EIR analysis, the groundwater monitoring plan, which has that network of 30 wells in strategic locations that's different from the domestic well monitoring plan where the applicant has committed to monitor actual wells uh, on properties for those folks who, who would voluntarily agree to that. Um, so at any rate, 
if an additional well uh, would be impacted, the applicant is required to provide an immediate source of water supply, uh, which that could consist of a couple different things. There's uh, potentially some additional options um, that could be adjusting the pumping rate, deepening the water well, and drilling a new well, or providing a uh, connection to NID's uh, water, water supply. Next, I want to talk about uh, the noise <clears throat> and operational noise, which has been a, a certainly a concern. Um, based on the noise analysis in the EIR, um, including an independent peer review um, by the county's consultant, um, it's estimated that the project's stationary noise sources, so the noise on the Brunswick site, uh, would not exceed county noise standards at nearest sensitive receptors. To ensure that operational noise is in fact below thresholds when the project is up and running, the EIR requires a comprehensive noise monitoring program. So obviously based on best available data, the potential noise effects of the project have been modeled um, using sound plan, which is a very uh, robust model that takes into account topography um, and the impacts have been determined to be less than the county's applicable noise thresholds. Obviously that doesn't mean you're not going to hear any noise, but CEQA requires comparison to identify numerical noise thresholds which come out of the general plan. And the assessment determines that the noise impacts should be below the county's thresholds. Nevertheless, to ensure that <clears throat> that is in fact the case when the project is up and running, that detailed noise monitoring program uh, would be required and would consist of installing permanent noise monitors at the Brunswick and Centennial sites at locations specified by uh, a third-party noise consultant under contract with the county. Um, within 30 days of mine operation, uh, the third-party noise consultant to the county uh, would retrieve monitoring data from those monitors to determine if the mine is in compliance with the county standards. If it's found that the mine is not in compliance with the county standards, then the operations shall cease until resolved. And by resolve, that would mean either operational changes to the mine or other uh, design related changes to the mine to attenuate noise to the county standards. Uh, the program includes not only that initial monitoring, that initial check to make sure the mine is in compliance, but also ongoing monitoring will be conducted by the third party consultant for the life of the mine. Next I'm going to discuss um, air quality and asbestos, which has been a a concern uh, from the, the public and I want to just talk a bit on the mitigation measures and measures that will be in place to address um, asbestos. So first off, uh, mitigation measure 4.3-2 of the EIR requires the uh, implementation of an asbestos dust mitigation plan uh, during construction, operation, and reclamation. This is required pursuant to the California Air Resource Board asbestos 
Airborne Toxic Control Measure, or ATCM, for surfacing applications. So entails such things as prevention of visible track out of dust from trucks on roads, uh, dust control on the site. Um, uh, haul trucks must be uh, wetted and tarped to prevent dust from leaving the truck. And the implementation, in addition to that asbestos dust management plan, which is a standard uh, requirement that uh, is utilized throughout the county and areas where asbestos is known to be present. Um, the project would implement what's uh, called an ACER plan or asbestos serpentinite ultramific rock plan. That's condition of approval 32. And essentially two methods of asbestos testing are required under this plan. Uh, the the first is, is known as PLM testing, and that's required to comply with that uh, airborne toxic uh, measure that I mentioned from the state. And basically, trucks are not allowed to transport any material without a receipt based on those PLM results, a receipt that they don't contain a detectable asbestos. Um, any materials with detectable asbestos, which per the state rule is greater than 0.25%, um, that material would not be allowed to, to be used for any surfacing. PLM testing will be conducted on site um, in the head frame structure by trained personnel using microscope technology. Three grab samples will be taken in the silo for every 1,000 tons of material. Um, Off-site PLM testing may also be utilized by a local lab um, with uh, results within an approximately 12-hour turnaround time. So this is done on a fairly you know, um, quick basis um, and pace. It can be done on-site. It can be done uh, off-site at a lab. And so the fate of the rock is pretty readily determined. Um, as the rock comes up through the shaft and is put in the silo, it's stored there as this testing is done, but the testing is quite, quite immediate um, to determine if the rock can be utilized for um, surfacing or if it cannot. There's also um, what's called TEM testing. And I try not to get too detailed here, but uh, we also have experts here who can elaborate on any of these. Um, but the TEM testing, which is transmission electron microscopy, um, is basically a, another form of asbestos testing that's done as part of mine planning. So the applicant will be doing mine planning, which is pretty standard to try and determine, you know, where are the asbestos, uh, where's the serpentinite rock, which contains that asbestos, and to try and avoid that rock. Um, so there's testing done both uh, before mining, taking core samples, and there's testing done as mining is occurring. And so this is a process that um, is a longer turnaround time for results, but it doesn't control the fate of the rock. It's to ensure that the rock that's being pulled out contains a minimal amount of asbestos, an amount that is consistent with that which was assumed in the health risk assessment for the project. So a detailed health risk assessment was prepared to 
evaluate the potential effects of asbestos, as well as diesel particulate from the on-site construction equipment. And the health risk assessment assumed a certain percentage of asbestos in rock that was based on on-site testing. And so essentially the mine planning is to say, hey, let's tie, let's tie the, um, the material coming out of the mine to that which was assumed in the health risk assessment. So there's a confidence level that the health risk won't exceed that which was assumed and evaluated in the EIR. Biological resources, just going to generally touch on that. Uh, several mitigation measures were included in the EIR um, to address the project's potential impacts to biological resources, including but not limited to Pine Hill flannel bush, which is uh, only on the Centennial site. Um, Foothill and Yellow Lake, Foothill Yellow-legged frog and California red-legged frog and various protected bird species. Okay, that's what I wanted to cover there, Matt. Project includes uh, a couple of significant unavoidable impacts that we'll touch on here, and those are impacts that mitigation can be applied, but the mitigation cannot reduce those impacts to a less than significant level. Uh, the first of which is aesthetics. As I mentioned before, the creation of the engineered fill pads um, would result in a substantial degradation of the visual character and quality of the Centennial and Brunswick industrial sites and their surroundings as viewed from public vantage points. So that's the focus of our analysis pursuant to CEQA is where can you see these locations from public viewpoints because those are the viewpoints where the you know more people are affected rather than individual views which while certainly important, CEQA does allow kind of the focus to really hinge on those public viewpoints. Um, so for Centennial, for example, you know, from SR State Route 49, Spring Hill Drive, Centennial Drive, and Brunswick, you know, Brunswick Road, intersection of East Bennett and Brunswick Road, those public viewpoint locations. To try and soften the impacts, the landscape plan that I mentioned would be required, um, which would include more robust plantings at strategic locations along the Brunswick's frontage, for example, the Brunswick site's frontage of Brunswick Road, the intersection of Brunswick and East Bennett. Um, however, it's clearly acknowledged in the EIR that that will not fully mitigate the aesthetic impacts, and therefore the impact would remain significant and unavoidable. There's a temporary construction noise impact that could be addressed at some level, but not fully mitigated below uh, the applicable standards. That's associated with the installation of the potable water pipeline along East Bennett Road. And essentially, there's a mitigation measure in the EIR to try and minimize those construction noise levels. Uh, that's mitigation 4.10-1. Not only does that require notification uh, to property owners of the pipeline construction timeline, um, but also several measures such as um, equipment of all equipment with mufflers, um, fitting construction equipment with a growler type backup, so not the, the beep noise, but the growler type that you're hearing a lot on the uh, Amazon trucks these days, um, 
but nevertheless, the impact associated with the temporary construction of the pipeline uh, would be uh, above the applicable thresholds. And so it's determined to be unavoidable for that approximately estimated to be about four month period to construct that pipeline. There are a few significant and unavoidable impacts identified for transportation. This uh, consists of uh, impacts under two different scenarios. So the traffic study looks at various scenarios, the existing conditions, uh, and, and then add the project, which would be your existing plus project. The near-term conditions, or uh, EPAP, which is existing plus project plus approved projects. So it's looking at that near term when other projects that are reasonably foreseeable would be developed. And then cumulative conditions, which would be kind of the long-term build-out um, of, the, of the region. And so under the near-term traffic condition and the cumulative condition, the intersection of SR-174 in Brunswick would be significantly impacted and would remain significant and unavoidable after mitigation. Um, so mitigation 4.12-1B does require the applicant to enter into a traffic mitigation agreement with the county and provide the project's fair share towards the improvements that would be needed at that intersection, but the remaining funds for the intersection improvements um, are unknown in terms of timing and contributing parties, so therefore it's determined to be significant and unavoidable. As in addition, another traffic impact that would be unavoidable is under the cumulative condition, so the project as well as long-term development. That would be queue lengths at the intersection of Brunswick and Sutton Way. This would be the northbound left turn. It would be in excess of the threshold in the EIR, which is 25 foot, so essentially an additional car length. Um, and it would occur during the 3.30 to 4.30 p.m. hour. Uh, the, the EIR requires mitigation to retime the intersection and improve operations to shorten that queue, but the intersection is in the city of Grass Valley, and that is what we call an extraterritorial area, and the county can't require another jurisdiction to implement mitigation. So in that situation, we will typically override that impact given that we can't compel another agency. Um, but if that, if the agency does agree and that was implemented, that the impact would be less than significant. Okay. The ER is required to evaluate alternatives to the proposed project. The ER analyzed four alternatives uh, at, a, at a full equal, uh, well, considered fully four alternatives and dismissed another five alternatives. So a total of nine alternatives were considered, but four uh, were evaluated. The first one is alternative one, the no project, no build. And this is a, a required CEQA alternative, uh, the no project. Essentially, it's pretty straightforward. The project is not built at the site. The site remains. Um, the second alternative that was considered is the elimination of the Centennial Industrial Site and expansion of the Brunswick fill pile. <clears throat> so instead of the project proposal to place engineer fill both on 
Centennial and Brunswick. This alternative uh, would only place engineer fill on the Brunswick site. <clears throat> Approximately 1.6 million tons of additional engineered fill would be placed on the Brunswick site. Um, that would render that potential future industrial use area on Brunswick basically unbuildable because of the increased height of that. The fill pad would be approximately 50 feet higher than the proposed project height. <clears throat> Alternative three is essentially expansion of the Centennial fill pile and elimination of the Brunswick uh, fill pile. <clears throat> that would place an additional approximately 2 million tons of engineered fill at the Centennial site and that would render the 19 acres of potential future land, industrial land, um, um, unbuildable due to the increased height of the fill pile. The fill pad would be increased by 20 to 60 feet in that alternative, depending on the location, given again that the site slopes. Alternative four was assessed as a reduced uh, throughput alternative. That would be Essentially 500 tons per day of gold mineralization would be extracted and processed versus the 1,000 tons per day proposed by the project. The life of the mine under this alternative would increase given that the same level of resources are inherent in the ground and so in order to extract that resource additional time would be required due to the 50% reduction in daily processing. Fill operations at Centennial and Brunswick sites would increase from approximately five to six years uh, to 10 to 12, respectively. We have identified an environmentally superior alternative, um, and that alternative is identified in the environmental impact report as alternative two, which is elimination of Centennial Industrial Site. That would avoid significant unavoidable impact associated with aesthetics at Centennial. It would avoid a series of biological impacts at the Centennial site, such as impacts to Pine Hill flannel bush, um, impacts to various um, bird species that may occur. And it would preclude the need for hauling engineered fill to the Centennial site. One of the impacts that was identified but mitigable was the utilization of jake breaks and, and noise associated with jake, jake breaks during the hauling of rock from Brunswick to Centennial. And so that jake break noise would not occur under the environmentally superior alternative due to the elimination of the Centennial site. And the elimination of haul truck traffic to Centennial would also avoid pavement impacts from the truck hauling um, to uh, the a couple segments, Brunswick Road northbound between East Bennett and Whispering Pines and East Bennett Road between the project driveway and Brunswick Road. Also under this alternative, widening um, along Centennial Driveway would not be required to accommodate haul truck turning movements. And I also want to point out that the draft EIR analyzed the impacts of off-site hauling of rock material to the construction 
aggregate market starting in 2033, and that's based on the amount of time it would take to deposit engineered fill at Centennial Brunswick, and once that's completed, then engineered fill would be hauled um, to the aggregate market um, through the haul route to the, the freeway. Um, and it was so it was assumed prior to the 2033 that all that material would be going to either the Brunswick or Centennial. So if Centennial is removed, that's going to potentially speed up that time frame for um, the engineered fill to be hauled to the market. So the condition of approval has been placed on the project. That's condition of approval 33. That would require the applicant to use electric trucks for any off-site sale or transport of waste rock um, if such transport occurs prior to 2033, the, the, the assumption in the EIR, that which the analysis was based on. So that would ensure that the project would not have greater air quality uh, impacts than analyzed under the draft EIR, even if the centennial site is not utilized for placement of fill. Okay. So the draft ER again was released for 91 day public comment period. The county received, as listed here, uh, 12 comment letters from agencies, 32 letters from groups, uh, a little over 2,800 individual comment letters, and comments at the draft ER comment hearing before your body. Um, the individual comment letters are made up of, of you know, you know of various letters, some of which are uh, more of a form letter. We've, we've included all the letters in the final EIR to make sure there's a complete record. Um, there are form letters from folks that are opposed to the mine. There are some form letters uh, from supporters. Um, and I'm going to just kind of touch on a few details here, but we can answer any questions you may have as we move into uh, questioning. So, so all comments were reviewed by the county and addressed in the final EIR. Uh, the final EIR includes 38 master responses, which is a fairly common approach to dealing with comments that are thematic in nature, that are repeated. And so we determined that 38 master responses would be appropriate. And that's kind of at the front end of the final EIR. Uh, the final EIR also includes some revisions to the draft EIR text that were determined necessary based on public comment. Revisions uh, included in the final EIR uh, serve to clarify existing mitigation measure language, provide additional background and analysis and we look closely at the need to whether or not to recirculate the draft EIR based on public comment, based on revisions to the draft EIR. There's specific criteria that are included in the CEQA guidelines uh, that, that govern when it is necessary to recirculate an EIR. And that's mentioned there on the slide 15088.5 of the guidelines. There's a, a detailed discussion of the recirculation criteria in the introduction chapter of the final EIR. And essentially the conclusion that was reached was that the recirculation criteria were not met by the changes to the document. Um, and any further questions on that, happy to answer as we move forward. 
final EIR was released to the public on December 16th, 2022. So as part of the CEQA process, when a project has significant impacts, an agency must make certain findings and the relevant sections from the Public Resource Code and the CEQA guidelines are up on the screen. And essentially an agency should not approve a project if there are feasible alternatives or mitigation measures that would substantially lessen the significant effects of the project. Um, and that is unless the agency can determine that there are specific economic, legal, social, or technological considerations that make infeasible the mitigations and the alternatives. So that's basically part of our process was to determine, okay, what are the impacts? Are there feasible mitigation measures? Um, if so, those are required. Um, if not, we've identified those. Those are those three topics, aesthetics, temporary construction noise, and those traffic impacts that were identified. Those are unavoidable. And so in order for an agency to approve a project that has unavoidable impacts, uh, the agency must consider the specific economic, legal, technological, or other considerations, and basically put together a statement of overriding considerations, identifying the benefits of the project that the agency feels could outweigh the unavoidable effects. And therefore, if they consider them outweighed, they, those unavoidable effects are, in a sense, considered acceptable. Um, so a statement of overriding considerations has been prepared and is a component of the staff report that identifies um, benefits for the decision makers to consider with respect to the project. Findings of fact were also prepared um, that goes through and identifies every impact in the EIR, identifies whether that was mitigated, and if it wasn't mitigated, why it could not be. And then it also evaluates alternatives and reasons for rejecting alternatives as being infeasible. Okay. <clears throat> I mentioned earlier the domestic well monitoring program. That was a program that came out of the draft, uh, excuse me, final EIR in response to comments and reviewing comments um, to provide property owners with additional assurance regarding impacts of mine dewatering. Uh, we already touched on the groundwater monitoring plan that is a requirement of the draft EIR that would focus on that network of monitoring wells. This would actually be in, in addition to that, above and beyond that, which would be uh, focusing on actual domestic wells. It's focused on the area that was determined to have a one-foot drawdown. This is through the groundwater modeling. <clears throat> and so that's approximately 378 properties that would be monitored, though it, 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 of course, would be voluntary. This is similar to the groundwater monitoring plan that's required in the EIR. It would require 12 months of monitoring before any dewatering could occur. And a minimum of five years of monitoring thereafter. So through this process as well, if the monitoring determines that a well would be impacted, which would be that threshold of 10% or more of the overall water column would be reduced, then the applicant would be required to address that, mitigate that, 
and provide an immediate source of water supply, um, as I mentioned before, with, with a potential range of options to address that up to providing NID potable water supply. Okay. So we continue to receive comments after the close of the draft EIR 91-day review period. Those have been made available uh, to, to the commissioners and have been reviewed by staff. Um, all comments received um, have been reviewed and we have not identified uh, new substantive issues raised beyond those that were identified as part of that 91-day public review period and comment on the draft EIR. Um, notwithstanding, uh, the county has elected to provide further clarification on a select number of comments, which is attachment six to your staff report. <clears throat> and those uh, generally consist of uh, traffic-related comments from the city of Grass Valley, air quality and greenhouse gas comments provided in Exhibit A of Shoot Mahali and Weinberger letter, and hydrology-related comments provided in June Orberdorfer letter. One thing that's important to understand as part of the overall CEQA process and is, is not uncommon for complex projects is to have disagreement amongst experts. Um, it's, a, it's something that is recognized by CEQA and is identified as not rendering an EIR inadequate so long as substantial evidence has been provided to support the EIR's conclusions and substantial evidence being fact-based, reasoned analysis, not speculation or argument. So long as that substantial evidence supports the analysis in the EIR, to the extent there may be contrary evidence brought forward that doesn't render an EIR inadequate, and an EIR could still be determined adequate by decision makers. And with that, I think I'm going to turn it over to Matt to do the presentation. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Nick. Um, so I'm going to you, kind Nick. of go through general plan consistency, zoning code consistency, and then we'll conclude with recommendations. Um, <clears throat> so our general plan um, includes four themes. Um, they're outlined, uh, or four central themes, uh, in addition to a number of policies um, and, and uh, goals. Uh, first is fostering a rural quality of life, which is central theme one. Uh, number two, and then um, I'll go through these. Um, so the first is that we have to consider the project is, is consistent with central theme one. Um, the goals of the general plan explain that the policies and land use element describe uh, balances of growth uh, within rural and urban areas. Um, the project site is located within both a, a community region of Grass Valley and a rural region um, on the Brunswick site. So there's a demarcation line between the two. Um, the, in reviewing the, the proposed project and for consistency with the central, the central theme, uh, Brunswick site is surrounded primary, primarily by residential agricultural zone property. Um, it's also zoned, um, there's areas that are zoned single family residential or R1. Um, therefore, balancing the uh, land use pattern is, is very important. Um, the overall project site is mostly, as I mentioned, um, located within the Grass Valley Community Region, the buildings itself. Um, and the, the existing head frame uh, would be located within the uh, community region, the Grass Valley community region. The Brun this is the Brunswick site. Um, the fill pile and parking area and entrance would be located in the rural region. So in considering the proposed project, we have to look at the impacts of the two regions. Um, 
the uh, kind of the overall the overall project as proposed uh, would operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, it's estimated, um, as Nick spoke about earlier, there'd be approximately 236 one-way truck trips um, and an average of 100, or sorry, 216, 236 one-way truck trips with an average of 115, um, sorry, 236 round trips and 115 one-way trips. There we go. Um, over the over the life of the project, over about 80 years as proposed. The level of mining um, and proposed activity is rather intense um, due to the, the 24 hours a day operation um, and just the overall uh, overall size and scope and scale of the proposed project. Um, so what we have to look at is, is this appropriate in this, in the, these, given the semi-rural area um, of the surrounding neighborhood. Um, in, included in your staff report is an analysis of this, um, and essentially it looks at the overall, uh, the project sites in, or zoned industrial, um, but there are varying levels of industrial uses, um, everything from a, you know, small uh, mini storage facility or office building um, all the way up to the proposed project. So there's varying levels of intensity. Um, so um, in reviewing this and in, in the, the uh, with Central Theme 1, um, staff's, uh, de staff's determined that the proposed project would not be consistent as proposed with Central Theme 1, uh, which is the fostering a rural quality of life. Um, number two is sustaining a quality of environment. Um, this was looked at extensively throughout the uh, the general plan. I'm sorry, the um, EIR. Um, the proposed project, as we talked about earlier, um, does contain a number of significant and unavoidable impacts. Um, however, most of the impacts that are outlined and analyzed in the EIR can be mitigated to a less than significant level. Um, there are a number of conditions of approval, including condition of approval 8.34, which is included in your packet, that would achieve a level of overall reduction in the size of the project due to the subsurface estate being reduced down, uh, which the, the applicant could overall mine. Um, in reviewing this, and as noted in the EIR, um, there are a number of levels of, of impacts that be redu reduced to a less than significant level. Therefore, this uh, this can general the general plan consistency for Central Theme 2 can be found to be consistent due to the level of impacts as analyzed in the EIR. Uh, number three is developing a strong diversified local economy. Um, as included in the EIR and as discussed in the staff report, um, this finding can be made. Um, the proposed project would generate approximately, or would start with 52, persons, 52 people, um, is estimated to be able to develop and construct the project. Throughout the life of the project, there would be approximately 312 jobs that would be required at full, complete operation. Um, the project would generate tax revenue for, for the county, as well as indirect job creation through, um, through uh, associated jobs that would be created um, with neighboring parcels, neighboring land uses, all those additional employment, um, all those different types of things would go with a large-scale type project like this. Um, therefore, the central theme three uh, can be found to be consistent due to the, the job creation of the project. Number four is that pattern land uses will determine the level of public services. Uh, the proposed project uh, has been found to uh, be able to, to achieve this. Um, the land use patterns um, and public services, the project would, would utilize NID water, um, and NID has indicated that they can serve the proposed project, as well as those parcels along East Bennett. Um, that would that would be served by the by the project. Um, in addition, uh, the project would be served by Pacific Gas and Electric Company, which they've they've indicated they can serve the project. So there's adequate public services 
that are available to be able to to serve the project and not create additional um, impacts due to um, due to the need for additional public services. Uh, the other is um, emergency services. There are as as analyzed in the EIR, they're adequate to serve the proposed project as well. Um, so therefore, Central Theme Four can be found to be consistent with the project as proposed. Um, just kind of moving through through some of the other general plan uh, consistency. Uh, portions of the project included as included in the staff report. There is a discussion of um, consistency and inconsistency, so I'll go through a few of these. Uh, policy 1.1.3 uh, can be found to be consistent. Uh, the project, as proposed, uh, would be uh, development would be within both the Grass Valley Community Region um, and a rural region. However, the project can be found to be consistent with uh, development within a community region. Um, there are um, a number of buildings and things that would be constructed. The project would be conditioned um, to limit the overall um, the overall uh, hours of operation. Um, their project includes mitigation measures that would in, that reduce or uh, relocate truck routes so they don't go through residential neighborhoods. Um, trucks enter, entering um, out of the exit gate would be restricted and the project's conditioned from turning left onto East Bennett Road um, and the haul route for the project would go out of um, onto turning right and then out onto Brunswick Road and then going out of Whispering Pines to reach the Centennial site as well as off-site markets. So the project can be found to be consistent with this policy. Uh, the other is policy 1.1.2 or 1.2.4. Uh, general plan provides for future development in accordance with uh, various land use designations, which this project is zoned industrial, um, and general has a general plan designation of industrial or zoned light industrial. The uh, the overall project um, can be mitigated to lessen significant impacts for transportation, with the exception of one, um, which is the significant unavoidable impacts due to uh, to State Route 174 uh, and Brunswick Road. However, this can be over uh, through the statement of overriding considerations. This can be can be considered. Um, therefore, due to, this, due to this and the conditions of approval that are included in the project, uh, the project can be found to be consistent with this policy. A couple others is policy 17.9 of the mineral management element. Uh, so the project would, uh, it was, is a proposed mining project. Um, it would include reclamation um, and a reclamation plan. Um, the, there are, uh, it's been, been demonstrated that there is gold there and economically uh, mineable, mineral mineable materials. Um, so, and then including reclamation, the project can be found to be consistent with this policy. Uh, policy 17.15, uh, the project uh, does include a rezone um, and so would require to be rezoned to add the ME or the mineral extraction overlay combining district. Um, this is required. Um, this would be uh, this the this is required of the proposed project to be able to allow the mining activities to occur. Um, we have both surface uses and subsurface uses uh, that would require um, this this or this um, ME overlay to be uh, to be included, so the project can be found to be consistent with this policy. Um, the last is policy seventeen point two four. Um, that the draft EIR addressed any potential impacts, including the operation of both surface land uses, water quality, um, noise and vibration, land subsidence, and traffic, um, as well as subsurface underground mining, uh, would be consistent with the project as outlined um, and included in the draft EIR. So therefore, this policy can be found to be consistent with the project as proposed. 
There are, um, so included also in the staff report is uh, projects that are uh, policies that the project could be found to be inconsistent with. Uh, the first is policy 1.1.1, uh, which as I spoke about earlier, maintaining a distinct boundary between the rural and community regions. Located on the Brunswick site, there is the, um, there is a demarcation line between the two. Um, the buildings are proposed to be located within the community region and access and things will be located within the rural region. Um, as I spoke about earlier, balancing land uses is important. Um, and so one of the things we have to look at is the impact to the surrounding neighborhood. And given the surrounding uh, semi-rural nature of the surrounding neighborhoods, uh, the overall intensity. So intensity is that the mine, you know, the project is proposed to operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and so this, this would create a larger impact to surrounding property owners um, and surrounding land uses. And so um, because of this type of analysis, the project could be found to be inconsistent with policy 1.1.1. Um, next is policy 1.1.2. Um, so as I spoke about earlier, the project it would be inconsistent with the rural region, um, given the overall intensity of the, of the project. The rural region, um, the, this area is surrounded by parcels that are have a general plan land use designation of a state and then also urban single family residential, which is consistent with the residential agricultural zoning district and also with the um, R1 single family residential zoning district. The rural like um, area uh, would be impacted by the proposed project, um, as I talked about with the overall intensity and just the overall size and scale of the of the project. Um, therefore, the, the project could be found to be inconsistent with this policy. Um, and just a couple others is policy 1.4.2. So the Western Nevada County Design Guidelines um, outline uh, requirements for, for all projects and any project that um, is a discretionary action is required to adhere to the Western Nevada County Design Guidelines. Um, projects within, within community regions um, need to adhere to these as well. Um, the project does include a condition of approval to break up the larger, um, the larger scale and larger sizes of, of the buildings that are on, on Brunswick Road. Um, however, the project includes a variance, um, and so a variance is requested for the project uh, due to the overall height of a number of the buildings, including the, the head frame at 165 feet. Um, and I'll talk about the variance in, in just a minute as well. Um, but the, when looking at the Central Theme 1 discussion and the inconsistency with Central Theme 1, um, you have to, we have to look at both of these. So with the variance request, um, the applicant has, you know, had been requested to consider potentially redesigning the project to meet the overall 45-foot height limit um, and consider um, potentially lowering the buildings down. Um, that's not been been proposed. Um, and so when we're looking at these two, um, the project can be found to be inconsistent with this policy. Um, the next is policy 17.6, uh, which does talk about the extraction of, of minerals and gold-bearing material, um, which we, we do understand that the project as proposed um, is it's a gold mine um, and would operate as such. Um, however, as when looking at the overall massing and, and intensity of the project, uh, the overall operations of the project, um, it would be found to be inconsistent with this policy. So a couple others is zoning code consistency. So the project um, as proposed, um, subsurface mining is allowed in all zone, on all base zoning districts. Um, subject to the approval of a use permit, which is included as part of the project. Um, the project um, 
does require a rezone. And so um, also pursuant to Nevada County Land Use Development Code Section L2 3.21, um, surface access to subsurface, um, including vent and escape shafts, are allowed um, in the zoning districts that are displayed here, um, subject to the approval of a use permit. Um, and then last is that surface mining um, is also um, an allowed use within the M1 zoning district, provided that we add the ME combining district. So in reviewing these, um, the project can be found to be consistent and inconsistent with both with the zoning code um, when you add the ME combining district um, as long with the variance. Um, so these are things that all have to be looked at and analyzed um, just due, due to the overall use and size and scale of the project. Um, the, the when then with the rezone I'll talk about in a second the project could be found to be inconsistent with adding the ME combining district um, due to the overall size and scale. So um, the project, as I mentioned, does include a rezone. Um, and so kind of just to, to touch basis on, on this a little bit, uh, the project site is zoned light industrial. Um, and would be this is at the Brunswick site, it would require the addition of the mineral extraction combining district. Um, there are, as we talked about, there are many different types of industrial uses and overall levels of industrial uses. Mm -hmm. Um, the project site is zoned light industrial, um, and certainly mining is an allowed use within light industrial. Um, however, it also allows for repairing, distribution, warehousing, um, those types of things and other supporting businesses. Um, so when looking at this, along with the addition of the ME combining district, um, the ME combining district allows for surface mining and provides for public awareness um, and potential subsurface mining um, activities. Um, the district should also only be used on lands with um, that are compatible with the Nevada County General Plan um, and are not located within a residential zone. Um, the project certainly is not located within a residential zone, being zoned light industrial. Um, however, all uses in the ME combining district are subject to the approval of a use permit with a reclamation plan, what this project is proposing. Um, however, inclusion of this, and this is included in, in the Nevada County Land Use Development Code, inclusion with this district shall not alter the ability of the county to deny any mining operation where the county determines that such operation would be would have unacceptable impacts on the environment and surrounding land uses. Um, so with the statement of overriding considerations, this is something we would need to look at. Um, and so in looking at this and, and evaluating the project as included in your staff report, um, staff feels that the rezone, given the overall intensity and use of the mining, the mining project um, cannot, be, cannot be made and therefore would not be consistent with the general plan and zoning code. Um, and then the other is that the application does include a variance. Um, the, for in order to grant a variance, there's a number of findings that have to be made, um, including those are those are included here on this slide. Um, so the project as proposed would include a 64 foot tall processing plant, uh, 165 foot tall head frame for the Brunswick shaft, 80 foot tall head frame for the new service shaft, and a 50 foot tall hoist building uh, would, that would be associated with the two the two mine shafts. Um, pursuant to Nevada County Land Use Development Code Section L2 2.5, um, the variance is required due to the 45 foot height limitation that's outlined and required by the Light Industrial Zoning District. The um, overall height of the buildings uh, would exceed the 45 foot, 45 foot height limit. Um, so therefore a variance is a departure from the allowed height of the project or the allowed height of the, of the 
light industrial zoning district. A variance can only be granted upon the demonstration of a hardship based upon the peculiarity of the proper peculiarity of the property, um, including the overall size, shape, topography, um, things of that nature is what you have to be able to find to, to find a project to be uh, consistent with general plan and being able to allow for a variance. Um, in processing the application, um, staff expressed an overall concern due to the size and massing of the buildings um, and the overall um, size and scale of the mining operation itself, um, including 24 hours a day operation, seven days a week, um, including the overall height of, of several of the proposed buildings, including the head frame. The draft EIR or the EIR does include a significant unavoidable impact for aesthetics um, because their, their buildings are, are um, as proposed. Um, therefore, there's no way to mitigate that. Um, however, in, in discussions with the applicant and in looking at the overall size, um, you know, it's potential to be able to lower the height of the buildings down um, or consider redesigning the head frame to be lower. Um, and so staff did express concerns about the overall height of the buildings. Um, and feels that just given the overall size and scale uh, and we're reviewing the project um, that the variance findings cannot be made. Um, included in your packet in attachment 11 of the staff report does include findings that were submitted by the applicant for your consideration, um, which do discuss um, approval of the variance, um, but they are included for your consideration and staff is happy to answer questions about these if you would like as well. Um, also, just to touch on, on the memorandum, so this morning there was a memorandum that was placed on your seats as well. Um, this is um, included in the packet was uh, staff's recommending replacement of attachment 18. Um, the boundary line adjustment was printed inadvertently twice. Um, and so included in your packet is the exhibit map for the parcel map amendment. Um, and so this exhibit map was also included in the EIR, in the draft EIR itself. Um, this doesn't change any of the analysis, but staff just wanted to clarify this for, for the Planning Commission and to insert the right exhibit map for your review. So for recommendations, uh, the project, um, as we talked about, can be found to be consistent with several of the Nevada County uh, general plan goals and policies and found to be inconsistent with um, other Nevada County general plan uh, goals and policies. Um, included is two recommendations are being presented to the Planning Commission uh, for consideration as recommendations to the Board of Supervisors. Um, and the Planning Commission can choose to take one of these two recommendations if, uh, if you so choose, or to consider other recommendations or other options uh, at the pleasure of the Planning Commission. Um, and just to touch on these, recommendation A um, includes certification of the EIR, um, denial of the rezone and variance, and then no action on the remaining entitlements. Um, this is based on the project to be found inconsistent with several of the general plan goals and policies. Um, the intensity of the operations uh, would exceed those of the rural character and overall surrounding area, um, given the overall intensity of the use um, and intensity of the proposed mining operation uh, with the surrounding land uses. Um, and then requesting the, regarding the requested variance, um, there is the potential for potentially redesigning the project to consider lowering the height of several of the buildings, potentially lowering the height of the overall head frame, um, including additional different uh, type redesigns um, that could be considered. 
So uh, if Planning Commission chooses to consider Recommendation A, uh, the, the Planning Commission, um, the actions would be to certify the final environmental impact report as adequate and not adopt the findings of fact and statement of overriding considerations. Um, this is, so this finding or this action uh, would be to certify the final EIR, but not adopt the, the findings of fact statement of overrides. Um, this is because the overall benefits of the project um, and the overall statement of overriding considerations cannot be made. Um, however, the EIR itself could be certified. Um, and so this is just that, that um, that's what this action would do. Um, the second would be to deny the rezone, um, deny the variance application, and then uh, would be taking no action on the remaining entitlements, um, including the use permit with the reclamation plan, the management plans, the map amendment, boundary line adjustment, and the development agreement. Um, recommendation B is included for Planning Commission to consider. Um, this would um, should the Planning Commission determine that the proposed project is consistent with the Nevada County General Plan and Zoning Ordinance, uh, Planning Commission can take the actions included in Recommendation B. Um, additionally, should the Planning Commission recommend approval of the proposed project, um, staff would recommend that the Planning Commission um, adopt and make recommendations on the CEQA findings of fact and the statement of overriding considerations, and this would be in, under Recommendation B. The recommendation B project actions uh, would be to certify the final environmental impact report and adopt the findings of fact and statement of overriding considerations, approve the rezone, uh, approval of the use permit with the reclamation plan, approval of the variance, approval of the separate management plans, approval of the parcel map amendment, the boundary line adjustment, and approval of the, the development agreement. Um, and then lastly, there are other other considerations that the Planning Commission can take, um, and uh, staff would be willing to discuss these with you uh, further should you have questions on them. Um, but the uh, would be to continue the, uh, if Planning Commission desires uh, to request additional information to be brought forward for, for its consideration, uh, would be to continue the item to a date and time certain or a date and time uncertain, depending upon the requested information. Uh, the other would be is to provide a motion of intent or a continuation to recommend one or more of the alternatives. Um, there are, um, the alternative two um, is the environmentally superior alternative. Um, if Planning Commission would desire to consider this alternative, that is something that uh, Planning Commission can do. Um, and so you can do this through a motion of intent um, or you can do a continuance um, or if you'd like to uh, request staff to bring this back for to add additional findings or considerations, um, staff can do that and uh, would be to continue the project to a later date to allow staff to do that. Um, or a motion of intent would be to an intent to approve the alternative to um, and with motion with findings um, and then staff can forward that those findings on to consideration by the Board of Supervisors. Um, and then lastly is that this uh, Planning Commission can consider a combination of recommendations from recommendation A or B um, would be to consider approval of some of the entitlements or denial of some of the entitlements, um, certification of the EIR and denial of some of the entitlements or approval of some of the entitlements. Um, so these are all things that are within the Planning Commission's purview um, for consideration. So with that, um, that concludes our staff report. And if you have any questions, we'd be happy to answer them. Thank you, Matt. I think I'd like to wait until after the uh, applicant uh, presentation for questions. Thank you. Yeah.
the applicant prepared. Pardon, pardon me. We're gonna uh, we're gonna take five minutes for a uh, for a quick break, and we'll be uh, we'll reconvene here. We'll say ten fifty five. Ten minutes. Thank you. Two minutes. Two minutes till we reconvene. If folks could start finding their seats, we're gonna reconvene in one minute. Okay, let's bring it back. Thanks, folks. We got to be efficient with time here. Two days goes fast, as the morning already has. Please find your seats. Please find your seats. Thank you. All right. With that, we would like to hear from the applicant with the applicant presentation. Good morning, commissioners. Thank you very much for your time today and for all the time you've taken to prepare for this hearing. I'm Ben Mossman, president of Risegrass Valley. I'm a mine engineer by training and I've lived in Nevada County for the past five years. I've started a family here and have contributed to this community, advocating for the workers of the community, supporting local businesses with millions of dollars of local spending, hosting the senior firewood program and the greenhouse program on our site at no cost for the past four years, provided $100,000 to, to the new senior center and paid over $200,000 in property taxes. There are two fundamental reasons why I've continued to advocate for the Outer Maryland Mine and Nevada County. First, the Outer Maryland Mine was once the second largest gold producer by annual production in the entire United States. Before it was forced to close in 1942, the mine employed 1,000 people and was producing on average 120,000 ounces of gold per year. When the mine closed, they had plans to double the production. What makes this mine exceptional is the very high grade, which averaged a half ounce per ton, over total production of 2.4 million ounces of gold. This mine could be reopened today and achieve the success of its past, it would be among the highest grade major gold mines in the world. Second, I believe that our project meets the high environmental standards and values in Nevada County, that jobs and tax revenues are greatly needed, and that Nevada County is a place that respects property rights and applies its laws and regulations consistently and fairly. We did extensive research before, before applying for this use permit. We studied thousands of pages from two previous environmental impact reports and read every comment letter submitted by the community on those projects. We studied the county general plan and the land use and development code. We met with our supervisor, county staff, and many members of the community. With this information in hand, we set out to design what will be the most attractive and environmentally friendly gold mine in the world. From the outset, we determined that the mine would produce gold concentrates and not use any harmful reagents such as mercury or cyanide. We purchased the former sawmill site, which provides an ideal location for the mine infrastructure. Features of the site include large level paved areas, trees screened in the entire site, high voltage power, and access to a major road. We carefully designed the mine and plant to ensure that our neighbors would not be disturbed. The crusher and ventilation fan were placed underground. The conveyor between the silo and plant was fully enclosed. Truck loading would be done inside of a building behind closed doors. The process plant would be built with the highest level of insulation available. Airlocks would be used to ensure that noise could not escape through an open door. We considered the hours of the operation of the project in detail. 
Hours of operation for activities which impact our neighbors was reduced. For example, placement, grading, and compaction of engineered fill would only take place during daytime hours on weekdays, and trucking would not take place at night. We incorporated the existing clayline pond to ensure that sediment from the underground mine could not escape to the environment. We designed the process water system in a closed circuit to, to minimize water use and ensure the protection of the environment. We designed the project to treat groundwater pumped from the mine to a, to a level that is as good or better than drinking water quality standards. Rather than a tailings dam that other, other mines might use, we would produce dry sand tailings to allow them to be compacted to engineered standards. In 1995, the Nevada County Planning Commission approved the dewatering of this very mine. During that process, the extension of the NID water line on East Bennett Road was a mitigation measure only to be implemented if a well was impacted. We understood the concerns of well owners and committed to the installation of this water line before dewatering would even commence. We hired Dr. Campania, a hydrologist who has been trusted to work directly for NID and the County of Nevada. We hired a task at Denver, probably the most qualified firm in the world in these issues, who created a groundwater model and analyzed this issue to a level far beyond what was previously approved by this county. Throughout the EIR process, we have listened to the community and responded with improvements to the project. We agreed to construct an extensive well monitoring network and to domestic well monitoring. We reduced the proposed underground mining area by 1,000 acres and committed to mining the depths at only 500 feet or greater. We committed to use a simple flotation reagent which has no odor and is 100% biodegradable and environmentally friendly. We committed to eliminating all diesel equipment underground and using only electric and battery electric vehicles underground. We designed the ACER plan which uses the most sophisticated tested methanes available to ensure the protection of air quality. This plant sets a new benchmark and goes far beyond what's required for any, any construction project or any mining project in the state of California. Finally, we have offered funding to the local air district, ensuring that the mine meets its commitments to air quality. The result is the ER that's before you today with no significant impacts to air quality, biological resources, water quality, groundwater, vibration, or noise from operations. I want to thank Matt Kelly and the planning department for their work on our project over the past four years. They've taken on a large project and be subjected to an enormous amount of pressure. After four years, millions of dollars, and 30,000 pages of technical reports, we have one final hurdle put in front of us. Does the Ida Maryland mine foster our rural quality of life in Nevada County? First, I think it's important to acknowledge that the Ida Maryland mine has been part of Nevada County since its, since its formation. The mine was not close from depletion, but rather the policies of the U.S. government, which fixed the price of gold at $35 per ounce. When the mine closed in 1956, it owned almost all the surface land above it. The surface land was severed and sold, but only with a strict agreement. <coughs> But the mine will retain all necessary and convenient rights to extract its minerals in the future. This agreement is written to every deed of every property of every neighborhood surrounding the site, including East Bennett Road, Brunswick Manor, Beaver Drive, New Brunswick Court, Cedar Ridge, Timber Lane, Star Drive, Brunswick Pines, Whispering Pines, and Loma Rica. 
Brunswick Road has been used to access the Brunswick site for over 130 years. This includes the mine, the sawmill, and recently PG&E and the Greenways program. Drivers might see our head frame as they pass by. Drivers may see a truck for the mine on Brunswick Road. However, these trucks make up less than 1% of the traffic on the road. 50 truckloads over 16 hours is only one truck every 20 minutes. If this bothers someone, I suggest to think about what this head frame or truck represents. 300 members of your community earning on average $145,000 per year. $50 million per year in new spending at local business, creating hundreds of additional jobs. Tens of millions of dollars in construction work for local contractors. $6 million per year in new property taxes, funding schools, towns, and public safety. A new engine, three full-time firefighters, and 24 volunteer firefighters for the Orford Hill Fire District, creating one of the finest fire departments in the county, protecting our district and the entire region. <clears throat> Let me give you my view of a real quality of life. Not having to commute out of the county every day for work. Making enough money to build a home in your own community. Making enough money to allow your partner to stay at home and take all their time and love for a new child. Building schools with children and providing schools with the tax revenues to keep them open. Providing job opportunities for young people, so your kids and grandkids don't have to move away to find work. I've lived in rural areas and worked in mining most of my life. I think that some people have a hard time imagining who a mine worker is. They fear a change in the local culture, but a mine worker is the people that are already part of your community. Hundreds of local people have already reached out to us about employment. They are your neighbors, your family, and members of your church who want a rewarding job and a good life for their families. It's expected that opponents will participate and be vocal, but project supporters don't normally see the need to weigh in. Almost 2,000 people have submitted their names to this commission in support of the mine. These submissions represent the view of tens of thousands of people in our community who agree that the Idaho Maryland mine belongs in this community. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. My name is Braden Chadwick. I'm uh, outside counsel to RISE. I've been working with, uh, with the county as well as uh, RISE for the last few years to uh, go through the environmental review, review process and um, uh, work with staff to permit this, uh, permit this project. Um, before I go into my, my presentation in chief, what I'd like to do is uh, walk through the prior history review of this. Ben touched on it a, a little bit. I think um, here, and this, and the planning commissioners, I know all know this, but it might be good for the public to hear as well, considering some of the comments that I've been hearing today and even before today, which is that uh, the public can have confidence in the county's process. Staff has worked incredibly hard on this, as well as uh, the team of experts, both on the RISE resources side as well as the, the county side. And there should be confidence in this process. As Ben mentioned, there's two reasons primarily for it. The first is the prior history of CEQA review for this project. Um, CEQA documents were produced by the county in 1995, which permitted the dewatering of the mine and, and granted a permit for that, uh, by the city of Grass Valley in 2011, which resulted in an environmental impact report and, and uh, copious amounts of, of public comment and review, expert review, consultant review. 
which leads us to the 2022 uh, environmental impact report that's before you right now. Now, before RISE um, had even put pen to paper on designing a project or putting a site plan together, Ben mentioned this, is that RISE went to school on both the 1995 and the 2011 environmental documents that were produced for this mine. And again, prior to even doing any planning of the site, they went through every letter, every comment letter from uh, county and, and state agencies, every comment letter from the public, every comment letter and report from a technical perspective from a consultant. And this RISE project was designed from the get-go to address the public concerns. So that's reason one why the public can have some confidence in this project and in the process. And the second reason is because of the county process itself. County planning staff uh, from the get-go hired an independent environmental consultant and worked closely with that environmental independent consultant. And every resource section of the CIR, uh, that uh, consultant-ready planning, hired its own suite of experts to review every technical report and peer review every conclusion that was uh, submitted to them. And so every resource section of the EIR had two teams of experts at least review and peer review the data and conclusions of the technical reports. And that's in addition to county planning staff, and that's in addition to the independent consultant that the county hired. And the only exception to that is the water and well analysis, which actually had three separate hydrogeological uh, firms looking at that data. So the public can have confidence in the county process. And we thank the county staff for its time and its diligence in processing this application. So now I'd like to get to what I really want to talk about, which is the project. Uh, first, I want to go through uh, alternative two. I want to talk about the Brunswick site itself, where it is and its current condition. We can talk about the impact issues that matter most to the county based on the comments, including visual impacts, noise, traffic, air, and of course, water. So as we go through this, let's talk about alternative two first. Now, RISE in the, uh, in the letter that you received last Friday uh, and was uh, delivered to the county as well, proposes that the county adopt alternative two as identified in the draft environmental impact report. Now, as staff had mentioned, the alternative two is the environmentally superior alternative. Um, it removes the centennial site completely from the project. It addresses significant uh, confusion that we saw with, uh, with the centennial site in the project and eliminates a lot of public comments received on the project, including a lot of concerns from the city of Grass Valley itself. And it would significantly lower the intensity of the project, which includes fewer truck trips. Now, alternative two, and uh, Christians, I, I'm sure you're aware that you can adopt alternative two without further environmental review. Lead agencies can adopt alternatives that are analyzed in an EIR as long as the review uh, includes sufficient analysis in the EIR. And in this case, we're confident that that's the case because alternative two is identical to the pro proposed project with the exception of cutting off the centennial portion of the project. So it does account for all potential impacts and you don't need to continue a hearing uh, or further deliberate the issue because it's already analyzed in the EIR sufficiently. So alternative two and the reason why it is the environmentally superior alternative as identified by staff as well as the environmental impact report is because not only does it eliminate the centennial site completely, um, it and, uh, does have fewer impacts on almost every category. Um, more material will be placed at the Brunswick site, of course. The good news is there's room for it, but there are fewer aesthetic impacts. There are fewer air quality and greenhouse gas impacts. There are fewer biological impacts, cultural impacts, geological and soils impacts, 
fewer hydrology and water quality impacts, fewer noise impacts, and fewer traffic impacts, including you know, not hauling rock from the site uh, for an extended period of time. So again, what RISE is asking this commission to recommend to the Board of Supervisors is the adoption of the environmentally superior alternative, Alternative 2. So let's talk about the Brunswick site itself. Now this site um, has been used for industrial uses for 130 years. It's a part of the community. It's been here prior to the, to the county. It's been here prior to every land use almost that's in the county itself. It has a history of mining, of logging and sawmill uses most recently, and other industrial uses. In fact, it's currently being used right now as, as a you know, chipping operation um, that's, uh, that's connected with the county. It's a highly disturbed site. It looks like what it is, which is a, dis which is a disturbed industrial site that is kind of beat up. It needs revitalization. It needs uh, a facelift, as it were. It is adjacent and located immediately adjacent to a state-designated truck route. Um, Brunswick Road is a state-designated truck route. Um, that was you know, not mentioned, but, but that's, that is the case, but that is convenient for this project. And it reflects, again, the industrial nature of this particular property in this area is that truck trips were uh, always going back and forth, including during the sawmill use, which, is, which was most recent. Um, and there's already substantial screening from public review. Um, the, the views from the public are, there's, there's certain windows, but uh, the ProPros project uses the existing screening from, from the public views and enhances that. And we'll look at some of the visuals that were included in the environmental impact report. So let's go back in time to 1947. This is an aerial photograph. You can see the Brunswick shaft uh, right there. Um, you can also see the Cedar Ridge neighborhood uh, right there as well. And uh, this was during active mining site, uh, active mining operations of the mine. Uh, again, uh, this is 1991. And again, you see the uh, logging operation right here and the mill. And you see what the uh, industrial pond was constructed there uh, for the Bohemia sawmill. Uh, there's log stacking, sawing, and industrial operations here, and of course a lot of trucking back and forth here on the state-designated truck route on Brunswick Road. So you can see where all those is. Um, the Brunswick Industrial Site, uh, we can start here at this, I'm going to walk you through it, but basically the Brunswick Industrial Site um, on the one end starts with this property right here, and this is uh, the iconic uh, silo that you see on the property. And as you see with this drone footage, you can see the, the current status of the site. This is an industrial site that has always been used for industrial operations, again, for 130 years or so. And it tells that. You can tell that you can see uh, the paved areas. You can see where parking lots were. You can see over here, and, and, and uh, uh, county staff pointed this out, where the sawmill was and operated 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can see where logs were stacking. Uh, up in the top right-hand corner, as we approach the end of this, you can see the entrance to the site where trucks were going in and out. And again, this is a constant for this property for the last hundred or so years. Um, the drone's going to tilt here, but you'll see again the senior firewood operation here that RISE has invited to be on its site uh, for basically for many years now. And you can see again where all the industrial operations were taking place. This entire area, and here's a better view of the pond as well, but this entire area will be redeveloped as part of this project. And I'll leave it up to you whether this is going to be a negative uh, impact when it comes to sight lines and aesthetics or there's going to be an improvement. But this is the site as it currently exists today. Let's talk about the staff report. Uh, I want to talk about the variance in the general plan 
that Matt was mentioning. Uh, first, um, let's talk about the variance. The staff report recommends that the Board of Supervisors deny the variance. And uh, they talk about a couple things. The first is uh, it asserts that the property is not unique um, or unique enough, I guess it would be. Um, that's not true, especially when you're considering um, some of the variances that the county's approved in the past. The staff report also asserts that granting um, would constitute some sort of special privilege that's inconsistent for the properties. Um, that's also not true, and we'll talk about that in, in detail. And it states that the head frame would extend above the top of the existing canopy and into the skyline. That's also not true. Trees and setbacks provide, addition, provide the screening necessary to screen that head frame and will look at some of the visuals that are actually in the environmental, environmental impact report in the technical report to show you what that's going to look like. When we move on to the general plan, we'll talk about the staff report um, recommends that the Super Board of Supervisors deny the project for general plan inconsistency. Um, now, there's a focus on intensity that you might have heard uh, a few times during the presentation uh, about the potential for surface mining operations on the property. Now, uh, that's not compatible because of the intensity of the project, the 24-7 nature of the operations. Um, this isn't true because the impacts are actually limited. If you look at the conclusions of the environmental impact report, you see that this has fewer environmental impacts than any mine I've ever permitted in the last few decades of my career. The impacts are limited and more intense mines are approved and have been recently improved in rural areas. I think that the intensity issue is key here because despite the fact that the project will operate 24-7, 365, be, these people will be working inside buildings. These people will be working underground and trucking doesn't, doesn't run at night and stacking and hauling doesn't run at night either. And so I think that the intensity of the project is a little overblown considering there's going to be no one on the surface working outside. It's inconsistent uh, with the general plan, says uh, the staff report, because there's a requirement that the boundary line be maintained between rural and community regions. The large property size of the Brunswick site is 120 acres, only 60 of which are going to be used for the, for the project itself. So over half of the property won't even be used for this project. So the boundary line is maintained. And there's also concern over truck trips and traffic congestion, but again, again, as pointed out by the environmental impact report, traffic is extremely limited compared to the existing traffic, and we'll go into that in a little more detail too. So let's talk about the variance findings first, so we can dispense with that. The county's requirements for variance findings, there's six of them. The first is that it doesn't confer a special privilege. The second is that there are special circumstances associated with the property, and, and Matt was correct when he pointed out that's key here, is that the property has to have some unique characteristics that would justify um, the variance being granted. This property absolutely has them, and we'll talk about that. Um, the third is that it does not authorize or a use that is otherwise illegal or otherwise not allowed. The fourth is that it doesn't adversely affect the health, safety, or welfare. The fifth is that it's consistent with the general plan, and the sixth is that is the minimum departure uh, that the project requires. So. Um, what I'd like to do is take a look at one of the variances that we uh, got from the county. So when the county staff asked us to uh, apply for a variance, one of the things that Rice did was pull different variances from the county itself just to see what the county normally does with variances and how to properly structure the findings and the application. And so this one stands out to me, the Lone Oaks Apartments, but it is um, emblematic of how the county approaches variances, especially height variances. Um, in, the, in, in its deliberations. So this variance is the example is the Lone Oaks Apartments. 
and uh, we'll walk through all six of their uh, the findings that the county requires. Of course, the first is that doesn't grant a special privilege. There's uh, a whole two sentences there. Um, the second, again, this is the key, so we'll, we'll dwell on this one that Matt, Matt was correct in, is that there are special circumstances applicable to the property. It's interesting that the property proponent and the county found this to be convincing as far as special circumstances concerning the property or the uniqueness of the property. This property was deemed unique by planning staff because the property is relatively flat and is nearby local amenities. I'm not sure how unique that is. That seems not unique to me at all, actually, and it's only one sentence. But again, this is the standard that the county holds variances to. Uh, second is, of course, is the third is that um, that it's not that's authorized by the zoning district to which the property is located, doesn't uh, harm health, safety, or welfare. And here, of course, they say that uh, benefits and everything else are the same as the next door property. So how bad could it be? And uh, the fifth is that uh, it's consistent with the general plan uh, because uh, the zoning allows it. And the sixth is that hey, we asked for thirty-eight percent, we're allowed fifty. This is page one of the variance findings for the Idaho Maryland mine. Page one of about nine. The difference is, is that the Idaho Maryland mine variance justification includes specific details about the project. It has more than adequate information to justify the variance. It illustrates that other projects and provides lists of other projects uh, with similar heights that have been approved by the county, been approved for variances by the county. It has citations to the general plan, to the zoning code, and to the environmental impact report uh, that is for this project. I guess the, the point of this is that when we make our recommendation, when the commission makes its recommendation to the Board of Supervisors, that the Idaho Maryland Mine project should be judged with the same ruler that the county holds other pro properties accountable to. And just to go back to justification for the uniqueness of the property on some of these applications that we pulled, just because that um, the property itself uh, is nearby things or relatively flat, if that's the ruler that we're holding properties to, certainly a variance justification is appropriate here with a property that is unique. And let's go through that. What makes this property unique? This property is unique because of primarily one thing, gold. There is a valuable mineral deposit underneath this property that is not under any other property in the county. That is unique. It's one of the highest grade gold mines in the country. It was one of the highest grade gold mines uh, when it was producing, and it will be again. Even if CEQA, and even CEQA acknowledges that for mining projects, they are special. Mining projects, you have to look at the minerals because minerals are where they are, and you cannot move them and you cannot exploit them or use them from any other site. That makes this site unique. And for variances, as county staff pointed out appropriately, variances you have to look, and the key is, what is unique about this property? This property is unique in the county. There's nothing else like it. There are also existing usable mining facilities, and this, these are all in the findings as well, as well as the letter that was sent to you last Friday. But there's industrial pond there that already exists. There's a 3,000-foot deep mine shaft that's existed there. Does that make it unique? Absolutely. That's a unique feature of this property that enables this particular project. There is an existing 85-foot silo, and there is a reuse of this mine site. And the reuse of this mine site is something the general plan encourages and wants to happen, of course. 
And of course, the last, and this will echo the other application that you just saw, is the county has zoned this property for this purpose. This is a zoning that allows this use. And the county has kept that. In fact, this use predates the zoning code. And so the county has always kept the zoning code to allow this use. It's M1. Despite that fact, and despite the fact that, uh, that that variance can be achieved and can be approved and can be found to be consistent with the requirements and the findings of the county, a variance isn't even required, and I'll tell you why. With that letter last Friday that you received, RISE committed to, for its habitable buildings, meet the 45-foot standard for the zone. So RISE will reduce the height of those buildings because, again, it was a surprise to us that the, that the building height was going to cause staff, uh, the staff report to uh, try and find inconsistency there. But RISE will reduce those buildings to the 45-foot height limitation. And Nevada County Code Section 424 provides an exception. It says that architectural features not intended for human occupancy or non-habitable structures like head frames have an exception as long as there's a use permit associated with the project. And here that's the case. So RISE commits and asks this commission to put a condition of approval on its recommendation to the Board of Supervisors that the building heights comply with the zoning, with the existing zoning code height limitation of 45 feet. RISE will commit to make that happen. And this variance isn't even required. So let's talk about the general plan. First of all, uh, the general, general plan consistency is essentially uh, extremely hard to, to make, and here's why. And there's a lot of cases on this, and I'll just give you a, just, just a couple of them. The lead agency's role, your role, is to balance competing goals and interests that are reflected in the general plan. You're well aware general plan goals and interests sometimes compete with each other. And as staff pointed out, you can comply with one and be inconsistent with another because those two things are at odds with each other. And again, uh, furthermore, it's well established that no project could completely satisfy every policy. And state law does not impose a requirement that each project comply with every policy. It's a balancing test, and it's one that, that you're tasked with as the Planning Commission. So is the project consistent with the general plan? Absolutely. And I respectfully disagree with, with some of the things in the staff report. Let's go through some of these things. The general plan in, um, introduction in volume one, page one through eight, it says that um, one of the county goals of here is to ensure the long-term quality of natural resource values, including mining activities. Mining in the county, despite uh, its unpopularity with some people, is a critical part of the infrastructure and it's a critical part of the county's economy. And the general plan acknowledges that, that mining activities should be uh, ensured as long-term uh, operations here in the county. General plan policy 1.1.1 that Matt mentioned um, that maintain a distinct boundary between rural and community regions. Again, what you have here is you have a very large site that's always been zoned industrial, that the county has zoned it industrial, and only 60 of the 120 acres are even going to be used. Is there a distinct boundary between rural and community? Absolutely there is, and it was designed that way. General Plan Policy 1.1.2, this talks about uh, uh, development which was consistent with uh, rural lifestyle and surrounding land use patterns. Well, what's the surrounding land use patterns? The surrounding land use patterns are this site. It's a state-designated truck hauling route. That's a land use pattern that's here at the property. This property has always been a industrial property. 
It's been a sawmill. It's been a log stacking. It's been wood chipping. It's been a mining property. It's always been part of the community. It's part of this, this particular neighborhood. So is it consistent with the surrounding land use patterns? Absolutely. And I'll also point out that, as the county staff pointed out, there's very, very little impact on the neighboring community when it comes to the environment, the environmental impacts that are disclosed in the environmental impact report. General Plan Policy 142. This uh, basically says that the development should be consistent with overall rural quality of life in the county. And I'll bold this last part because it's important. The general plan provides you the means of how this project will comply or how any project has to comply with policy 142. And that is that these criteria shall be accomplished. In other words, you comply with 142 and accomplish that through the application of comprehensive site design standards. So this project, and we'll walk through that, but this project has worked laboriously to make sure that it complies with the Western County site design standards, including building height, building design, building color. And we've worked with staff to make that happen. So can we be consistent with, with General Plan Policy 142? Absolutely. And finally, General Plan Policy 17.6, I, I almost, I, I had to smile when, uh, when the staff board said that, that this project might be inconsistent with this one because this one says that it, the county encourages the extraction of mineral resources, encourages the extraction of mineral resources in areas compatible um, uh, before intensified urbanization overruns them. Because again, it's the same thing with the California Environmental Quality Act. When you're talking about areas in the county that are zoned MRZ2, uh, which this is and is incorporated into your general plan that is reserved for mining opportunities. And it's reserved that way because the state recognizes that when you have valuable mineral resources, they need to be protected until they can be exploited by this county. And your general plan policy reflects that by saying they encourage the general plan policy of the policy is to encourage the extraction of mineral resources before you have significant urbanization. So the project does fit with the rural character of the area. There are similar surface mining operations conducted in rural areas for years. In fact, that's where they almost exclusively are, is in rural areas. Most recently, the Boca Quarry of 2019, the expansion that was approved by the county, uh, was in a rural area. And the project, this project, has taken uh, a litany of measures to mitigate any of the negative impacts, including visual screening, insulated buildings, mature trees to be installed, uh, no nighttime hauling, all of that goes to making sure that this project is consistent with the rural character of the area. Now, just harkening back again to the intensity issue, uh, intensity is not found as one of your findings uh, in, the, uh, in the zoning code here that you, need to make, that you need to find. The intensity of the project is consistent with the type of mining that is historically conducted in the area. It meets all of the regulation and guidelines. There is less traffic than any other mine in the county. And there's less traffic than most of the industrial uses that could be placed here. It's designed to meet the county design characteristics, and it does meet the, de the design characteristics, which is consistent with General Plan Policy 142. Here's a view of the head frame of what it looks like with the mature trees. Now, the project impacts are small compared to a lot of quarries in the, uh, and a lot of mines in the county. And I'm not going to pick, I'm, 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 it's going to seem like I'm picking on the Boca Quarry. I'm not. I like the Boca Quarry, actually. But um, they are two different but, but somewhat similar projects. And that's why I want to just compare the two, because this shows you how minimal the impacts of this mine are compared to other mines in the county. 
the Boca Quarry's impacts are more significant, usually in a fact by a factor of 10, in terms of air quality, in terms of aesthetics, in terms of traffic. Boca Quarry is a surface mine. This is not. Everything, everything is underground. Nearby homes for the Boca Quarry can see the quarry unobstructed. And the staff recommended approval, of course. Now, the Idaho Maryland Mine Project only has 112 one-way daily truck trips compared to almost 1,500 for the Boca Quarry. Put that in perspective, again, 112 truck trips versus 1,500 for the Boca Quarry. Now, the Idaho Maryland Mine has been determined also to have less than significant impacts, this is in the EIR, to aesthetics for adverse effects on scenic vistas. Let's take a look at this. Here's the Boca Quarry, and again, I, I don't want to pick on it, but this is just a, just a, a comparison, is you cannot hide a high wall. Okay? That's a visual impact. Okay? This is I-80, and here's the Boca Quarry. Okay? The draft EIR for the Boca Quarry, this is a quote from it, says the associated visual impact at the key views would be considered significant and unavoidable, and that's why. This site does not have these views like that. This is a view of the entrance of the site. The draft EIR is found that, that the project is compatible with the general plan. The EIR says this. Okay? The staff report is inconsistent with this analysis. Now, the Idaho Maryland Mine Project is less intense than other mines approved by the county, and that's why it's consistent with the general plan. Let's talk about the project design, because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about avoiding impacts. We're talking about addressing concerns. And again, Act 1 for RISE when coming to the county was to go to school on those previous environmental impact reports. So the design is environmentally responsible. There's aesthetic improvement over the site as it currently is, and I'll let you be the judge of that. There's minimal noise because everything is designed to be enclosed in a building. That's expensive. That's difficult. It requires airlocks and it requires fully insulated buildings to state-of-the-art standards, but that's something Rice is committed to to make sure that the county doesn't hear this and neighbors don't hear this, this, this operation. There's minimal traffic. Again, consider, just compare it with any other mine in the entire county. It's designed to protect air quality. It's designed to improve the water quality that's, that's currently flowing through the site, and it's designed to protect local wells. Let's talk about this. For aesthetics, there's an aesthetic improvement, okay? Um, and for temporary construction noise, this construction noise is temporary, and the reason there's any noise at all that the EIR found was significant was because they're constructing a water pipeline to provide water service to the neighbors. But for that, that wouldn't even be an impact. And there's only two intersections where you have significant impacts for traffic, only two. And let's look at what those mean. Okay, it's Brunswick Road and Highway 174, and it's Sutton Way at Brunswick Road. This is what I want you to focus on. This is an impact because there's only 10 employees going through there at 3.30 p.m. 10, not hundreds, 10. And the only reason why this is significant and unavoidable is because any traffic at this intersection, any traffic, is considered an impact. But there's not tons of trucks and tons of cars going through here. It's 10 employees going through there at 3.30 in the afternoon. The Sutton Way is even more pronounced because there's only two employees going through at 3.30 in the afternoon. And again, the reason why the IR found it significant and unavoidable was because any traffic at that intersection, any at all, even one car, is considered an impact. This is Brunswick Road. Brunswick Road has a speed limit of 45 miles an hour, and it is a state-designated trucking route. Okay? These are not neighborhoods we're driving through. And I want to drive with you 
down Brunswick Road. Okay, so Brunswick Road, and this is East Venice. This starts at the very beginning of the site. And let's just drive down the road, as you can see. And again, these are cars going at 45 miles an hour. There's the silo you can see on the right. And as you're driving down this road, this is what the public is going to see. You'll see visual screening. You'll see a lot of trees that are already there. They're mature. And this visual screening is going to only get better. There's a raised berm there as well that continues to hide the site. The site, as you can see, is at a lower elevation than the road is. That helps hide the project itself. You can see, you know, uh, county workers there on the side of the shoulder of the road. And as you continue going down here, again, this is 45 miles an hour that people are driving down this road. And it's, and it's again, state-designated haul route. And up here on the right, you'll see the entrance to the site. That's what the public sees. Okay. Again, the Brunswick Industrial Site, and this is just a reminder of what it looks like. You can see the pond over here on the right-hand side. You see the silo, of course, right here. It's 85 feet tall currently. And you see kind of the beat up kind of structure of this site, the paved, the, the paving, the parking lots that are there. This is what it's going to look like with the visual simulations. And I want to walk you through this, okay? This is what the project is proposed to do, as you can see. You have buildings that comply with the county design guidelines that we work with staff on. You have a parking lot with trees and dividers and vegetation. And as you see, as it flies through here, you'll see all the different buildings. You'll see the, 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 the parking that is available there. You'll see the awnings and the, the accoutrements that meet the Western County design guidelines. The buildings have been broken up, as, as Matt mentioned, to make sure that they're not uh, giant buildings that, that comply. Again, this is to comply with the design standards. You'll see the existing pond. And this is what the site will look like. Now, you'll see everything's again here enclosed to make sure that there's no noise. You'll see right here where the rock will be transported through a covered. And then you see right here where the, the head frame is. So again, this is, a, this is a, a, a site improvement from what it currently is. And again, visual screening is gonna be part of this. Now this comes from the environmental impact report. These are visual simulations that are there and you can go look at them at your leisure. But here's uh, the site of the current view where you can see, of course, the 85-foot tall um, silo there that currently exists there, and this is on the corner of East Bennett. And this is what the head frame is going to look like. And then again, this is what the visual screening will be. Again, this is anticipated to be put there prior to when that's getting built. So again, visual screening is key to this project, and it's part of this project, and it's a condition of approval of this project. Same thing here, and let's look at this. This is the entrance to the site on Brunswick Road. At this entrance to the site, you can see you can see Caltrans vehicles there. You can see some staging that they were doing, um, and this is what the current view is that was that that Rice inherited. This is the engineered fill, and this is worst case scenario because there's the engineered fill and the vegetated berm right there. It looks like just a hill, right? And these are trees that are just barely planted. Trees are going to be planted, but they're going to be filled to maturity long before this pile gets that high. And here's what it will look like with mature trees planted all along here. And again, this, the trees take time to grow, but so does the fill pile. And so it's anticipated this is what the engineered fill is going to look like. It is a vegetated hill is what it is. That's what the fill pile is. And there's going to be mature landscaping all around there. And again, this is an improvement over what the current view of the site currently is by passersby. The Brunswick fill pile aerial view. This is where it's going to be. There's the pond again, and there's Brunswick Road. 
Here's a public view of Brunswick fill pad. Again, this is one of the visual simulations in the environmental impact report. We have a viewpoint location of a person who's standing there. You have the trees, of course, the, the fill that's, that, again, is going to fill in here that's part of this project. And you have the vegetated berm, and this is the viewpoint of where they'd be looking. Okay, that's the public view of what the fill pad will look like. It's a vegetated hill. Lighthouse Maryland Mine Project will also generate minimal noise. This was a concern from the public, and it was a concern back in 2011 as well. And so, again, RISE went to school on that, read the public review, read the impacts, and decided to do something about it, even if it cost them a lot of money to do. Here are the nighttime noise contours, and you can see here in the, um, that this is, as, as Ben mentioned, uh, and as staff mentioned, the machinery is going to be 100% fully enclosed in insulated buildings. These sound-insulated buildings are state-of-the-art. They cost a lot of money. Um, but it's worth it to achieve no sound that's going to be outside here. Rock crushing is not going to be done on the surface. Rock crushing is going to be done underground. Again, is it more expensive? Is it more troublesome? Of course. But does it save noise? Absolutely it does. The ventilation fans also will be located underground. And all the buildings, as Ben mentioned, will have airlocks in them to make sure no noise is escaping the site. And what you see here, the outer contours of this will be 35 decibels. That's equivalent to a whisper. And when you factor in that Brunswick Road is a, is a state-designated haul road, and you have truck traffic and vehicle traffic there, you won't hear this project at all. And that's how it's designed, at great cost to RISE, because RISE wants to make sure the public will not be impact, impacted by this project. Let's talk about traffic. Again, state haul road designated by the state. Minimal traffic, especially minimal traffic, with the adoption of Alternative 2. Alternative 2 cuts off Centennial and cuts off all of that truck traffic over to Centennial, all of it. And so all you have now is the stuff on the site and the stuff going out to 174. And here you have the truck traffic and truck trips. And this little chart is something I think we need to pay attention to because the current zoning for the property, and this was with the sawmill, allowed 196 total truck ends, estimated from the trip generation manual, right? 196 truck trips. Idaho Maryland Mine Project is 112 truck trips. The Boca Quarry is almost 1,500 truck trips. The Greenhorn permitted is almost 500 truck trips. So the Idaho Maryland truck trip generation is less intense than other nearby mines, such as Boca Quarry, Greenhorn. And so this concern over truck traffic or the intensity of truck traffic, again, is overblown. The Idaho Maryland Mine Project only has 112 one-way daily truck trips. And again, that's equivalent to during, during the day, and daylight only, during the day, that's only one truck every 20 minutes on a state-designated trucking route that has a lot more traffic than that. So here's, putting it a different way, here's the trucks on Brunswick Road. The current traffic, you can see, is the blue line here. Okay? That's what current traffic looks like at different times of the day, which is down here at the bottom. What you have with the Idaho Maryland Mine is when you add current traffic with Idaho Maryland Mine trucks, here's what you get. It's almost overlaying completely because there are so few truck trips. And compared to other mines, again, it's almost nothing. And so the trucks on Brunswick Road uh, are the equivalent of only three equivalent vehicles, but you can see how it currently tracks the current traffic there. There's hardly any traffic impacts at all here. And the EIR 
that staff is endorsing, that yeah, the staff says that, that you and recommends that this commission recommend for adoption, that's where this data comes from. So air quality, uh, RISE goes above and beyond what the state air quality requirements are. The draft ER concluded there are no significant air quality impacts because all electric machinery is used underground. Okay? That was a voluntary design project for this project that RISE started with from the very beginning in the project description. Only electric vehicles underneath to make sure there are no air quality impacts. The project is also required to, to comply, and staff mentioned this, with the ATCM for surfacing and for grading. Now that's used for all projects in the county where there's any hint of asbestos, which is almost everywhere. And so RISE, and again, this is a condition of approval, and uh, Matt mentioned this, RISE agreed for the ACER plan. So RISE proposes additional measures beyond those required by the state with the ACER plan, which requires sampling before and after mining, and it's a condition of approval. And this is a guarantee of a negligible asbestos content because it's constantly being measured all the time in addition to the ATCMs required by the state. And finally, and this is something that RISE itself has proposed, and it's not being required of RISE, but RISE is proposing this as part of the project and as part of the development agreement, is RISE is proposing to fund a full-time air pollution officer at the APCD. In other words, paying the salary for someone at the APCD to basically regulate them. And why is that? And that's because RISE wants the public, of course, to have confidence that the rules are being followed, that the conditions of the permits and, the, and uh, that the air impacts are not going to be anything of harm to them. And so RISE is proposing to fund an entire position there to make sure that the APCD has the staff to appropriately regulate them. And again, this is not required by the county. This is something that RISE is proposing as part of the project and the development agreement. And I was on the phone with the, uh, with the Air District uh, just two weeks ago about what the contours of that would look like. So this is, this, is, this is real items and things that, I mean, RICE has taken this project and the public concerns very seriously. And I think that's borne out by the environmental impact report. It's borne out by the, the few impacts that are there. And the impacts that are there are not very hefty at all compared to other mining projects. If you look at a low carbon footprint, this is something that the state is worried about, of course, which is the greenhouse gas emissions. Because of this, the Idaho Maryland mine is going to make up less than 1% of the greenhouse gas emissions here in the county. And that's adoption of electric vehicles, adoption of electric mining equipment. This is an ultra modern mine that's designed to be environmentally friendly. Let's talk about water quality really quickly, because this is of concern. Now, water quality. Um, that the public is concerned about were two things. Water quality is being discharged from the site and water in the wells. Both of these things are appropriate things to be concerned about. No bones about it. And that's why RISE went to school on this so hard. The discharge from the mine from the water will meet the California water quality objectives because A, it's going to be regulated by the Central Valley Regional Board. The permitting process is separate from the county and it's more intense, of course, because you have to meet discharge requirements. And these discharge requirements state that the water discharge from the site has to be as good or better than California drinking water quality standards. There's testing, there's oversight, and there's a whole agency to do it. And that's what rises is that's what is going to be happening here is you can be able to drink this water coming off of the site that's going to the South Fork of Wolf Creek. Let's talk about the impacts to the South Fork of Wolf Creek. Um, operations are going to be about 1.9 CFS. And the initial, when they're dewatering the mine, will be about 5.6 CFS. 
And as you go through, here's what four, approximately four CFS looks like. One of the concerns the public had was that the inflow in the creek would cause adverse impacts to the creek. You still have a babbling brook at four CFS. There's no scouring, there's no problems there. In fact, it's a whole lot less than the, than the spring runoff that goes down through there. And here's what one CFS looks like. And again, this is not a raging river of South Fork of Wolf Creek. This is both just babbling brooks on both of them. Okay, so there's not going to be any adverse impacts to Wolf Creek. And as you know, uh, the mines can be using a lot of it, uh, its own water, but of course, its water use is far less than golf courses. Let's talk about wells. And I want to spend a little bit of time here because wells are important. And the neighbors' wells are important. They're important to rise. They're certainly important to the neighbors. And so I think that, that, that it bears a lot of, a lot of introspection here, and, and we do have experts here to talk about this for any questions that the Commission has. But essentially, you have water wells on the left that are usually placed in fractured rock in the first couple of hundred feet of, um, of the surface. Mining will take place 500 feet below the surface. Okay? And when we go through here, I want to walk through some drill cores that were taken right here. This is on the Rise property. Here's East Bennett and here's Brunswick Road, right? This is a drilling operation that happened there. And so there, these are drill cores that you'll see that there are no significant impacts between wells and the dewatering of the mine. And here's why. 18 feet, you can see right here that this is what it looks like when you have fractured rock near the surface. And you can see why this rock is whole to water. Just 66 feet down and 76 feet down. And you can see as you go down, there's still fractured bedrock here. You have fractured rock and weathered rock, 121 feet, 129. And as you get closer to 200 feet, which is basically the bottoming of a lot of the wells, you're going to see why they bottom there. And that's because it gets more and more solid. It's not permeable. There's not water there. And as you go down 226, 244, these are actual drill cores taken from the property. There's 254, 263, and as you keep going down, it gets more and more solid. There's no water here, right? 363, 375, here's 400 feet down. 435, as we get down to 500 feet, it's below this area that mining starts. And there's no, there's no significant features that connect the water wells and this, this impervious rock. And again, we have experts here to explain this in more detail than I'm willing to get into with you. But uh, I will say this, is that one of the things that RISE looked at when it was looking at the well issues is where were these wells and how, how far did they go down and what did they yield at that point to make sure there was no connection between the wells and the mine as far as dewatering is concerned. So here's a well that was a 350 feet deep. Okay, They weren't getting the yield they wanted, so they went deeper. They went down to 700 feet. And what they find is they found greenstone here, which is the same thing you see with that drill core sitting right there. And look at the yield. Nothing. There was no water they could get out of that, out of that well. And the reason is because when you're that deep into solid rock, there is no water to get. And there's no connection between the fractured rock on the surface and the deep, solid rock 500 feet down. So the mine is actually already partially dewatered. And that's, that's something um, that uh, a lot of the public doesn't know about, but the, 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 well, the, the mine water is actually a lot lower than their wells already. The water wells, the East Bennett area, or the Beaver Drive area, or the Greenhorn area, you can see what they are right here, and what the difference between the surface of the water in the mine is versus the surface uh, versus the bottom of the, the wells. 
So the water level in the Brunswick mine is currently at 2,500 feet elevation, and the wells closest to the mine still haven't been drained, despite the fact that here in East Bennett area, between the wells and the surface water that's in the mine itself, there's 140, I'm sorry, there's 140 feet of room between the two. And in Beaver Drive, there's 360 feet of difference between the water in the, in the mine and the bottoms of their wells. There's uh, 335 feet of difference for Greenhorn. So again, the wells aren't connected by any significant feature or fracture to the mine itself. So again, here's a graphic that just, it's a little bit busy, but it shows that. And you can see right here, this is, this is the Brunswick shaft, and that's where the water is. And you can see the wells, and these are just uh, symbols of the well, but the wells here, and these are real wells that are depicted, um, most don't even go down below the, the water level there in the mine. So the Idaho Maryland mine is also providing substantial mitigation. So despite the fact that in 1995, there wasn't anticipated to be a problem, and despite the fact that in 2011, the, the EIR had the same conclusions, and despite the fact that the EIR for 2022 had the same conclusions, all using different uh, lead agencies, different staffing, and of course, different experts. They all came to that conclusion. But basically, what you have here is that even with only small impacts to water levels and groundwater, uh, RISE is going to have substantial mitigation. Why? Because this is of major concern to people. And RISE wants to make sure there's no problems here at all. So despite the fact that this is not going to be a problem, here's what RISE is proposing. Construction of this water pipeline. This is part of the project. The project doesn't need it. This is for the benefit of the people and the neighbors around the mine. It's going to connect 30 different properties to NID water at a substantial cost to, uh, to the project. There's going to be 12 months of groundwater monitoring before the mine is dewatered. And again, this is in addition to the, the well records going all the way back prior to 1995, where this was first looked at. So you have almost 30 years of data that was looked at by the hydrogeological teams, making sure this wasn't a problem. But there's still going to be 12 months of monitoring to make sure that any problems will be detected before they occur. And RISE will always be responsible for well mitigation if any well is, is, is impacted by just 10% of its water column. And any person who has worried about this, RISE will monitor their well for them. It's, it's by their permission, of course, but that's something RISE is committed to do, is making sure there are no problems here. So this is the ultimate belt and suspenders, and I think what, uh, what uh, county staff called it um, was the 100% uh, factor of safety. So why is this project good for Nevada County? I'll end here, but basically the project has substantial benefits to the county. There's significant property tax revenue. It's larger than any existing property in the county. This is 312 jobs with an average salary of $145,000. That's significant. Up to 300 indirect jobs and indirect economic impacts. It helps to solve significant budget and employment challenges that are currently plaguing the county and, and uh, the, the city of Grass Valley. Provides funding for an APCD officer. Provides funding for the Ofer Hill Fire Department. And when we're talking about taxation and tax revenue, taxation and mineral rights are a squirrely nature. Basically, by both statute and case law comes out the fact that the income approach is used. You have to use proven reserves in order for the county to tax what the value of that mineral estate is. Now, the independent economic study by RDN, and this is the county's economic study, so there were two economic studies that were done, and just going along with the theme of redundancy, there were two economic studies done. One was done by, uh, by a firm that was hired by RISE to assess the economic 
um, viability of this project as well as what it's going to do beneficially to the county. And the second one was hired by the county itself at county expense to verify whether the economics of this actually were as Rise was saying. And I'm pleased to report that the county's own independent consultant, which is very well thought of in this area, the county's own independent consultant came to the same conclusions. And their county's uh, consultant said that the estimated property tax revenue from Rise was ranging from a million dollars a year to $5.4 million a year, depending on what the proven reserves are. If you take the historic mine and you fast forward that to the 2022 equivalent, what that works out to be is approximately $6.9 million of county tax revenue per year, almost $7 million a year. So this is how that's how that's broken down, just to see how you did it. The property tax, 1939 through 1941, you take the assumed price of gold, which is low right here in this, in this uh, slide. You have the historic production. Here's the revenue in current prices. You have the inflation of what, what the value of that dollars are, right? Uh, discount rate, and of course, what you end up with is an annual mineral property tax at 1% of $6.8 million going to the county on a yearly basis. Put in perspective, the mineral property tax comparison are greater than the top 10 taxpayers of the county combined right now. In greater perspective, the property tax that is going to be uh, collected by the county from the mine is greater than all the properties within a mile of the site. So you want to talk about where this is going to go. Basically, the intensity here is the property tax per acre is approximately $100,000 per acre used. That's a 30x as to what the county normally collects. Okay, and that's greater than all properties within one mile of the site again. So where does it go? This property tax goes to schools, 55.7%, to cities, 10.6%, special districts, 20%, and the, to the county's own general fund, almost 14% of that money. Again, this is high paying jobs. The average wage order, uh, reported by the majority of U.S. gold miners, 145,000, that's what's anticipated here. Okay, two thirds of the people hired for this project, two thirds will be drawn from right here. Okay, this is a comprehensive training programs and skilled workforce. These numbers, again, borne out by the economic studies uh, from both RISE and the county. Now this is, this is uh, an economically distressed community, it's an opportunity zone. And this is judged by the state government and the federal government. It's a, a zone in need of jobs, okay? The median household income, especially in Grass Valley, is lower than that in Nevada County proper, in Truckee and California and the United States. How do you fix that? You bring in jobs, high paying jobs, skilled jobs, and that's how you fix that number. Now families have been leaving the county uh, at an alarming rate since 2009. And they, they're doing it reluctantly, but they still have to do it because why? Lack of opportunity. As Ben pointed out, his view, and I think it's one shared by a lot of people, of what the rural lifestyle for the county is, is meaning you don't have to move away for economic opportunities. It means you don't have to take your family and move because there's no jobs for you or you can't afford a home here, right? People are leaving, but we got to get them back, and you get them back by having good, high-quality paying jobs. The Nevada Joint Union High School District has a budget deficit of about $1.3 to $1.5 million in future years. $700,000 per year from the mine helps fill that hole nicely. The benefits of this project are, are, are numerous. You have 312 employees. You have $145,000 average wage. You have 
either 163 or to 300 induced jobs. And again, two economic reports, one by the county itself verifies that. 475 or 612 total jobs created just by approving the mine. Construction and local contractors with extra work and millions of dollars, $6 million to the county alone per year in property taxes, $240,000 per year to the Ofer Hill Fire Department District, in addition to buying them a new fire engine, which they asked for, and again, which is not required, but is something offered by RISE. $100,000 per year to hire someone at the Air Quality Management District to regulate the mine itself, $88,000 a year to public works, a million dollars to the Ophir Fire Department District, and that's for its new engine, and $258,000 in traffic improvement fees. These are significant numbers. This is a significant project that has very few environmental impacts, that protects its neighbors, that does everything it can to mitigate all the impacts and all the comments from all the public over all the years. This is the project that can change the county for the better. Now, the applicant team is here and is willing and happy to answer any questions you might have. And all the experts here, I know that the, the county's experts are here as well, as well as the applicant team's experts. And you can see here's uh, who they are. We have uh, some people you might want to talk to. Andy Campania, for example, the uh, chief geologist and hydrogeologist, uh, Itasca, Denver as well. And so everyone is here to answer your questions. And so what I would just urge you to do is, again, rise wishes to be the best project it can be to the greatest benefit to the county. And for that reason, urges this commission to make a recommendation of the planning to the Board of Supervisors to adopt alternative two, which is the environmentally superior alternative. Thank you very much. Thank you, Braden. And it's, uh, it's 12 o'clock. What is the, uh, the opinion of the commissioners here um, about pushing through? and uh, having a little later lunch so we can finish uh, any questions that we have. And also, I'd, I'd really like to hear from some of the public before we take a break for lunch. I don't know how you feel about that. Okay. All right, we're going to change the plan, and we're going to take lunch at 1 o'clock uh, in an effort to uh, get you guys uh, up to the podium. But first, uh, I would entertain any questions from commissioners um, based on the presentations today. And I would implore my fellow commissioners to keep it brief so that we can get to, um, to the public. And again, just uh, keeping it, we're, we're, for those of you who presented and, and everybody else, we're, we won't be addressing uh, or asking any questions regarding anything that was received in the in the EIR or the draft EIR process. This is just clarifying uh, based on the presentations this morning. And with that, I would uh, entertain any. Yeah, I, uh, clarification. I also would like to thank staff for the excellent staff report. Yeah, you're I'm not on. Thank you, folks, for reminding me. I didn't want you to hear me sniffing up here. Um, thank you very much for the staff report, Matt. It was very clear and walked us through, um, and I appreciated that, um, the way it was done. I do have one question. It, it, the applicant has said that um, they would conform to modifications to the project to avoid a variance. But then um, they brought up the point on the um, 
shaft that they could have the, um, constructed at 165 feet if it's uninhabited without a variance. Is that, can you clarify for me? Or do I have that wrong? Mr. Chairman, of the Commission, Commissioner Duncan, um, yes, the applicant has indicated that a variance is not required um, and that they can construct the project based on the use permit application that's been submitted, um, being that the, the Brunswick shaft or the, Brun or the head frame would be at 165 feet. Um, this is something that I think I'd want to confer with legal counsel on a little bit and defer to some of them on that question. Um, there is a use permit process that Nevada County Land Use and Development Code outlines, and part of that for a overheight structure would include a use permit. The applicant submitted a variance application for the overheight structure, not in the use permit, is for the use itself with the reclamation plan. So that's something that we would have to look at, and I would defer to counsel on that a little bit, is by removing the variance application, does that change the project itself? And so that's something I think we need to look at a little bit closer and talk about, I think, with counsel on. And is that something that we should uh, kick down the road till tomorrow when you have time to decide uh, the answer? I think that would be appreciated. So is that that's great. Give acceptable? the staff some time Thanks, to Laura. come back. Thanks, Matt. Oh, I do want to address something. Um, I, for clarification, um, Nevada County is unique and special, as evidenced by most of the people in this room. And the comparison to um, variants for the Lone Oak Project and that statement that it's flat, that is unique and it is not normal for Nevada County, especially when you're looking at um, developable sites. So that was definitely an ability to put in multifamily housing, which this community desperately needs. And services, amenities, they're not widely dispersed. So whenever we can get a win in producing um, multifamily housing, uh, flat and amenities is unique. Thank you, Commissioner Duncan. Uh, would anybody like to come in second here on uh, any clarifying questions, Terry? So I have three three questions here before we get to lunch. Uh, could you pull up your slide, your uh, sir, regarding the local funding with the uh, pie graph, if you don't mind? Because unfortunately, Mr. Niehaus and and you have a misinterpretation of school funding. And I, if, if one thing I can talk about, having been the school <laughs> superintendent. I can attest uh, to uh, how schools are funded. So if you don't mind finding that pie chart, I'd really like to clarify that for everyone. Thank you. Thank you for the time. Sorry about this. But it really help, will help everyone. Thank you. So as you can see there by that chart, 55% uh, 
according to this chart of school of tax dollars would go to schools. So I need you to understand that those dollars are essentially sent to Sacramento because of a important uh, court case many years ago so that schools are all equalized. So none of those tax dollars where you said Nevada Union may be getting 700,000 or so, I need you to understand that that's not how schools are funded. Schools are funded, that our dollars come in, and essentially they're shipped to Sacramento, and Sacramento creates this big pool and then divides it up by the millions of kids in the state and then sends it back to Nevada County. So there will be no, and I want to make that clear, there are no tax benefits to schools in this county by this project, okay? So I, I mean that, and not pro or con, that's just the facts of the matter, okay? Thank you. Secondly, and that's Mr. Niehaus got that wrong too, because he, he, he doesn't obviously know school funding. Um, so I'd like to talk about your, your comment about alternative two, that you've sort of shifted to alternative two, is one of the, one of the pros of alternative two was the cleanup of those toxic mine tailings there. Does your alternative going to alt, excuse me, the original was on Centennial would be to, to work with the Water Quality Board and improve that site and all. So my question is, if you go to alternative two now, do, do you not, are you not doing then the cleanup on the Centennial site? Thank you, Commissioner. The answer to that is that the cleanup was never part of this project, actually. The cleanup has a separate track with DTSC and EPA. And so the, the, the part of this project, part of this project that was shipping uh, uh, essentially rock over to that site was a post-cleanup project over there. And so that's what the, the issue was, was that it was trucking the, was trucking the material over there and using it to, as a base to then repurpose that property. But the cleanup as a, was a process, an environmental document's already been, already been issued and, and had public comment from uh, DTSC along a separate course of action. And so, so I'm, I'm still lost. Okay. Is, is the answer, but, is the answer, yes, you, since it's on, you own that property, yes. is, is the answer, you are going to clean up that property on alternative two, or you're not going to clean it up on alternative well, the, the, the point, I guess, I guess my point, so I can be clearer, sure. is this, is that the cleanup of that property is happening regardless. So the cleanup of that property is, is with DTSC and the DTSC CEQA process and not part of this project and never was. I understand that, but okay. I'm hearing that the answer to your yes. question is yes. Yes, that is Thank being you cleaned very up. Much. Yes. And I'd like to turn to you, sir. I, for, I lost your name in the, in the early introductions. Thank you very much for your clarifying such. So my question is, in, in your slide regarding the, the amount of mine rock that's coming out, you had it at 500, and I was, I was under the interpretation that it was 1,500 tons a day coming out of the mine. Is that, is that your understanding? No, that's not my understanding. Uh, thank you for the question. Sure. Um, I don't know if we can get that, that slide up, but uh, the anticipation is 500 tons of barren rock per day. Okay. And then an equivalent amount of uh, mineralized rock. Okay. So 1,000. 1,000. It's not 1,500. Correct. Okay, that's different than... And what about the... My, I thought there was another 500 tons of sand and other stuff that was coming out to help make the paste that would go back in. Is that true? 
Yes, that's going to be a byproduct of the uh, the process plant. That will so, be. So, go on. Excuse, excuse me. Yeah. So that's a byproduct of the processing plant, um, and that will be generated through that and combined with barren rock. So I, I'm again, you know, I'm one of those kind of teachers. I want to make sure I've got this story correct. So 500, 500 uh, tons of, of barren rock is coming out, and then there's also going to be this 500 tons of mineralized rock coming out. Is that correct? And then what's going to happen after the crushing and all, there's going to be some portion of that that's going to be made into paste and shoved back down in the mine. Is that correct? Yes, I, I see the confusion, and, and I apologize because I, I contributed to that. Um, so basically, of in terms of rock, you have the 500 tons of the barren rock that's associated with the tunneling. And yes, 1,000 tons for the ore, that's going to be processed 500 tons of that, which will be end up as sand tailings, right? So you end up having about 1,000 tons a day of engineered fill that's produced. Sorry, I'm still, I'm a, I'm a <laughs> slow learner. So how many tons are coming out of the mine on a daily basis? No matter what they're categorized, how many tons are coming out on a daily basis? 1,500. <laughs> Are you as confused as I am? Yeah, I confused you initially. My apologies. So let's get this square. There's 500 tons of, of mineralized rock, and there's 1,000 tons of other rock. Mm. Correct? Correct. Thank you. I'm done with my questions. Can I follow up on that? Thank you, Commissioner. Yes. Okay, so that comes out, and then it gets stacked up under Alternative 2 on the Brunswick site Correct. as a vegetated hill. So after five to six years, I think was the duration. Is that correct? After five to six years, it stacks up to 60 feet tall? Under the proposed project, it would be about approximately six years on the Brunswick site to reach the design height of that engineered fill pad. So under alternative two, in placing more engineered fill, that would be extending that time frame to approximately 11 years to reach the design height on the Brunswick site. So, so under the proposed project, you're putting some of it on Centennial and some of it on Brunswick. Correct. Correct. But under Alternative 2, you're putting it all on Brunswick. So instead of reaching that height in six years, you should reach that height in two or three years, correct? Because you're putting more on Brunswick? Well, you'd be putting more on Brunswick and extending the time frame almost double to reach the design height. It's almost double the height under the Alternative 2. So in six years, instead of being 60 feet tall, now it's 100 feet tall on Brunswick. Correct. Okay. So after six years, where does that kind of material go after right. that? It gets hauled off to market, the aggregate market. So it's shipped from the Brunswick site to Brunswick Road. 
to the freeway and then out to market. So after six years, then the truck traffic increases, correct? That's correct. So do we have numbers on what that increases to on the state highway trucking? Yes, it's the 100 truck trips per day to haul that material. So that's 1,000 tons of material. That's associated with the engineered field, and you have some additional truck trips. I believe the total is 118 in the traffic chapter, 118 one-way truck trips associated with hauling from Brunswick to the freeway. They don't come back? They do. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's one way. Come on, folks. Well, we're not doing that. Okay, so, um, so, oh, so the 112, it's not 112 trips. trucks, it's, six, it's however many trucks, 65 round trips. That's what Pro I mean. Correct. Okay. Correct. So, um, so then the vegetated hill that remains on site even after the 80 years are over, <clears throat> yes. what yes. kind of vegetation grows in that type of tailing pile? I believe the intent is to plant similar trees that uh, exist out there now in terms of uh, coniferous trees. Will they grow without, I mean, is there some plan to, like, how does it make topsoil? Yeah, and generally, if you plant something in rock, it doesn't do super well. Yeah, it, it will have, a, so it's, it's, the engineered fill is a mix of the sand and the barren rock, so it's a combination, and then they have to, there's a performance standard requirements through the landscape plan that if those trees do not succeed, that they have to make sure and, and replant, resolve the issue, whatever that might be, in terms of ensuring that they, in fact, do survive. Is there a demo plan for the landscaping? Like, is perimeter landscaping, does that all stay and then it gets added to, or it gets demoed and then it gets replanted? The first one, it... It, it stay, it, it, the existing stays around the perimeter. Yes. And that will be shown on the landscape plans, the final plans. Okay. I think those are my most immediate questions. Thanks. Thanks, Commissioner Thank Millman. Sure, Master Donato. Um, thank you, Chair Greeno. Um, I just have a couple of quick questions, um, basically to Matt, um, about the process. One of them... Or the first one, obviously, is in in w one of the um, segments of your presentation. You talked about al alternatives with the number one or the the alternatives listed as four that were considered. Number one being no build, and you mentioned something about that being a requirement. No build is a requirement uh, to be an alternative. It, uh, Commissioner Mastronato, it is. So CEQA requires that one of the alternatives that's considered is the no-build alternative. Um, that's required by CEQA and is considered in all environmental impact reports. Great. And you also mentioned that there, or there were listed four um, alternative, alternatives that were considered, and five, I believe, that were dismissed. Um, just kind of really briefly walk me through that process of uh, what would determine or predicate that five identified alternatives would be dismissed. 
So in CEQA, and I'll, I'll defer some of this to Nick um, for the EIR, in CEQA you have to consider alternatives that are reasonable um, for the project, and so it also has to make the project be able to be viable. Um, and so in, included in the draft EIR was a number of alternatives that were looked at, and I'd have to go back to the draft EIR to give you the specific exact ones that were dismissed, um, and I would probably defer to Nick on some of those. Um, but if they're not considered viable or considered a um, considered to make the project work, then they would be considered dismissed by by CEQA, and then I would defer to Nick on some of that too. Thank you. Yes, Commissioner. Uh, so in terms of it's pretty, it's routine in CEQA review to look at uh, a whole host of alternatives, and oftentimes some of those kind of drop out from the full analysis. So you, it oftentimes will have in an EIR alternatives that were considered at some level and then dismissed. And, and what we typically look for there is, does the alternative meet the intent of CEQA? And there's some specific requirements, one of which would be, does the alternative meet most of the basic objectives of the project? So that's kind of an initial check in terms of, well, let's build a, a, a you know, multi-story residential project that clearly doesn't meet the objectives of, of the basic objectives of the project. So that's one consideration. Um, another consideration is that an alternative does have to reduce, um, uh, avoid, or substantially lessen one or more of the project's significant effects. And so sometimes, you know, when we look at alternatives, we, we come up with something that that you know looks looks palatable, but when we start kind of considering, well, what are the impacts that it would have? Um, would it be lesser or greater than the project? And so, alternatives that would not uh, avoid or substantially lessen a project's significant impacts will kick them out, so to speak, and, and we'll we'll exclude them from the full alternatives analysis. So that's kind of what we did. We looked at you know five other alternatives that we said, well. They either don't meet the basic objectives of the project or they don't really reduce the impacts of the project and so they don't meet the requirement for CEQA. Thank you. Um, and then finally, uh, because this is a new I mean, I've been, you know, involved with the commission now for two and a half years and um, I'm kind of used to the process. And I have to say and ask for clarification on the staff report in general. I mean, I'm used to seeing a project or an issue that staff reviews and makes a recommendation. This one gave us a multiple choice recommendation. Um, and for me, personally, it's the first time I've seen that. Not to say, I'm sure it's happened before. Um, but yeah, um, so I'm wondering what the, you know, what's behind that? Is it the, just the grand scope of this project or is there a reason for that? Uh, Commissioner Maestro, there is. So um, what we wanted to do is, you know, there are consistencies and inconsistencies with the project, um, as included are in the staff report. Um, the staff's recommendation is use recommendation A, but we wanted to be fair to the project um, and to be to present the full project as it's proposed. Um, so there, to be fair to the project, there being that there are consistencies that the project could be found to be made, there is a recommendation of approval as, as recommendation B. 
Um, it's it's true that, that staff does not do that very often where to have multiple recommendations. Um, the staff recommendation that's included in the staff report is recommendation A. Um, but to, like I said, to be fair to the project and to present the full project to the commission for consideration, we chose to do multiple recommendations to be able to have analysis for both considerations. Thank you. That answers my questions, and that's it for me. Thank you, Commissioner Mastrovinato, and thank you, Matt, Nick, Braden, and Ben, for those presentations. If we could line up the first 10 folks uh, who would like to provide testimony, public testimony, and then we will be breaking for lunch. So we will hear 30 minutes worth uh, before, we, uh, before we break. And as you, uh, as you, again, come down this side to the podium, exit backwards, and then, uh, and then out the door over to my left over here. And um, please give us your name when you take the podium. And then again, uh, after those 10, we will break. So as far as 11 through 270, <laughs> we'll do that after uh, 2 o'clock. And are we ready? I'm burning time here. Are we ready? We can go to number two. We can go to number two. You'll still have your spot. Just trying to be efficient with everyone's time here. Thinking we after lunch. Pull that microphone down a little bit. There you go. Okay. My name is Lori Oberholzer. I live in Nevada City, District One, and um, today I'm representing the CEA Foundation Board, which has organized the Mine Watch campaign that has shown up today. Over the uh, past three years, thousands of residents and business leaders have voiced their opposition to the mine. And I think we have, I, maybe at some point later today, we'll unveil a wonderful graphic that we have of, of uh, hundreds of the faces of those people uh, that, uh, that have come out in, in opposition to the mine. We'll show you that later. Um, during these three years, 5,500 people signed the No Mine petition. And uh, we'd like to resubmit that today to you. This is a compilation, a, um, it's sort of a compressed list of all the 5,500 people. And there's a, there's a box outside, actually, at the end of your presentation uh, for any submittals. Yeah, the, so we're actually taking it outside. Sorry, I didn't mention that before. Okay, so I'll just keep them. Yep. Um, and during those three years, um, 1,500 people also took the time, well, with these petitions, 1,500 people took the time to um, add personal notes to, to their petitions, and we're going to resubmit those to you today also. And for this hearing alone, 1,150 people wrote letters of opposition which we also brought with us today, and that's the big stack right there. Um, and then we have a whole bunch of postcards. A thousand of these have been sent in to you folks. They've been emailed to you. And um, the pile that we have here is just those that have come in since the Wilden Circle Film Festival. Thank you very much, Circle, for featuring us during that festival. Um, our mine opponents have also written 
202 very smart and entertaining op-eds. Um, and uh, that was accurate as of yesterday, 202. Uh, the, there's, the whole county is peppered with hundreds of the no mine signs, and uh, uh, the list goes on and on. But finally, there are hundreds of volunteers that for the past years have worked so hard to defeat this gold mine that we do not need that would harm a place that we all worked so hard to protect. So many of these speakers will, um, these folks will be here today, and uh, we are asking you clearly that you just say no to the mine and no to the EIR. Only turning down both the mine and the EIR will defeat this mine for good. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. And you can just leave that stuff here for now, and then we can haul it out at lunch, if you don't mind. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Hi, my name is Lauren Techberry. I live in Grass Valley, about a mile and a half from the proposed mine site. I work for Sierra Club, and I also volunteer with the local Sierra Nevada Sierra Club group. And I come before you today on behalf of CEA Foundation to present the Mine Watch Coalition Letter of 27 organizations, including local, state, and national groups. Um, we weren't able to bring them in, but we will bring them in to you afterward. Uh, the groups who have signed onto this letter are all concerned about the long-lasting environmental impacts that mine would have on our community and the inadequacy of the FEIR. These groups are, and I will read them, Community Environmental Advocates Foundation, the Sierra Fund, South Yuba River Citizens League, Wolf Creek Community Alliance, Wells Coalition, Patagonia, California Native Plant Society, Redbud Chapter, Sierra Foothills Audubon Society, Sierra Club Nevada Group, uh, Sierra Club, Center for Biological Diversity, Friends of Bear River, Sierra Streams Institute, Nevada County Climate Action Now, Elders Action Now, Friends of Banner Mountain, Brunswick Pine Road Association, Brunswick Manor HOA, San Juan Ridge Taxpayers Association, Earth Justice Ministries, Earthworks, Fly Fishing International Northern California Council, American Rivers, Nevada County Sunrise, Sierra Watch, Mountain Area Preservation, Nevada County Rancheria, and our most recent coalition member, Truckee Mountain Area Preservation Foundation. Whew, that's a lot of names on that list, 27 of them. And behind all 27 of those organizations are thousands of concerned Nevada County residents and voters who have opposed the mine over the past three years and continue to oppose this mine. So we respectfully request the county deny the approval of the Nevada County mine and not certify the FEIR. There's no adequate economic justifications for the mine. It's inconsistent with the Nevada County general plans to protect mineral resources, and the environmental impacts are severe and would cause irreversible damage to our community, and including air, land, water, and wildlife. And don't do it just for us for every single one of us in this room, but do it for our next generation. The next generations, our kids, our kids' kids, because they should be able to enjoy this land, the foothills, just as it is today. So on a personal note, I moved here in 2020 looking for refuge in the foothills. I so happens to be a mile and a half from the new site. Um, I moved here because of the community and its beauty, and I purchased a homestead to live off the land. And this site is so close, it would affect my own water, my own well. Uh, on behalf of Mine Watch Coalition, 
the community, as well as myself, please just say no to the my. Thanks, Lauren. Hi, my name is Greg Thrush. I've lived in Grass Valley for 17 years. I'm here on the behalf of uh, CEA Foundation. And today I'd like to, my comments will be about mine waste and water pollution. Okay, thank you. Um, the final ER for the mine fails to address the potentially significant impact of mine waste disposal. The mine plants output 1,000 tons of sand tailings and waste rock per day. The mine waste all will be dumped onto two engineered fill sites over the course of the first 11 years. It sounds like it'll be less than that now. All after that, the mine plans to dispose of it through off-site sales. There are significant issues with the disposal of mine waste due to the potential to pollute ground and surface waters by leaching hazardous chemicals, something that didn't get discussed much. This falls under the jurisdiction of the Regional Water Quality Control Board. The Water Board classifies mine waste by groups A, B, and C. Only group C, which has relatively low levels of contaminants, is clean enough to be used for off-site sales. Uh, the Water Board requires mine waste testing to determine classification. RISE Gold did over 76,500 linear feet of exploratory drilling, yet they chose to test only 11 feet to characterize what will be potentially over 25 million tons of waste rock. Think about that. In the draft ER, the Water Board and numerous other parties identified insufficient testing to determine whether the mine waste would be Group C suitable for off-site sales. I quote the Water Board comments, the alternative scenario that the mine waste is not suitable for off-site use should be explained, examined. The Water Board goes on to state that RISE would, should access any uh, constraints or challenges associated with waste disposal in case they can't do off-site sales for construction of aggregate. The Water Board concludes by saying the draft ER should be revised to address this comment. Um, however, no further testing was done and alternatives were not assessed in the final ER as suggested. As a result, the Water Board is requiring continuous mine water testing, waste testing, and per additions to the ER, the new Project now contains the following restriction. The applicant shall not sell or utilize waste rock and tailings from the project for construction aggregate or fill purposes off-site unless such material has been tested and confirmed to qualify as Group C mining waste. CEQA requires that the ER give the public and decision makers the most accurate and understandable picture practically possible of the project's likely near-term and long-term impacts. Clearly, the final EIR should have provided a realistic solution to that. It will happen if the mine waste isn't Group C. Thank you, Craig. Thank you. Hello, my name is Mike Shea. I live in Cedar Ridge on Cedar Ridge Drive. The other side of my backyard fence is the Rise Gold Mine property. The engineered fill is going to start 500 feet behind my house. So if you if just think about it, your house, 500 feet behind your house for 11 years, they're going to be dumping engineered fill. So that's my problem with this mine, or one of the, my problems. So I'd like to continue with some of the comments that Greg made about sand and tailing waste rock. 
Again, you are being asked to approve a project without knowing if any portion of the mine waste will be suitable for off-site sales. And there is no realistic plan for continuing the mine operation if the mine waste can't be sold. The final EIR contains lengthy discussions trying to demonstrate that the mine waste is, quote, likely Group C. Also included are results of selective spot testing on the Centennial site, which is covered with tailings dumped there before 1956. Based on that testing, the final EIR claims that, again, quote, the historic mine waste has been determined to be Group C mining waste. First, the Water Quality Control Board has not made that determination and will likely need more sophisticated testing. Secondly, for over 70 years of weathering and leaching, the tailings at the Centennial site now bear little value for assessing what will come out of the mine now. <clears throat> Those toxic metals and contaminants that will mobilize and pollute have already mobilized and polluted. Currently, the most accurate place to look for estimating whether the mine waste will be Group C is the mine drain. And the water coming out of the mine drain has high levels of arsenic, iron, magnesium, I can't pronounce it, I apologize, and zinc, which is definitely not Group C. The final EIR response relies on speculative and inadequate provisions for mine waste disposal, stating that the mine rock would not be mined until mine waste characterization has been performed to ensure that the rock will be suitable for off-site sale. Rock types that are not suitable for off-site sale will likely not be mined, and if mined, the waste rock would be placed underground. But keep in mind, mine waste classified as group A and B requires specific management that must be determined by the Water Quality Control Board and cannot automatically be placed underground. Backfilling with waste rock and tailings is the exact scenario which has led to polluted groundwater discharges in so many mines in our area. This new element, the placement of group A and B mine waste underground was not included in the draft EIR. The final EIR is inadequate, and fails to address the potentially significant impact of mine waste disposal and not being able to sell the mine waste. Don't approve this mine. Don't approve the EIR. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Don Ravines from Grass Valley and also the member of the CEA board. The county should deny the Idaho Maryland Mine Project and should not certify the final EIR. The EIR is inadequate in its assessment of greenhouse gas emissions. A valid threshold for greenhouse gas emissions was not set in the EIR. As stated in the EIR, CEQA guidelines allow a lead agency to determine its own thresholds for environmental impacts, including greenhouse gas emissions, and explicitly provides that an agency may consider thresholds adopted by other agencies provided that such decision is supported by substantial evidence. The Northern Sierra Air Quality Management District has not set thresholds for greenhouse gas emissions. So as lead agency, Nevada County simply applied the 10,000 ton year carbon dioxide emission threshold chosen by some other air districts for this project. Nevada County cannot simply assume that the justifications used by other air districts to adopt their thresholds also applies in Nevada County. Hence, the EIR failed to provide substantial evidence required by CEQA by just considering other district thresholds. In fact, the EIR provided no evidence beyond just copying what other districts used. 
But this is doubly wrong because the other air quality districts originally adopted the 10,000 ton threshold to achieve the older 2006 statewide greenhouse gas goal under California Assembly Bill 32, which is no longer consistent with the current statewide greenhouse gas reduction goals. In 2017, the California Air Quality Board Climate Change Scoping Plan stated, achieving no net additional increase in greenhouse gas emissions, resulting in no contribution to greenhouse gas impacts, is an appropriate overall objective for new development. In view of this, the mine's 9,000 ton year of emissions should be considered significant and unmitigated. The AIR should have established a net zero threshold for greenhouse gas emissions for this proposed project. The recent draft EIR for another mine, the analogous Sergeant Ranch Quarry Project within the Bay Area Air District, used a net zero significance threshold for operational greenhouse gas emissions. This EIR should have done the same. This EIR does not explain why the project should be exempted. The county should deny the Idaho Maryland Line project and should not deny, should not certify the final EIR. Thank you. Thank you, Don. <clears throat> Hello. I'm Rob Katzenstein, and I've resided in downtown Grass Valley for about 17 years. I'm speaking on behalf of CEA and the Nevada County Climate Action Now and the Clean Power Co-op of Nevada County. I'll be talking about the FEIR and its relation to the Energy Action Plan. When the Nevada County Board of Supervisors adopted its objectives in 2023, under the Economic Development section, they included the phrase, implement tasks identified in the Nevada County Energy Action Plan, the EAP. The EAP was, adopted, was adopted one year earlier than the mine proposal. Uh, the Nevada County Energy Action Plan is, reduced, is to reduce the projected annual electricity provided in, by 51% and the annual natural gas used by 30% by the year 2035. The Idaho Maryland mine will consume 49,000 megawatts of electricity per year. Um, to put this into perspective, the mine's yearly electrical use is equal to the yearly electrical use of about 5,500 homes, or the combined use of all the businesses in Nevada County. The mine eliminates the results of any energy saving measures that the county will take. Therefore, the Idaho Maryland mine is in direct conflict with the ener county's energy reduction goals. However, the FEIR states, quote, although the EAP is not a qualified greenhouse gas emissions reduction plan under CEQA, the project was nevertheless determined to be consistent with the EAP. This statement is blatantly false. In fact, the mine operation is antithetical to the county's energy action plan. You guys and the Board of Supervisors should ask the question, are we serious about meeting our 2020 strategic objectives? Um, if so, don't approve this FEIR and don't approve the mine. 
Oh, I have 42 seconds left. So furthermore, the EIR fails to correctly identify a valid threshold for greenhouse gas emissions, as Don pointed out, by assuming an outdated 10,000 ton threshold without any substantial evidence. It is also failing to consider current state goals, and it could effectively undo a large part of the goals of the county energy action plan. So in conclusion, and this is putting it mildly, under CEQA, the EIR is totally inadequate. Don't approve this false document. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Hi. My name is David Brownstein. I live in Grass Valley. As you know, airborne asbestos is hazardous to inhale, leading to lung cancer and other diseases. The Idaho, Maryland mine final EIR does not provide enough data to determine the potential impacts of airborne asbestos. And the asbestos management plan, the ASER plan, for preventing hazardous emissions is inadequate. Very limited asbestos testing was done, constituting less than two ten, ten thousandths of the total rock to be mined over the project lifespan. As the Air Quality Board stated, quote, it would be short-sighted to commit to the Azure plan for the entire life of the mine based on the few samples that have been tested so far, unquote. FEIR, page 2-360. The Azure plan was developed to limit emissions but it is a flawed document that fails to provide the needed protections. Under the plan, if the asbestos concentrations on any 1,000 ton lot of mine materials would put the three month rolling average asbestos concentration over a threshold of 0.01%, it would not be allowed to be exported. A key problem is accurate and timely testing. It takes two weeks to get the results. The final EIR has no provisions for stockpiling materials while waiting for results, and no temporary storage on the surface is provided. To avoid the need for stockpiling mined materials, the plan states that exploratory drilling tests will determine what can be mined in advance. Then, grab samples will be taken as the rock is loaded into silos for deployment, but the testing is too sparse. The loading into silos of 1,000 tons of rock requires about 166 six-ton skip loads. This means that the grab test will only capture, on average, about one out of 55 skip loads. And even then, the three grab samples will be mixed together to form one combined test. Examination of how this system may fail reveals that large quantities of mine waste could pass through undetected. And though the ASER plan talks about what happens when the, when the delayed testing shows that the threshold was exceeded, it doesn't actually provide a credible solution or adequate oversight. Finally, it's important to note that all exported mine waste from this mine must be classified as restricted materials, ASER 9.2, page 18. Aggregate suppliers in the region have indicated they do not handle restricted materials because there's no market for them and there already are abundant aggregate sources regionally. In conclusion, 
The final EIR does not provide adequate data on asbestos concentrations and fails to adequately address processing and disposal of asbestos-bearing mine waste. Thank, Thank you. you, David. And uh, for all y'all with uh, written documents, if you haven't submitted those, there is a box outside uh, where they will end up with the clerk. So uh, feel free to put that in there. Well, greetings, everyone. My name is uh, Barbara Ravines, and I live in Grass Valley and in District 3. Um, the final EIR for Rise Gold's Idaho Maryland Mine Project is significantly flawed because it does not include the plans to clean up the Centennial site. Now, I hear today that there has been a jettison of that particular to a giving a new alternative. I'm not exactly clear as to what um, I should take from that because Centennial is an issue that was not fully explored or explored at all, for that matter, in the DEIR and in the final EIR. They claim, uh, as I've heard today from Mr. Uh, Chadwick, that um, it's not something that they were ever planning to do. That is done, in truth, by the Department of Toxic Substance Control. They were to clean up this toxic Superfund site at the behest of the owner, um, the, the Rise Gold. So <laughs> I don't know the answer to Mr. McAteer's question as to whether or not they will move forward with cleaning it up, even though they apparently are not according to today's testimony, not going to be using it. But that was one of the major flaws in, their, in the DEIR, the fact that this was a site that was going to be used as preparation for the mine, for working the mine and putting the tailings there. That needed to be cleaned up first by the DTS, uh, BTSC, and then those tailings placed there. So, and there is an issue of other, uh, there's an issue of how that was to be done, and because that whole process has not been completed at the state level with the DTSC. So, I'm a little, um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm certainly not prepared for this today, and there are many other subjects that one could talk about in relation to the inadequacy of the DEIR and the FEIR. So I would like to just, at this point, urge you to help figure out what is actually going to happen with this project and, um, and to say no to the adequacy on certification of the FEIR and to no mine. Thank you very much. Thank you, Barbara. Hello. Thank you for having me these few minutes to speak. My name is Rick Range. I have been a resident of Grass Valley for 25 years. I'm a retired economic economist with a special interest in the economics of the environment and climate change. Despite all the warnings over the last decades, we have now entered the worst case scenario where nothing of substance has been done to address climate change on a national or international level. It's a simple equation. 
the more CO2 and methane greenhouse gases we dump into the air, the greater the warming of our planet. According to the latest assessments, we have already blown by the original United Nations intergovernmental planning on climate change targets of 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius. 2 degrees Celsius converts to 3.6 degrees. It may seem crazy, but the climate at the Arctic poles drives the worldwide weather outcomes, and ice and the lack thereof is a critical element. The poles are warming. Rick, at, excuse me, we're addressing the final. I'm going to get today? right to this. Okay, thank you. This is my intro, okay? And thank how you. it relates to the mine. Appreciate okay. that. Yes. Unfortunately, California's geographic location is identified as one of them that will be most greatly affected. This is nothing new to us because we have been experiencing it before our eyes. Just imagine what is likely to be headed towards us. Remember those periods of consecutive triple-digit triple heat wave and imagine those occurring with greater intensity and duration. We are now entering years of a strong El Nino in Nevada County. Our atmospheric rivers will be more fierce because of the rising temperatures in the ocean and air above it that will be situated off our coast and driven by an erratic jet stream. In this age of climate uncertainty, self-reinforcing feedback loops can spin out of control and there's no guarantee that we will ever return to the normal patterns of the past we have relied upon. So I respectfully submit that this reality must be a major concern in your consideration to certify this inadequate EIR and approval permit for the Idaho, Maryland mine. Say no to this project. Lesson. In brief, there is a tremendous amount of electricity needed to operate the, this mine. Uh, where is the tremendous amount of electricity needed to operate this mine going to come from and the environmental impact? Thank you, Rick. Thank, thank you. It, 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 it's not being recorded at this point, Rick. Thank you. Good afternoon, my name is John Vaughn, District 3. I'm a 56-year resident of Nevada County, speaking on behalf of CEA. The proposed Idaho-Maryland mine has a significant mine waste problem. A key aspect of the project is disposal of mine waste by off-site sales as aggregate. Aggregate production is a business which requires specific rock sizes and grades depending on the customer's project. Producers must be able to crush, wash, sort, and deliver rock that meets customer specifications. There are at least 20 different types of aggregate produced by regional vendors, and demand varies widely in grade and size. Aggregate producers must produce and stockpile numerous products, each with different markets. The mine proposes to export 1,000 tons a day of engineered fill, a euphemism for sand tailings and barren rock. The fine sand or silt has limited market value. Barren rock will be crushed to, 
quote, approximately six inches, end quote, those two products will fill only a small portion of the aggregate market. To compete in the aggregate market, significant processing of mine waste is required. The mine project assumes engineered fill can be sold as aggregate, but does not include any of the facilities needed for processing and stockpiling. The FAIR falsely assumes the mine can meet the specific demands of the aggregate market without providing a plan for how to store or produce the actual products. Compounding this error, the FAR mistakenly argues that a substantial market exists in the Sacramento region, stating Sacramento has less than 50% of its 50-year aggregate demand currently permitted. It also lists annual demand for Nevada County, Placer County, and Yuba City, Marysville, the FEIR then concludes that, quote, there is a significant market demand for engineered fill, end quote. This is a false conclusion based upon selective excerpts from the Department of Conservation map sheets. In fact, the data shows Sacramento County has enough aggregate for almost 30 years of demand already permitted. Plus, it shows Nevada County, Placer County, and Yuba City, Marysville have enough surplus aggregate to more than meet the 50-year needs of Sacramento County, all already permitted. Furthermore, aggregate demand is low during the winter and storms often shut down ongoing projects. In summary, the aggregates market already has abundant suppliers in the region. It is very competitive. Demand varies significantly by season. And most importantly, mine waste is ill-suited to compete in the aggregate market. Just say no to this faulty EIR and the RISE project. Thank you. Thank you, John. And with that, we will uh, take a break here until uh, we'll say 156. Thank you. Oh. They went back and forth. Okay, and uh, the fire marshal has requested that everyone leave during lunch. Uh, we're going to close the chamber. If we can start taking our seats, we're going to get started here in just a minute. Okay, we're going to call the uh, hearing back to order here. Okay, we're going to have an operational change in the way we uh, in the way we line up. We're actually going to line up the ten at a time back here along the wall. Then you'll file down the middle to the podium, and then you'll file back out and out the door. Um, if you don't already have a chair in the chambers here, please plan to leave after you speak because we're, we're keeping it at capacity. So if there's an open seat, you can grab it, great. But otherwise, um, please plan to head out. And if you are challenged to stand at the podium for three minutes physically, uh, we do have an uh, accessible microphone over here with a seat. Can everybody hear me? We're back. So anybody that needs to sit, right over there. And is Jennifer Hansen? Thank you. Jennifer's going to lead us off here with the NID. I just identified you, so I guess that's good. <laughs> Saves me some of my seconds. Thank you, Chairman, Planning Commissioners, County Staff. My name is Jennifer Hansen. I'm the General Manager, Nevada Irrigation District. 
The district has asked, uh, the district board has asked that I am present today to provide some additional comments that are in addition to the comments we already provided on the draft EIR. Those are probably better articulated in the letter that we had submitted to the county dated May 8th, and I will touch on three very quick topics. We have two basically concerns and one request. Our first concern is related to the groundwater monitoring that will be completed to establish the baseline that will be utilized to determine whether or not any well is significantly impacted during the mine dewatering process. And it currently states in the mitigation that it is only going to be monitored for 12 months. And we do not believe that is an adequate monitoring period to have a, a sufficient baseline established. And the reason being is that groundwater greatly fluctuates based off of seasonal conditions, rain and snow melt. And as such, we do recommend a full three years of baseline monitoring. Secondly, we would like the county to reconsider the 10% reduction in well column um, threshold to determine whether or not a well is impacted. And this is simply because of climate change. One of our large concerns that we're hearing from our own constituency and also a request for connection to our potable water system is related to the fact that climate change has been causing a decrease in groundwater levels. And we are concerned that although the wells are, may still be operational or may just require a simple fix if they're impacted within that zero to 10% level, that paired with climate change may in fact make those wells inoperable. And then lastly, I'll get to the request and make it quick. Um, in our original comments on the draft EIR, Nevada Irrigation District did request that the county require through mitigation a payment of a security bond or some other type of financial assurance in the event that more, that more groundwater wells are impacted due to dewatering activities. This mitigation request was not included in the mitigation in the final EIR. And as such, I'm here today to request that you put that condition into either the conditional use permit or the project's development agreement. The great thing about development agreements, the state legislature did contemplate that they are a useful tool to provide certainty to developers, but they're also, also a useful to, tool to provide certainty to the county as well as to our mutual constituents and that we would have some type of financial assurance if those wells are impacted, that we would be able to connect them to potable water in a timely manner. And with that, I'll thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. <laughs> Hi, my name's Denny, and I live in District 3, and I'm speaking on behalf of CEA, and I'll kind of summarize what CEA has said so far today. Um, in addition to concerns about the market for selling mine waste as aggregate, the mine project does not provide a credible plan to protect people and the environment from exposure to mine waste hazards. For instance, due to inadequate testing, the mine waste has not been classified as Group C by the Water Board, yet only Group C mine waste is safe enough to be sold or stored without restrictions. So it is not even known whether the waste can be stored at the Brunswick and maybe the Centennial sites, let alone whether or not it can be sold off-site. In addition, the final EIR does not include the adequate asbestos testing needed to determine the potential cancer-causing hazard of airborne asbestos. The asbestos management plan sets a limit on asbestos levels, but it is unknown how much of the mine waste will be under that limit. 
And even if most of the mine waste is under the limit, it must be sold as restricted material, which requires strict oversight and scares away buyers. Also, the mine will be exporting 1,000 tons of mine waste per day. Yet, except in the structures which only hold about one day's worth of mine waste, there are no provisions for temporary storage of the waste during those days on which off-site exports are slow or lacking, either due to weather, irregular sales, delayed testing results, etc. In summary, this EIR is a recipe for disaster because the Water Board may not classify much of the mine waste as Group C, the aggregate market is already saturated, mine waste is generally not saleable without further processing, mine waste is generally not saleable because it's a restricted material, and there is no on-site storage for excess mine waste. This EIR does not admit to any of these potential problems nor does it provide solutions for these problems should they occur. As a result, this mine project fails to comply with CEQA in providing the mine's likely near-term and long-term impacts. In no way is this mine ready to be permitted or this substandard EIR ready to be certified. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jenny. Afternoon, commissioners. I'm Jillian Blanchard, I'm with CEA, and I'm also a land use attorney, and I urge you not to certify and to recommend project denial. As commissioners, you have two critical jobs here today. Determine whether the EIR is adequate and make a recommendation on the project. As staff has made clear, this project does not comply with land uses and should not be approved. So why would you certify an EIR for an incompatible project? This contradicts California law, which clearly states that when there is no project, there is no need to certify. And when the document is legally flawed, which it is here, you cannot certify. There is overwhelming evidence on the record, comment letters from technical and legal experts that the EIR does not comply with CEQA. To highlight just a few fatal flaws, the EIR fails to evaluate and mitigate significant impacts related to mine waste, air quality, biological, and well impacts. It illegally relies on future permitting to address significant impacts. It fails to accurately include the Centennial site as part of the project. It also fails to adequately address water supply impacts that will financially ruin your community members, ignoring substantial evidence of hydrologists. Finally, it fails to respond to comments from technical experts calling their evidence speculative with no support, but CEQA requires more. The EIR fails on so many accounts that respectfully, it would be a dereliction of duty to certify this document, which stands as one of the most flawed CEQA documents I've seen in over 20 years of land use practice. Even if you deny this project, certifying the EIR would violate state law and would leave this community exposed to the very real threat that a future developer would come back relying on this deficient document and ram a project through the approval process. If you certify, you'll be perpetuating a nightmare for this community, giving Rise Gold a blank check to come back with a new proposal or sell the property at a high price to a miner to come back and do the same. And we will be right back here in six months or a year with the same frustration and fear. <coughs> Only then we will be stuck with an inadequate EIR. 
The next applicant will claim that the county is bound by this FEIR analysis and mitigation, and you commissioners will have your hands tied by a legally deficient document. This exact thing happened in Lafayette, California, where a developer successfully came back years later to push a housing project based on a seven-year-old EIR. The only way to solve this problem and comply with state law is to deny the project and the CEQA document. We urge you to vote no, to comply with CEQA, to protect this community, and to do your critical job. Just say no, or they will never go. Thank you. Thanks, Julia. My name is Sid Brown, and I've been a resident and homeowner in District 1 since 1983. I commuted to Sacramento from 1983 to 2013 for my job as senior engineering geologist for California State Parks. For most of my career, I was the only geologist in the entire department, and my expertise was always in high demand. I have dealt with abandoned mine issues throughout my career, and I've witnessed repeated attempts to revive gold mining here in Nevada County. I submitted comments on the draft EIR and eagerly awaited the issuance of the final EIR. I was sorely disappointed at the responses to comments, which I waded through at the lonely black corner of the Madeline Helling Library. The seemingly endless three ring binders yielded a bleak picture of analysis with the master response, quote, many public comments submitted on the Idaho Maryland Mine DEIR are outside the scope of CEQA, and thus do not require a specific response from the county, end quote. The document is simply inadequate despite its many volumes and fails to meet acceptable standards for project evaluation and mitigation. I would like to reiterate my concerns over several specific issues. Empire Mine State Historic Park has experienced ongoing issues inherited from legacy mining impacts and even with the relatively deep pockets of the state and the commitment to improving environmental conditions, negative impacts associated with water, toxic chemicals, subsidence, and collapse remain today, long after the active mining pursuits have ended. The proposed project would have significant and unavoidable impacts to the park, from underground plumbing effects to noise and aesthetics. Groundwater and surface water are inextricably linked, and the subsurface complex geology of fractures and faults render the transport paths of fluids unpredictable. Our community is steeped in gold mining history and legacy impacts we continue to struggle with. While the mining activities soften with time and through the lens of nostalgia, modern techniques are at odds with an economy based on tourism and environmental quality. I strongly recommend that the Planning Commission make the determination that the proposed project is a non-starter, that the FEIR is not an adequate document, and that it fails to adequately address and offer feasible mitigations for the unavoidable and unacceptable negative environmental impacts. Save our community and the additional time and expense to carry forward additional oppositions to a project virtually no one wants, save for the gold-fevered investors and the rise gold principles. The county is peppered with say no to the mine signs, protect our air quality and quality of life. Thank you, Sid. Thank you. Yeah, we're not doing that, folks. If you want to remain in the room, we have to respect the, the uh, decorum. Um, 
County staff and County Council. Uh, I'm Jim Baer, uh, resident of Grass Valley and leader of the Stop the Mind Task Force. And uh, after years of research, I conclude that if you recommend certification of this FEIR, you will be approving a number of things. And I have a list. Number one, the FEIR citations of case law that are not able to justify the removal and ex exclusion of critical components of mitigation measures. In other words, in seven places throughout the FAIR, they explicitly state, based on law, oh, we don't have to give you the details. Number two, the delegation of asbestos pollution management to an understaffed agency that does not accept the measurements in the FAIR, something else you would approve. Today, we heard that there is someone that might be hired by the mine, perhaps through the county, perhaps through the uh, Air Quality Management District, who would be an inspector. And I question, who would they be responsible to? Who would pay their salary? Number three, the surreptitious withdrawal of an official comment on the DEIR by the Northern Sierra Air Quality Management District. And it detailed inadequacies in the mitigation of asbestos, including the impossibility of generalizing from the asbestos content in rock to airborne asbestos. Number four, the scientifically unsound measurement and mitigation of naturally occurring asbestos, despite that in the laboratory there have been uh, approximately a billion asbestos fibers per gram, think about that for a minute, per gram of asbestos in the test samples. So that is a lot to deal with. And they, uh, for just for comparison, I have a, a penny as 2.5 grams. So imagine the density of asbestos that is going to be in the rock coming out of the mine. Number uh, five, the continued treatment of asbestos as dust when government agencies define dust particles to be 10 to 20 times larger than asbestos fibers and therefore cannot be managed as dust. Number six, the release of approximately 7 million pounds of airborne toxins into our air. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Good afternoon. My name is Ray Bryars. I've been a resident of Nevada City since 1984 with a 20-plus year career at Grass Valley Group. I'm speaking on behalf of CEA. The California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, does not allow the deferral of important studies necessary to characterize a project's impacts. According to CEQA guidelines, an environmental impact report, EIR, must include an accurate description of a project's environmental setting. This provides the baseline physical conditions by which a lead agency determines whether an impact is significant. This baseline should describe physical environmental conditions 
as they exist at the time the notice of preparation is published. This means before the draft EIR is prepared. Per sequel guidelines, the purpose is to give the public and decision makers the most accurate and understandable picture practically possible for the project's likely near-term and long-term impacts. Court case of Save Our Peninsula Committee versus Monterey County Board of Supervisors affirmed the point. Without a determination and description of the existing physical conditions on the property at the start of the environmental review process, the EIR cannot provide a meaningful assessment of the environmental impacts of the proposed project. The final EIR specifies that this baseline is needed for wells. It states that for each domestic well, a projected and seasonally average water level shall be estimated. Sadly, the EIR wrongly defers the collection of the needed additional groundwater data until after the EIR is approved. Unless the EIR identifies current groundwater levels, it cannot establish performance criteria and evaluate how dewatering may impact wells. There is no current data that could tell the impact, what the impact would be to well owners. Sequel law, county precedents, and common sense all say the same thing. Collection of current data must be included in the draft EIR to assess impacts and properly mitigate them. They cannot be deferred until after the sequel decision has been made. Current domestic well monitoring data should have been collected and included in the draft EIR. The deficient domestic well data is just one of many examples that show how this EIR is inadequate and should not be certified. Please, please recommend not to approve the EIR. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. Good catch. My name is Steve Temple, and I live near the intersection of um, Highway 174 and um, Brunswick and on the edge of the proposed mine. I retired to, to live in Nevada County after a 40-year career at UC Davis in research and extension education, focused on grain legume breeding and sustainable agriculture. My career focused on developing healthier bean varieties that require fewer chemical pesticides and on agricultural production methods that reduce water needs and dependence on fossil fuels and regenerative soil qualities. I chose to retire to Nevada County because this county has achieved progressive approaches to water and energy management. The demands placed on these two key public resources by the proposed mine are a step backward from the noteworthy efforts of past and current planners and supervisors. Deep rock mining is both extractive and exploitive and as such unsustainable. The enormous demands of the proposed mine on finite resources, resources of quality water and energy are staggering and in themselves reason to reject the EIR and mine outright. Our recent cycles of drought, followed by numerous atmospheric rivers, this winter should serve as a warning. 
Furthermore, the EIR does not address in detail the impacts the mine would have on what we in sustainability research call ecosystems or environmental services. These services include air quality, water quality and quantity, regenerative soil properties, and plantscapes that benefit current and future ecosystems and generations. Several articles to the Union have described excellent alternative uses for the land where the proposed mine would operate. All of those suggestions offer ecosystem services that the proposed mine would never hope to produce and in fact will degrade or seriously imperil. I urge you to not certify the shallow, short-sighted EIR based on inadequate mitigation measures and missing information and the proposal to reopen the mine. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Good afternoon. My name is Christy Hubbard, and I live in District 3. I'm one of the organizers of the Wells Coalition, a group of well owners and residents near the mine. Uh, our purpose is to protect our only source of water, our wells. Today, I'm here to present a group letter signed by the very people who have the most to lose in this, if this project is approved. It's signed by over 200 well owners and represents 125 properties. Um, the vast majority of which live within roughly a half mile of the mine, of the mine's mineral rights, I should say. Um, this letter asks the county to reject the FEIR and vote no on the project. Huge risks are not being addressed, making this project completely unacceptable for well owners in the area. The final EIR asserts that stronger mitigations and or financial assurances are, quote unquote, not necessary because no significant impact to domestic water wells are predicted. <laughs> but a prediction is only an educated guess, not a certainty. And in this case, it's based on an analysis that has serious flaws. You heard a little bit about that from CEA today. The stakes are just too high to get this wrong. A review of the county's economic impact report revealed this project is unprecedented in its proximity to so many homes. Pumping over a million gallons a day from an area with hundreds of wells is a huge risk. Um, if predictions are wrong, it could cost the county, NID, and individual homeowners, homeowners tens of millions of dollars and years or decades to connect a permanent water supply to each property. Claiming no significant impact defies both science and common sense. In comments from other Wells Coalition members today, you'll be hearing how this alarmingly inadequate FEIR lacks the baseline data needed to make the mitigations compliant with CEQA. This FEIR provides no procedure, no funding guarantees, and no independent oversight of the means by which the replacement of a permanent water source could be provided in a timely fashion for well owners beyond 30 properties. Nor does it provide a mechanism by which we can concre concretely say uh, whether or not a well has been impacted by mine dewatering. Without such information, there is no way to hold the, uh, the, the mine accountable. I'm wrapping up here and we'll be leaving copies of our letter <clears throat> with the clerk. In addition for your final co consideration, we're providing a map showing where our well owners live, as well as an at-a-glance handout that we put together uh, that compares the FEIR's com claims 
versus the enormous gaps, the things that they've promised versus what really needs to be done. Our final message is simple. Please reject the FEIR and vote no on the project. This project is completely unacceptable for well owners in the area. Thanks, Christy. Thank and again, for anybody that has submissions out in the lobby, there's a box that staff can help you find if you can't locate it yourself. Hello, my name is Bob Hubbard. I live in District 3 and I am a member of the Wells Coalition. Regarding the final EAR and protections for Wells, Nevada County's general plan policy 17.12 states that the county shall require the operator to guarantee a comparable supply of water. The only comparable supply of water if we lose our wells is NIG service. Any other option, such as the trucked-in water or storage tanks the FEIR describes, would be a burden on property owners and severely devalue their properties. One of the mitigations in the well mitigation plan states that it could include an extension of NID potable water to any wells that could be impacted. That's a big promise with no evidence to study that it is even feasible. Therefore, the FEIR fails to meet both CEQA and general plan policy in that it does not demonstrate how or if the applicant could feasibly supply NID service. This alarms me <clears throat> as my well is essential for my home to be livable and also to maintain its value. Other than the 30 designated wells along East Bennett Road, this final environmental impact report provides no feasible mitigation measure for connecting impacted wells to water service. <clears throat> that means no additional wells identified as needing mitigation, no water supply assessments by NID, no infrastructure design plans in place, no permitting, acquiring easements, or rights of way, no timetable, no enforceable remedy for impacted well owners. But most importantly, no financial assurances for the design, construction, and bringing service to impacted well owners. NID has asked for a $14 million bond, but the FAIR dismisses the request, stating a bond for connection of water supply infrastructure in this area is not necessary. The FAIR ignores the risk to our wells from pumping over a million gallons a day from the mine for the life of the project. Where is the guarantee that the general plan policy requires? Where is the proof of feasibility the sequel requires? If the mitigation is not feasible, it is not an enforceable remedy for impacted well owners. If you look at the language in the final environmental impact report, you'll see that it points to the county general plan and its requirement to protect well owners, but it fails to even discuss how the applicant would or could guarantee those protections with NID connections beyond 30 properties. We as homeowners purchase homeowners insurance to guarantee protection for one of our most valuable assets, our home. But the cost of replacing a well with an NID connection is not covered. We call on the... Thank you, Bob.
Good afternoon. I'm Mike Pasner. I'm a farmer from Penn Valley. There are many problems with Rise Gold's proposed reopening of the Idaho-Maryland mine. Yes, there are. My main concern as a Nevada County farmer is the pumping of millions of gallons of water out of the mine for the next 80 years. Rise Gold will be responsible for testing and purity of the water they pump. When the mine fails in their testing, this poison water will go through NIDs, Nevada Irrigation Districts, canals, and reservoirs. This is the water I have farmed with for 37 years. There are many other local ranches and farms relying on this water. Who will be held liable? The Canadian Gold Mining Company, Nevada Irrigation District, Nevada County, Grass Valley, me the farmer, or you the rancher? We don't need this problem and it should not be allowed to happen. The county should deny the Idaho-Maryland mine project and should not certify this flawed environmental impact report. Thank you, Mike Pasner, Indian Springs Organic Farm. Thank you, Mike. Good afternoon. My name is Linda Lanzoni. I live in District 3, and I am speaking on behalf of the Wells Coalition. My home of almost 29 years is among the 378 properties that qualify for the domestic well monitoring program described in the final EIR. I am here today to ask you to deny this project and not certify an FEIR that throws well owners like me under the bus. In draft EIR comments, expert reviewers identified numerous defects in the groundwater model. For example, the FEIR replies, relies on sparse patches of well monitoring data from over 15 years ago. This is inadequate under CEQA because current baseline data is needed to assess potential impacts to groundwater prior to determining mitigations. The final EIR dismissed these concerns but agreed that more data is needed for validating the model. Current well performance data is key to establishing water quality and determining well when a well has gone down or doesn't recharge quickly enough. It is also the linchpin in determining what threshold should be used to determine whether an impact is significant. Legal and hydrology experts call the final EIR's choice of a 10% drawdown in water level arbitrary and invalid. The final EIR's addition of a domestic well monitoring program is a feeble attempt to address the missing baseline data, but it does little to ease my concerns or those of well owners who were excluded from the program because they live in NID-served areas. Instead of following CEQA and collecting data before evaluating the project, this program promises data after the project is approved and won't collect the well performance data the county needs. 
Monitoring is scheduled for only 12 months and takes just one water quality sample, which does not account for seasonal or year-over-year -year variations. Experts who commented on the draft EIR tell us a minimum of three years are needed to collect valid water quantity data, and water quality should be tasted at least one twice a year. This program expires five years after dewatering and provides no protection for accidents that could occur in future years as the mine operation expands. The bottom line is that well owners are being told to trust that nothing will go wrong with their water supply for 80 years based on assumptions and speculation. This final EIR compounds this uncertainty. I respectfully request you just say no to the final EIR. It completely fails to protect well owners like me. Thank you. <laughs> Linda, thank you. And Linda, um, are you number 20? 20. Okay. Yes. And do we have 21 through 30 lined up? Good afternoon. I'm Jill Shoemaker. I live in District 3 on Lower Colfax Road. I'm a member of the Wells Coalition. Thanks to listen, for listening to us today. The nearly 2,600 acres of mineral rights where mining operations can come within 200 feet of the surface extends into my neighborhood. In fact, the boundary runs along the east side of my property. While neighbors around me are included in the FEIR's domestic well monitoring program, I am not. That means RISE will not be collecting any baseline data for my well. So my only protection is the well mitigation plan in the FEIR, which fails to hold RISE Gold accountable. The FEIR's most concrete promise to impacted well owners is this, quote, if water supply to a property is disrupted for an appreciable amount of time, greater than a day, a temporary water supply will immediately be provided to the property using water tanks. Close quote. Really? This language does not hold the operator accountable for any time frames for fixing wells or providing a permanent water supply replacement. In fact, all decisions about fixing wells or replacing water are left solely up to the mine operator. And RISE would take action only if the 30 monitored well locations in the official groundwater monitoring program flag an impact. It makes no commitment to use the data from the 378 wells in the domestic well monitoring program to flag an impact. So even if my neighbor's monitored well has a problem, let alone mine, no, RISE has no commitment to actually use that information to act. If the mine were to reopen, a separate oversight committee must be required. This committee would determine impacts to well owners, resolve disputes, provide professional analysis of monitored data, assure a timely execution of mitigations, and administer fines or corrective notices. Both the 96 Emperor Gold and the 2008 M-Gold mining proposals included forms of independent oversight. This FEIR does nothing but leave the oversight to rise. I'm concerned about the risk to my well and those of my neighbors. We've been told that our property values have likely already declined on the possibility of the mine, and that should we try to sell today, the risks of the mine must be disclosed. We're already challenged with storm recovery, increased wildfire risk, and home insurance non-renewals. Are we really going to add the risks to our wells and declining property values to this list? I respectfully request that you just say no to the project 
and to the final EIR. It is not in line with Nevada County General Plan Policy 17.12. It completely fails to provide adequate accountability or any viable plan for mitigation for well owners at risk. My neighbors and I thank you. Thank you, Jill. Good afternoon. My name is Eric Gibbons and I live in District 3. I've lived and worked and raised family here in Nevada County since 1991. In other words, I'm still a newbie here. I'm speaking on behalf of Daniel Ketchum of Grass Valley, who could not be here today. Mr. Ketchum is a senior right-of-way professional, senior residential appraiser, and a designated member of the Appraisal Institute and International Right-of-Way Association, who has done extensive consulting regarding easements and right-of-way for NID. Both Daniel and I are members of the Wells Coalition. The final EIR is deeply flawed and should not be certified. One of its most egregious faults is the assumption that risk to local wells can be easily mitigated by connecting them to NID. The language in the FEIR clearly dismisses the enormous complexity and very long time frames involved. The FEIR commits to providing NID connections to 30 properties along East Bennett Road, and more generally, to any other impacted well, but denies the need for financial assurances or plans for connecting to NID, and yet the proposed Connections to the 30 properties are not feasible as written. I'd like to take a moment to help you understand the complexity, which coincidentally serves as a cautionary tale for the hundreds of other wells in the area. According to NID Water Service Regulations, Section 10.09, water connections to NID must front on an NID water main. If you review the East Bennett Road parcel maps in the FEIR, you will find that there are approximately 15 to 20 of the 30 identified parcels that do not front on East Bennett. All parcels without the required frontage would have to petition NID to obtain a variance, with no guarantee that a variance will be provided or how long it will take. Additionally, all meters at, are set at the street. Each property owner must extend a private service pipeline from the meter to their property. This presents two serious issues. One, some parcels have a significant elevation gain from the meter to their home, which may require a pump to ensure sufficient water pressure. A pipeline and pump require installation, and the pump consumes electricity. None of these issues and associated costs are considered in the FEIR. And two, these private service pipelines may require easements along roads or across neighboring properties, many of which may not exist at this time. NID requires legal access to be demonstrated, and there is no guarantee the required easements will be granted by other parcel owners. Think about how these issues would play out for the other 378 property owners identified in yeah, thank you, Eric. Tension and anger in this room. My name is Teresa Youngman. I live in District 4. I have lived in Nevada County since the mid-1970s. 
I'm also your Nevada County Farm Service representative. I am 100% behind the reopening of the Idaho Maryland Mine Project. My husband, Ron Youngman, is a native, born and raised in Nevada County. Ron worked for the Manzanita Mine for his cousin, Sonny McLeod, and his father, William Youngman, worked for most of the mines in Nevada County. Reopening the Idaho Maryland Mine will be the best sustainable and green mine in the USA. The Idaho Maryland Mine will be the, oops, sorry, I read that, sorry. And of course, bring millions of tax revenue and many good paying jobs to the Nevada County. People are scared of the water from the mine. When they get finished with the water, it will be better water than which flows in our NID ditches at this time. There is no fish, frogs, or anything living in the NID ditch in my area anymore. When the Idaho Maryland mine reopens, I will be the first one in line to drink the water out of the mine. I would not have a problem going to the Idaho Maryland mine or working for the company. We need to think of our future and our grandchildren and our great grandchildren's futures. It's like a, right up there, there's a gold miner. I urge the Nevada County Planning Commission to pass, to please support the Idaho Maryland project for now and for our future. Let's get back to our roots in Nevada County. Mining is Nevada County roots. Thank you for your time and your consideration. Thank you, Teresa. Good afternoon. My name is Cindy Anderson. I'd like to address not only our board here, but everyone in the room. I've lived here since 1965, um, still in the same house that I grew up in, and I sit on top of the North Star Mine. Um, I grew up here and was involved in the timber industry. I actually worked at the Brunswick Sawmill as a log scaler out in the yard. The water that they used on the um, log decks probably far exceed what they would extrude out of this mine. Um, you know, it's, it, to, to work in the timber industry was something that brought this community together, taught you values and ethics and what was right and wrong. Everybody stuck together. I think that there is a lot of tension in this room just due to the fact of personal opinions. We need to be open-minded and looked at the facts of everything that is here. The, I think Terry will also attest to this, even though maybe not all of our taxes would go right directly to our schools, it still benefits our whole state with our school systems. I believe that this project should be approved. I'm 100% behind it. I think we need to look at this for future generations, for our children, our grandchildren. We can work and stay within our community and make a good wage. Since the sawmills went away, I have not made as much money as I did out there at that time. It was a very good quality of life. I mean, I just, I just feel as though it really brought this community together. I think this, this mine project, because it is already established here, and there is the Right to Mine Act that supports this federally, and I believe that there are stipulations for, for this, but um, you know, you just have to comply. You have to make it work. It's just like a marriage or a relationship. 
I just personally think that this is a very good project for this area. Whether you're dealing with the water project, there is always a resolution. Myself, I ran the gas pipeline from the fairgrounds out past Orion on my own, and it took me a year to do this. Granted, it was a big deal, but you know what? It is totally 100% attainable to do a water line through this whole whole project. I don't think people need to be worried about, um, you know, the amount of water that's here. There is such a such an abundant amount of water in this community. 500 miles of tunnels, which means you can drive from here to Los Angeles with tunnels full of water. It's it's just incredible. There's a reason they call where the hospital sits Spring Hill. So I am in 100% absolute. Totally, I would go to work for this company and work in, in this mine. Thank you very much for listening, and you all have a good day. Thank you, Cindy. I'm ringing in my ears, so I might speak loud. Can everyone hear me? Hey, my yes. name is Eric Feldheim. I'm going to go with statistics of who I am. Eagle Scout, father of two Eagle Scouts. I do a good turn daily every single day. I work about 100 hours a week. I have a 10-acre ranch on Greenhorn Road. Been there 34 years. You look at my hands, they're all beat up. I've worked on my well many, many times. We have gardens, we have trees, we have a beautiful property. And so we are very, very concerned about this mine, this mine going in. When I heard them, I'm going to do different subjects than we've been talking about, some of this data. I'm going to talk about their presentation. I'm going to talk about their integrity. Because as a bartender, I'd served 1.7 million drinks. I was a manager, of, and I hired and fired so many people. I was supposed to read them in seconds, and also if I was going to serve someone a drink. So when I hear them speak, I get ding, 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 ding bells automatically when I'm going, there's something wrong here. I feel like they're a used car salesman. They're trying to sell us on this idea. They're also another term when they had all the, the things that there were giveaways, I kind of call those bribes, that they're trying to bribe you, looking at some of your special interests, giving money away to, to try to get you to give an affirmative for this mine. I could see that they gave the best scenario for the, doing the mine. And, but let's look at like Lake Wildwood. They also wanted to have a great project there with Lake Wildwood, but look at what's happened. You smell. What do you smell? All, all sorts of things, and it doesn't work so well, does it? One thing that's never been addressed, and it's the most important thing, the most valuable thing that all the gold cannot buy. We have not talked very much about the trucking, trucks going down Brunswick. 112, I don't care if it's one. Who's going to answer if one kid is killed? One kid is killed by those trucks. You heard, you saw what happened to PG&E when they did some negligence. They were, they were up for manslaughter, some of those people. So the, the, the responsibility sits on your shoulders, and we thank you for being and doing that. Everyone is accountable at the chain and we look to you for that accountability. The very first thing I would do is if I was going to interview someone like you or, or look at where you're going to make a decision, 
is I would look at where you live. That's critical because do you have a personal interest in what's going to happen with this mind? If people that are making decisions don't live in wear clothes, they may not be so interested in what happens. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Planning Commission. My name is uh, Chris uh, Snyder, and I'm with the Operating Engineers Local 3. A lot of people think I'm with the company. I'm not with the company. I've had some interesting comments for me today. Uh, but we have uh, talked to the company. We've also worked with the, the, with, uh, the county before. And what the Operating Engineers does, we're here for men and women. We fight for workers, workers' rights, uh, we, their pensions, uh, and a good quality of life. And um, I'm here to urge you to uh, approve the EIR uh, and, and to go to the next level. But I'm really here to, to ask the community uh, and the company and the county to work with us because we have over 300 members that work here. Uh, we have a training facility outside of Sacramento with 2,000 acres where we train uh, about a three-year apprenticeship program, three to four years. And those jobs are the kind of jobs that we're looking at, over $100,000 a year, these jobs we take folks from the community a lot through we work with the workforce investment board pre-apprenticeship programs get them into our program to train them on this kind of stuff mine equipment excavation um drilling um all the all the things that make us safe and uh it's a very safe mine uh we represent uh my local represents um in nevada this county the city or the uh the state of nevada uh the newmont gold mines and on a global uh global uh basis we have the safest uh, work culture uh, on the planet um, other minds actually go there to study the the kind of work culture we have with the operating engineers there so we know how to do this we're here to partner uh with 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 uh rise we're here to partner with the county and we're here to partner with the community and i believe with my whole heart uh that a, a good job with the pension and benefits uh here in this county uh is a benefit to, to everybody and um i've been doing this a long time and uh, when folks, when we can do stuff locally, it's better for the environment instead of folks always having to travel into SAC and out of, out of, out of area to work. So uh, we want to see these jobs here. I actually had about a dozen members reach out to our union to come and support this. And so a bunch of our folks are here today with the, with the union. So uh, when we fight, we win. Uh, workers' rights and safety and good jobs and good benefits. And that's what it's all about for me. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. My name is Christy Barden. I live in District 1 on land has a well that I bought about 1980. I'm here to talk about the potential release of mercury toxins. This comment addresses potential mercury con uh, contamination and deficiencies in the IEIFR Master Response 4. Department of Taxa of Toxicity of Toxic Substance Control, the T, the DDSC, is planning a toxic waste cleanup at the Idaho Maryland Centennial site now owned by Rise Gold. The former Hap Warnke Lumber Mill location on this site. The land in which this mill sits is identified as a potential ecology concern because it contains discernible amounts of mercury taxon 
which, which uh, exceeds the DTSC standards for safety. The DTCSD is not planning to clean up this HAP warning area. However, because the area is currently sealed by a permanently layer of concrete and asphalt, this prevents the deteriorating mercury from being released into the environment. According to the DTSC, as long as a protective layer is not disturbed but remains in place, that's all that needs to be done is a, is a periodic soil sampling to assure that the mercury contains remain low. However, unknown to the DTSC, Rise Gold does plan on developing a portion of the Hapornicki area in dumping its mine waste rock. Included in Rise's plan to develop the area is digging up substantial drainage ditches along the waste's perimeter. But in order to dig this ditch, Rays will have to ignore the DTSC's condition for the mill site cleanup. Instead, Rise will demolish the existing Hapornick Lumber Company structure, evacuate a portion, create a drainage dish, and this may significantly dis, um, disturb the mercury containment in the soil. Not only does it disturb and ignore the DTSD's conditions, but it also is a potential release of mercury toxins into the environment. The, I, the EFI fails to identify the DTSD's condition for cleanup and fails to address the potential mercury contamination of the Wolf Creek and ground water. Here is a pictorial presentation, which I'll put in the box. Thank you. Thank you, Christy. Hello, my name is Michael Taylor. I live in District 1. I'll be straight. I have not read the environmental report to comment on it being either accurate or not accurate. However, I have a lot of, I question the ERA, EIR, simply from just reading the staff report. The staff report created a situation where you have an A choice and a B choice. There is a lot of room in between that for other ideas and other other things to consider before considering um, adopting the, the um, ERI. Um, one of the things that I think that needs to be considered, or what I would like you guys to do, is to do a motion of intent. I would think that alternative four, at a minimum, reducing it by 50%. I think that as part of the 50% being reduced, that, that there's no activity above ground from 7 o'clock at night until 7 in the morning. No visible activity. Um, the other thing I think needs to be considered, they're talking about this highway with, with um, it being for a truck route. The, the, the aggregate that's coming out of either Bear River years ago or Greenhorn currently, comes that scale opens at 7 o'clock and turns off, closes at 3 o'clock. The trucks are not trucking after 3 p.m. I think that we should have trucking limited to 7 o'clock to 3 o'clock, um, Monday through Friday. Also to consider uh, buses for school and people out for school. I think that having this heavy equipment on the road after 3 o'clock is not safe for the community. Something else to consider is that there has been no mention of disposal of asbestos. 
Asbestos comes in veins, and it comes in veins between um, serpentine rock. Um, I've been in construction. I've done rock, uh, removing rock um, here locally in Brunswick. You come across big veins of asbestos. There's no, uh, they haven't come up with a plan to remove piles of asbestos. We're talking huge veins of asbestos that will turn up. The other thing that to consider is the the quarry that was the Hanson Brothers bought, and then now it's uh, the RV place. That that rock that came out of there was not certified by um, Caltrans to be used above ground because of its levels of asbestos. The the mine at Ridge Rock for years didn't have asbestos. I mean, it didn't have rock that was considered adequate to met uh, Caltrans. Um, standards. The other thing to consider that we're going to be putting people out of business down the road when this rock is going to be available for commercial use or for sale. No one's the mountain that's coming out of there will not be able to be sold. It'll be given away. It'll shut down the local businesses, Hanson Brothers or whatever, that actually make money selling aggregate. They'll have to give it away with free trucking because of the surplus. Thank you, Michael. Chair, can we do a number check, please? Sure. What number are we on? 29. Thank you. My name is Allison Nelson. I live in District 4. I'm a biologist and the director of Gold Country Avian Studies. I run a bird monitoring program at the Bennett Street Grasslands within Empire Mine State Historic Park. The meadow where we banned birds is bisected by South Fork Wolf Creek, and our bird trapping locations are spread along the creek approximately 1.5 miles downstream from the Brunswick site. Wastewater treated at the mine will ultimately flow through our research station. I strongly advocate against certifying the final EIR and recommend project rejection for a number of reasons. One, the final EIR did not adequately propose alternatives to discharging wastewater into South Fork Wharf Creek. Continually fluctuating water levels and temperature can adversely affect bird life and the invertebrates they feed upon. Two, on page 4-106, uh, it states that the county will not require the flow data to be publicly available, but the data may be made publicly available at the applicant's or NID's discretion. This should not be up to the discretion of Rise Gold. When the right to clean water has the potential to be compromised, we should be able to educate ourselves for our own benefit and for that of the land and the wildlife that require our stewardship. Three, the EIR, including Table 4.4-6, was revised to indicate that protected, um, protected status bird species have a low potential for occurrence on the Brunswick sites. This is incorrect. The FEIR also states the willow flycatcher has, um, has not been mapped within the CNDDB within five miles of the Brunswick area, but unprocessed data regarding their potential occurrence downstream of the Brunswick area is included in the Grass Valley Quad CNDDBB search. Um, to clarify, several listed species, special status species were detected or captured by our program 1.5 miles from the Brunswick site. The CNDDB um, has this detection data but simply hasn't processed it yet. The FEIR states that uh, these species have a low probability of occurrence on the site and that no potential impact is expected because of the lower quality of the habitat. 
However, no quantitative habitat studies have been performed or required. Um, I have here myself a map that I made of, a, um, of the Brunswick site and have starred habitat at the site where willow flycatchers could potentially breed for it to take cover. I also have photos of a willow flycatcher I took in breeding condition captured at our monitoring site. This endangered willow flycatcher could have bred at the Brunswick site and easily dispersed to our location. Uh, therefore, the indication that, the, that there's a low prob probability of encountering willow flycatchers at the Brunswick site is false. Thank you, Allison. Hello, and thank you, commissioners, for uh, hello, and thank you, commissioners, for giving me the opportunity to speak. My name is Christopher Ring. I live in District Two. I'm a local realtor, and I'm here on behalf of the Nevada County Association of Realtors. I have a letter to read on our behalf. I also want to show this is our shirt showing the support for the letter we're about to read, and there's a significant number of other realtors representing us outside on the steps. You'll see our photo in the paper tomorrow morning. To the Honorable Planning Commissioners, on behalf of the Nevada County Association of Realtors, we respectfully submit our comments relating to the final economic impact report for the Idaho Maryland Mine Project. Upon reviewing the final report, we see multiple deficiencies and unmitigated impacts on the surrounding residential properties, overall community, and market values of properties in Nevada County. While we recognize deficiencies in the environmental impact report, as experts in our field, we wish to specifically address the results of the economic impact report. A survey was previously completed by the Rise Gold Consultant RDN and included in the economic impact report. It had a total of 65 completed surveys, of which 79% believed that property values would be negatively impacted. However, the findings of this economic impact report dismisses the real estate industry survey completed, stating results were not robust enough to be considered. The Nevada County Association of Realtors resent that same survey with all the questions to our association memberships and are now presenting the results of that survey. 162 of our active membership participated and completed the survey, representing a 27% sample size of the total, total group. The results are overwhelming. 87% of the survey participants believe the property values will be negatively impacted. And now I quote from the EIR itself, Economic Impact Report itself. Of the three types of research RDN performed for this analysis, a literature review, a real estate industry survey, and a case study analysis, the case study was selected only and totally dismisses the survey of the real estate experts. This quote clearly states that a case study analysis was selected for the findings of this report and dismisses the findings of the real estate survey completely. We believe as realtors that our expert opinion matters and should not be dismissed. Rise Gold's consultant summarizes their economic impact report findings stating, we do not estimate any anticipated average change in property values associated with the proposed project. As experts in our... Thank you, sir. 
No, we're not doing that. And commissioners and audience, um, my name is Kurt Lorenz. Um, I'm a 47-year resident of the San Juan Ridge. And um, at one point, I was a Nevada County Planning Commissioner and um, the chair of the commission for two years. And Laura, you deserve some kind of public service honor for serving as long as you have. Um, a little bit of history, uh, just for comparison. In 1996, a conditional use permit was granted by the supervisors for Emperor Gold to dewater the mine for exploration. It was not a permit for production. Or, although ore sampling was allowed. The 1996 permit followed the normal steps and included the preparatory work to ensure property owners would be able to get potable water immediately if a well problem was detected. Emperor Gold was required to obtain all permits, identify all rights of way, easements, and agreements to guarantee installation of water service from NID to any and all residents of the study area. Um, in addition to the area along East Bennett Road, the study area included a large portion of Cedar Ridge north of Colfax, wells as far west as Union Hill, as far east as Bellevue Road, substantial areas of Greenhorn Road, neighborhoods beyond Anchor Lane and the north end of Glen Pine Road. Emperor Gold was required to provide cash bonds or securities to pay all construction costs, including replacement water service. Um, somehow, all of this protection got missed in this process. And very quickly, I want you to know that um, when the Siscon mine failed on San Juan Ridge, it was the F6 fault, the, a fault. Remember the fault that was mentioned here today that's just going to be erased? That fault flooded the mine so fast that people had to run for their lives, abandon all their equipment, and we lost 14 wells on the ridge in two weeks. Some of them were almost two miles from the well. Those of you that are worried about wells need to think about that. Uh, I request that you not approve this project or the environmental. Thank you, Kurt. Hello, my name is Larry Engel. I live on uh, an area uphill from the Wolf Creek. Uh, on the surface around the mine, the underground mine that they never talk about in, in much in the uh, EIR and you didn't hear about from the uh, the RISE folks today. Uh, I am objecting uh, to this uh, EIR uh, and asking that it not be certified 
as a retired bankruptcy lawyer with lots of experience in failed mines, uh, I know why there are 49,000 failed mines abandoned in California, uh, because I liquidated the largest uh, at the time in America, Surety, that provided reclamation bonds for uh, mines. Uh, and I can tell you that uh, this EIRR, EIR misses the point. So does the DIR. Uh, and I would uh, ask for you to, for your consideration that uh, I filed two objections to the uh, DEIR, and I filed two more to the EIR. And I gave you my top 50 reasons why this should not happen. Uh, but let me give you just one to start with, because I raised it at our prior hearing. Uh, and that was that they are basically hiding the hexavalent chromium problem, CR6. This is what killed Hinckley, California. You may remember the movie uh, Aaron Brockovich. Uh, they're putting, they call it now, they rebranded it, they call it now uh, cement mine paste. It, it, but it contains hexavalent chromium. You're putting into, the, they would put into the mine, uh, this uh, toxin. You, you look at the EPA studies, look at the Cal EPA studies, they all show you it's a dangerous carcinogen, and they, you know, don't address it in the place in the DER or in the EIR that says hazardous, hazards and hazardous materials. There's a section, 4.7, where all this information is supposed to go. It's not there. What they do, the DIR mentions it in two places regarding the mine paste use in shoring up the mine, but that's it. In the EIR, after my objection, they added some new information, which we dispute. And in addition, uh, they tacked on to the back of the EIR, Appendix Q, O, and R, where they admit the use of hexavalent chromium. And they describe this system, but they do it in a really obscure way in an obscure place. They also took on my objection in their uh, EIR uh, at IND254, uh, which is uh, my one of my two uh, EIR objections, and I urge you to read it. Uh, find out why. Thank you, Larry. Uh, Paul Schwartz, 13812 Meadow Drive, uh, District 1. Uh, I am in agreement with the Nevada County Planning staff and ask you to adopt Recommendation A and reject the Idaho Maryland Mine Reopening Proposal. The proposal, as our Planning Director has said, is not consistent with the County General Plan, State, and Nevada County Policy, and the 2023 Board of Supervisors Objectives. I disagree with the recommendation to certify the final EIR. Third-party experts have submitted to the Planning Commission and the Planning Department and the Board of Supervisors extensive analysis, detailed references to the errors, omissions, and the faulty analysis conclusions in the document. As a capital planner at University of California, Davis, I reviewed draft environmental impact reports connected to over $1.5 billion in projects. So I wanted to give you my impressions of this EIR. Preparation and presentation of the material, analysis, and the findings are poorly organized, and the document is difficult to navigate. 
In many cases, the data was old, incomplete, inadequate, and not benchmarked against industry or other measurable standards. Consultants involved spoke to budget constraints and that confined their efforts. Some reports start with a vague disclaimer that the depth of the study was limited by defined scope and limited resources. The draft EIR fails to integrate the implications of an 80-year approval. Important outcomes incumbent, the Idaho Maryland Mine Project with regard to airborne pollution, dust, water quality, noise, traffic, energy use, greenhouse gas emissions, carbon footprint analysis, community health, worker safety, were not adequately addressed in the draft EIR. In the future, we can expect energy efficiency, carbon footprints, and community health impacts to be more thoroughly scrutinized. Consider how the draft EIR completely ignores our current energy action plan. There have been substantial third-party expert scrutiny on the draft EIR chapters, data analysis, and conclusions that contradict and challenge the findings in the document. The experts found faulty science, misguided assumptions, and juvenile monitor computer modeling. We learned in the Niehaus economic report, there are no comparable projects approved in the state of California within 0.5 miles of the residential neighborhood, as is the case here. The concept of incompatible uses and the draft EAR disregard of this issue alone ought to get your full attention. Do not certify a badly flawed final EIR that the future planning departments, planning commissions, and boards of supervisors will have to defend. Reject the final EIR. Do not certify it. And if, if RISE wants to negotiate the scope of the... Thanks, Paul. Good afternoon, Mark Johnson, District 4. <clears throat> Before you, I stand experienced, experienced hazmat supervisor competent person. I worked hard. I directed at the removal of thousands and tons of asbestos and asbestos-containing materials after Reagan signed the Air Act in 86. The FEIR stipulates rise will submit an abatement plan after approval. A mitigation plan must be approved before any approval is granted, and I would be honored to be on the committee that approves or denies this stipulation. Will all employees be required to wear full Tyvek suits and type A, B, and C respirators? Will each employee be required to shower each time he comes up from below ground? The absolute necessity of asbestos is containment. To think you can truck it down the road uh, with a tarp on it, you're breaking the law. Uh, all the things in the EIR, uh, FEIR, you're going to have to vacuum those streets to get the asbestos off the street. It just, it just doesn't wash away. The stipulations, all the stuff that is uh, taken out of, all the asbestos that comes out of uh, the mine will have to be shipped down to Kesterson. You can't throw it back in the, in the, in the mine. It's all, it's all contaminated. Removal, disturbance of uh, transportation of asbestos on a large scale is uh, completely unacceptable in areas surrounded by hundreds of homes valued in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Compaction and storage of asbestos-laden uh, serpentine is sheer lunacy. The task is an impossibility to perform without releasing fibers that induce pulmonary diseases upon an unknown amount of land every day, every time the wind blows. 
If even one person, a citizen, a tourist, or even a worker of the mine contracts a fatal lung disorder after a 20 or 30 year uh, latency period, such as asbestosis, mesothelioma, scoliosis, et cetera, et cetera, due to your approval of Mr. Mossman's gamble with our lives, our wells, our property values, could you personally be held responsible for that death if you were to prove this health-destroying, killing, ecological disaster? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you, in a very direct sense, have blood on your hands? Would you be able to... Uh, Face the fact that your decision cost somebody their life, maybe two, five, 20, 30, 100 lives. Did you look in the mirror? I couldn't. Mr. Mossman's proposed venture would be to have to be monitored around the clock 24-7 each and every day by a trained hazmat supervisor with complete control and the ability to shut down any or all operations at any time for any violation that dangers any person anywhere. Mr. Mossman must not be allowed to self-monitor any single aspect of this greed-fueled venture, including the water. Mr. Mossman has proven total disdain for regulations at his last failed mining disaster has caused irreparable damage to not only salmonoid-bearing streams and lakes in his native land, but Mr. Mossman's crimes also encompass Englishman's slough and the Pacific Ocean. Mark, we're, we need to keep it on this project, not the... The applicant. It's a good thing that Banks Island does not exhibit any bestest laden. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Are we on 35? 36? My name is David Watkinson. I represent the Sierras for Responsible Resource Development. We're a nonprofit uh, that was formed in 2015 exclusively for educating residents, businesses, and government agents in the community about the benefits of responsible and sustainable resource industries in the Sierra Nevada mountains, including mining. Uh, many of our members are mining engineers, uh, geologists, uh, uh, environmental professionals that work in the mining industry. Some of them are here today and others are at work and couldn't attend the meeting. Uh, I'm a professional mining engineer by background with over 40 years of worldwide experience in exploration, mine development, construction and operation in Canada, the United States and overseas. I've worked in Nevada County since 2006 and I'm president and CEO of two public exploration companies one of which was M-Gold Mining Corporation that was uh, taking the project through the permitting process <coughs> in 2008 and 2009 and before the city of Grass Valley. Uh, and we got to the planning commission there. And, uh, uh, um, you know, I've worked in underground mines exactly like the Idaho-Maryland project, 5,000 feet deep. I worked as a miner, a supervisor, a general foreman, a mine superintendent, and a mine manager. So the mines do hire and try to develop local workforces. I will guarantee that that will happen here with a mining project. People want to hire locally. They don't want to have to pay to relocate people to a, a site when they can develop a local workforce that's going to be there for the long term. Um, we were advancing uh, the Idaho-Maryland project uh, through the city of Grass Valley in 2008-2009 when the uh, Great Recession hit, and uh, we couldn't raise additional money to advance the project. So the city uh, eventually deemed the project uh, applications as withdrawn, but the company still survives and we still live and work here in Grass Valley. Uh, we need to learn the uh, lessons of the Great Recession, COVID-19, 
and things that can happen looking forward, like uh, we're going to run into a significant period of in high inflation and potentially another re recession occurring. So your job and the Board of Supervisors job is to look at the future. I looked at the county's 21-2022 adopted budget and compared it with 2008 and 2009 when we were permitting the Idaho Maryland project. In 2008-2009, the city's budget was 190 million, or the county's budget was 190.9 million, and uh, now it's 299.9 million. It's gone up $109 million in 13 years, a 72.9% increase. So that represents an increase of about $8.3 million a year over that period. So your job is to not only look at how this project will affect a certain number of special interest groups, but look at how. Thank you. Thank you. My name is uh, P. Perez. I live in District 3 here in Nevada County. Uh, I've lived here for over 22 years. Married a fourth generation local girl. Um, both of my kids were born here at Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital. Uh, my wife's great grandpa George was on the last crew to enter the Empire Mine. I support reopening <clears throat> the Idaho Maryland Mine because of the good paying jobs that Nevada County needs. I hope to be able to work there one day. I also hope it would be an option for both of my kids once they graduate Nevada Union, if they wanted to decide to stay in Nevada County and have a good paying career. I also believe that this state-of-the-art mine would be a way of little old Nevada County giving a world-class example on how to mine cleanly, ethically, and responsibly. Bolt's the best conductor of electricity, and with the world's push <clears throat> for electric products like cell phones, laptops, TVs, electric cars, um, there needs to be competition from our country against other countries who are mining raw materials and don't do it cleanly, ethically, or responsibly. Mining is not only our past, but the future. So I ask you to please approve this project. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Hello, my name is Mike Griffith. I am a lifelong Nevada County resident of 43 years. I've come here to request the Planning Commission to recommend approval of this mine project as proposed. I believe that reopening this mine would be beneficial to Nevada County and its residents. It is important to remember why we are all here today. We are here because of gold. These towns, this county, and this community were formed around the gold mining industry. People came here from all over the world. Why here? Because there was an invaluable resource here. These people brought with them diversity and culture, which formed this community and its history. This history has left such a strong impact on the community that in Grass Valley, 
new buildings must be designed to fit the gold mining aesthetic of the town's history. It has been said that if it's not grown, it's mined. This is a statement which applies to every individual in this room and everywhere else in this world. The products we use every day must be produced from raw materials. These raw materials are called resources and not all resources are found everywhere. We are fortunate to have a highly sought after and valuable resource right here in our community. To ignore this fact and turn a blind eye to those who would be willing to spend the time and effort to extract such valuable resource would be similar to walking along the shore of the Uber River with a rope during a storm and refusing to help save a drowning individual just because you don't want to get your rope wet. It would be completely asinine. There are those who will argue against this project on the grounds of environmental impact. It is true that in the 1800s and early 1900s, operations of this nature have had an adverse environmental impact. This was due to a lack of knowledge as well as oversight and inferior methods of extraction. Today though, we have the knowledge, the oversight, and superior methods of extraction, which can guarantee that the environment and the community's way of life can be protected from any adverse impacts, which may be a concern arising from this project. I believe that this project as proposed will offer many great benefits to this county and community, such as local jobs and tax revenue. It will increase tourism by showing the world that the gold country mother load is still alive and well in Northern California by producing vast sums of a resource which today's technological world desperately needs. It will bolster the community's reputation as hardworking, thoughtful individuals by producing that beautiful shiny gold medal. Again, I implore this committee to recommend approval of this project as proposed. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Justin Sanders, uh, 30 years here in Nevada County. I'd like to say thank you guys uh, for taking the time to listen to everybody, some louder than others, but thank you either way. Um, I am in support of the mine, and uh, I'm asking you guys take uh, everybody's word, but go with the side that makes uh, the most sense is open the mine. I had this great big long speech of, of, of why, but I'm, all this is going to go out the window to a conversation I had with a, a young lady in, in the front. She asked me, why would you support a mine that's only for themselves? And I asked, I said, well, what is it, what is it that you do? And her response was she's a local jeweler and she's having a hard time surviving with COVID and, and the economy. And I said, well, with the opening of this mine and, and the people who are gonna be working there, keeping the money local, rather than going to Target or these big chain stores, we're gonna then spend the money uh, with you because it, it's a good salary for Nevada County. And, and rather than, than paying, <clears throat> excuse me, the, go the, the, the cheap route of, of buying the best deal, we're gonna go with the, the more local, more, more sought after gems that she's she's selling and, and she was she was pretty um, thrilled about that so I'm saying open the mine let's get to mining and hopefully you, you take that to the, the supervisors thank you thank you Justin
Thank you, County Planning Commission and County Planning Department staff for the opportunity to provide comments today. Gianna Satude, I'm the policy director at the South Yuba River Citizens League, or known as CIRCLE. Um, CIRCLE is a community-based nonprofit organization founded by grassroots activists and has been the leading advocate for the protection of water quality, river health, and watershed restoration within the Yuba River watershed for almost 40 years. Our work and mission is supported by 3,500 members and 1,300 active volunteers. Keeping our grassroots legacy alive, this year at our Wild and Scenic Film Festival, we brought a petition with a simple ask that the Nevada County Board of Supervisors reject the proposed Idaho-Maryland mine. An astounding 1,167 individuals from the community and beyond signed our letter. That's included in your board packet in the background materials, along with individual messages from community members, many of whom are in the um, room today. So I'd like to thank them for being here. First and foremost, we'd like to thank county staff for giving this project the time and attention it deserves and for providing a thoughtful staff report that reflects many of the sent sentiments you've heard from the community today and will continue to hear. Um, today, you've heard why the Planning Commission should recommend the, rec the rejection of the project as outlined in Recommendation A about the project's direct conflict with local goals, initiatives, and policies more broadly. Um, recommendation A essentially deems the project dead and rightfully calls attention to the project's inconsistency with several of the county's general plan themes and policies, as you've heard earlier. However, both recommendations before you still include the certification of the final EIR, which we find deeply concerning. Recommendation A is a step in the right direction, and we want to thank county staff for that, but we are here to urge the Planning Commission to go a step further and reject the EIR. Circle is not anti-development or anti-jobs. However, we listen to the community, and when a project seeks to threaten the community and local watersheds, we work so hard to protect and restore. It's our duty to speak up, and that's our job to do so. So as you consider the recommendations before you, we must underscore that in addition to our rejecting the project, um, you must recommend to the Board of Supervisors that they reject the final EIR. And my colleagues um, following me will go into more in detail. Thank you again for, for allowing us to speak today. Thank you, Gianna. Good afternoon. My name is Alicia Wiseman. I'm the Headwater Science Program Director at the South Yuba River Citizens League. Uh, I have a background in water quality and aquatic ecology. I hold a master's in hydrology from the University of Nevada, Reno, and I worked at a local water quality lab, Cranmer Engineering. The Rise Gold Project and the EIR, as presented, pose significant water quality risks and will put significant pressure on our already fragile groundwater resources. Legacy mining impacts still persist in our area and continue to cause health advisories throughout Sierra Nevada. Many parts of the Yuba and Bear River watersheds are currently listed as impaired due to mercury contamination under the Clean Water Act. 
During existing rain events, these areas contribute to elevated levels of metals and sediments in our local streams and rivers. This project will increase sedimentation and erosion and has the potential to disturb contaminated land, which would further contribute to this issue. Also, the storage of mine waste that we heard about earlier, a 100-foot pile, will certainly leach hazardous chemicals into our local waterways. Rise Gold plans to pump out 3.6 million gallons of water every day for six months and another 1.2 million for up to 80 years which will be released every day into the South Fork of the Wolf Creek. The potential water quality and environmental impacts associated with daily release of this water that doesn't really happen seasonally like it naturally would have not been fully evaluated by the limited surveys conducted. Um, also, the associated groundwater impacts with this pumping plan are concerning. Here in the Sierra Nevada, we have seen early impacts of global warming including prolonged periods of drought. These periods are expected to increase and the droughts alone are stressing our groundwater resources. If NID and its plan for water identifies water security as a top concern for our region, then how can we simultaneously allow a Canadian company to pump 1.2 million gallon, uh, gallons a day for 80 years? Further, the EIR sets the significance level for their impacts to groundwater levels at 10%, without acknowledging that local groundwater levels will go dry even at reductions of less than 10%. It's been set arbitrarily, as others have commented on. I'll leave it there. There's been a lot of good information given thus far. I just want to reiterate um, that for these reasons, the FEIR and the Rise Gold Project should be rejected. Thank you. Thank you, Alicia. Hello, my name is Aaron Zettler-Mann. I'm the Interim Executive Director and Watershed Science Director at CIRCLE. I hold a PhD in Fluvial Geomorphology. As part of the proposed Idaho-Maryland mine project, Rise Gold suggests that their potentially toxic mine sand tailings and barren rock will be sold as engineered fill in the Sacramento region at the rate of excavation, about 1,000 or maybe it's 1,500 tons per day. This market does not exist, as they suggest, and therefore this material will need to be stored, likely on site. As the Water Resources Control Board points out, inadequate sampling means this material could leach toxins at unknown quantities into surface and groundwater. The source they rely on for aggregate demand over the next 50 years focuses on currently permitted aggregate. I know from Circle's restoration work in the Lower Yuba that holding permits for aggregate mining is time-consuming and expensive. A reclamation plan must be created and approved, bonds must be obtained to guarantee post-mine restoration, and there's state mines and geology board oversight. This means that an aggregate mine will not permit aggregate until it needs to. Just because it's not permitted today doesn't mean a ready supply doesn't exist. In fact, Tigard Aggregate has mineral rights to most of the 685 million cubic yards of gravel in the lower Yuba gold fields. Their 100-year business plan is aggregate mining of the gold fields to supply the Sacramento region with engineered fill. The Yuba gold fields material is closer to Sacramento, already on the surface, easier to extract, requires significantly less trucking, is not contaminated at unknown toxins levels, 
And its removal has significantly positive ecosystem benefits for salmonids and other species. The assumption that it is economically feasible to truck 1,500 tons of mine tailings every day to Sacramento to be sold is not supported. There are cheaper and better sources available. The final EIR did not accurately account for the reality that potentially toxic mine sand tailings and barren rock will likely be stored on site in excess of the fill pads. Nor did it address how this on-site storage could contribute to the leaching of toxins and surface and groundwater as requested by the Water Resources Control Board in the draft EIR. The final EIR fails to accurately assess the known and likely impacts to the environment by hiding behind inadequate sampling and false assumptions. Because the final EIR fails to accurately assess the true impact of the project on the environment, you must reject the EIR. For the health of the community and the environment, it is crucial you recommend the rejection of the EIR and the project to the Board of Supervisors. Let's continue to focus on repairing the damage of the last gold rush and restoring the health of our forests rather than starting. Thanks, Aaron. What number are you? 41, thanks. I'm Gail Johnson Vaughn, uh, District 3. I've been a 40-year resident of Nevada County. I hold a doctoral degree in organizational psychology with a special interest in behavioral science. Thank you for your time, your thoroughness, and your attention today. Amazing. <laughs> the, all that you're putting into this critically important process. You have been given the trust of your supervisor, who has been given our trust to put aside special interests and self-interests so that you can make a decision that is in the best interest, not just of those of us who live here today, but our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and their children. Your decision bears even more weight given the countless decisions that have been previously made by others from all part of the globe that have put our planet and all inhabitants at risk. No matter what alternative is chosen, the negative environmental impacts remain. Your first job is to decide if the environmental impact report provides all the information you need to predict the environmental and health impacts of the proposed mind on us and, yes, our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and their children. The consultants paid by the applicant says it does. A myriad of impressive and qualified experts in relevant fields say it does not. These experts have no financial stake in this decision. Their passionate concern is driven by their love of this county and of this planet, and a deep concern for those of us who live here now and the future generations. How are you confident without a doubt that the environmental impact report provides the thorough and accurate information that you need? And are you confident that the other experts who have highly educated and brought their expertise to the table are wrong, all of them wrong? If not, it is your responsibility to reject this environmental impact report 
as inadequate. Thank you. Thank you, Gail. Thank you, commissioners, for your supernatural patience. Um, my name is Jeff Kane. I've lived in Nevada County most of my life now. I'm in, I'm in District 1. As a medical doctor, especially concerned with air quality, I ask you not to certify the mine's EIR. The draft EIR fails to estimate total airborne emissions of known, known toxins and carcinogens, including carbon monoxide, um, uh, reactive organic gases, and particularly diesel exhaust. This is a very troubling omission. According to the California Air Resources Board, 70% of our risk of getting cancer from what we inhale will come from diesel exhaust. The ERR also fails to mention the 2020 Dudek Corporation air quality study, which reported that the mine's diesel engines will idle 200,000 minutes every year. These emissions aren't simply ugly pollution. They're poisons, especially for our children and grandchildren who will breathe them their entire lives. On page 366, the draft EAR lists the already mitigated emissions, that is, the best case scenario. It estimates they'll total 105 pounds daily during the first year of operation and concludes that that amount is insignificant. But the EIR is inadequate in failing to calculate cumulative emissions or to consider repetitive human exposure over decades. If it had, if it had done the math, it would have found that during the mine's lifespan, it would emit at least 3,600 tons of known airborne poisons. The final EIR dismisses this inexcusable lapse by stating that there's no standard method for estimating the significance of these poisons in aggregate. That the EIR failed to recognize this virtual assault on our community is outrageous, but that's only one hole in this document. The county is only under no obligation to certify the EIR, even if the planning staff recommends it. It's incomplete and misleading, but there's another reason too, which a number of people have mentioned. If the county declines the use permit and accepts the EIR, another company can come in and take over without a new EIR being necessary. So please do what you can to protect our county. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Good afternoon. My name is Susan McKinney. I live in District 1. I am a 40-year resident. According to a Pacific Wild July 27, 2015 report and a CBC October 20, 2020 article, Ben Mossman, President, CEO, and Manager of Banks Island Limited and now CEO of Rise Gold, was ordered to cease operations at his yellow giant gold mine after only seven months of commercial Susan, production. Susan, we're, we're here to talk about the project, not about Ben. 
I Do hear you. This is part of my presentation. Okay. I continue. Thank, Thank you. you. Due to, quote unquote, unauthorized effluent discharges and several permit violations, Banks Island Northwest British Columbia mine had spilled slurry on land into surrounding creeks, lakes, and wetlands. The discharge then made its way to the ocean. Banks Island Gold well, we really Limited then conveniently went bankrupt, letting taxpayers foot the to, bill Susan. for one. Susan, we can't do that. We, we need to keep it on this EIR, this project. If, if you will, if you'll keep your comments to, I'll, I'll give you your time over. If you'll keep your comments to this, if this EIR. I'd, I'd love to hear the other things. I don't know if you need to pick off where you left, if you'd start with the EIR. minutes. I'm starting you over. Thank you. Yep. Okay, so I'm ready to go now. All right. Um, <laughs> Banks Island Gold Limited then conveniently went bankrupt, letting taxpayers foot the bill for the $1.6 million cleanup. Ben Mossman is still currently on trial in Canada on charges related to the spills at the we're, mine. We're, we're duplicating what we're... There is no such thing as a clean, safe gold mine as demonstrated by another Canadian-owned mine in Nevada County, Siskon Gold Mine. On Labor Day weekend, 1995, okay. Susan, their miners hit an un... Thank you. We, we, I'm not censoring. I'm asking you to address... This is not the supervisor's meeting where you where you can talk about other things. This is for specifically for the EIR today and in the project. You're continuing to you're you're, you're continuing to address a resume of somebody else. Thank you. If you would allow me to finish, may I please? If if, if the rest of what you're saying is slandering and and this and, is and not covering, slander, these are facts. Resume of someone else. That's Thank not you very the, much. That is not that is not what we're doing here today. It, it, it's the okay. We're done. Thank you. We we tried. We tried. Will we have the next person, please? We won't have any outbursts either. Okay. Thank you. We can get through two more minutes. We tried. You continued with the with. All I was doing was I, listing what has happened in the past. I think it's really important that everyone here to base their decisions on. That's not what we're basing our decisions on. 
The environmental impact, I am just, I'm telling people exactly what happened, what the environmental impact that's not was what we're talking about of here a today. prior mine. If that's what your presentation is, that is more appropriately done with the supervisors, not at this time. Thank you. We'll take the next uh, speaker, please. Wow. Thank you. A hard act to follow. <laughs> I'm Rondell Snodgrass. I live in Supervised District 1. Uh, I've spent, I'm in my 85th year, I've spent 40 years working on conservation for national organizations and land trusts in Northern California. I've studied the CEQA process. I've been involved in projects that threaten the community's culture and their values and watched what's happened. Thank God for CEQA. I really appreciate it. So I'm asking you to not certify the EIR, and I'm asking you to deny the permit. CEQA calls for cumulative impacts analysis. Activities proposed build on one another and must be examined as to the total impact. CEQA requires the presentation of alternatives to the permit requested by Rias Grass Valley. Today, the transparency of the planning department was disturbing to me when they mentioned there were five alternatives that weren't to be revealed today. And that question was raised. There's, there's alternatives that can be proposed under CEQA that would actually deny this project. That's an alternative, and I ask for that. So the evidence is available that shows other subsurface mining in Nevada County has failed and resulted in large environmental damage. This history can be a part of the cumulative impacts analysis required by CEQA. A glaring example is the fact that there's a stream that flows in Grass Valley that is off limits. And here I have photographed a sign that's in Memorial Park. Here it is. I added Memorial Park, Grass Valley, but here's the sign. Warning, stream water may be hazardous. This is a creek that runs through Memorial Park, right next to the children's playground. It's fenced off by cyclone fences on both sides. No one's allowed. Do not wait, do not drink, do not eat fish from this stream. Do not handle sediment. This stream drains through the Empire Mine, California's largest gold mining operation for over 100 years. The water and sediment contain residual metals and chemicals that may be hazardous. Thank you, Ronald. Thank you. 
You can. There's a box right outside. Next to it, maybe? Not, a, not after uh, Lori's stuff all goes in there. Good afternoon. My name is Beverly Blake. I've been a local realtor here for over 20 years. I wanted to share with you the personal impact that the Idaho Maryland mine has already had on my husband and myself. I'm 76. My husband, a retired professional firefighter, is almost 80. We purchased a home in District 3 off Greenhorn Road with one goal in mind. We plan to live in it for a number of years, improve the property with our own labor, and use the profit to fund our retirement. We have invested hundreds of hours of labor ourselves, invested thousands of dollars making the property attractive and fire safe. My husband has become disabled and is no longer able to help me maintain our three acres. We wanted to put our home on the market last summer, but we soon discovered that with the mine issue hanging over us, no one would even look at it. I have two neighbors who had their properties for sale all summer. As soon as potential buyers heard about the mine, they were no longer interested. I know there are many other residents in our situation, and we have all been put in limbo by the mine. I personally have three clients who currently are waiting for your decision. If the mine is approved, they will no longer be looking to buy in Grass Valley or Nevada City. They have no interest in moving to a mining community. The county's economic report did not include local realtors' opinions, even though they surveyed us. The Nevada County Association of Realtors recently did their own survey. Over 90% of 150 realtors believe that local property values will drop and the drop will be permanent. I believe that the probability of diminished property values and therefore reduced property tax income would impact the county revenues far more than rise gold's inflated promises. Grass Valley and Nevada City are unique in the Sierra foothills. No other towns have the vast extent of culture, art, music, and natural beauty. If you certify the flawed environmental impact report, another mining group will step in and we'll have to go through all of this again. Our future and many others entirely depend on the decision about the mine. Please do the right thing. Just say no to the mine and do not certify the EIR. Thank you. Thanks, Beverly. And are you number 46? Hello, my name is Gary Griffith. Uh, I live at 110 Gold Hill Drive, Grass Valley in District 3, less than a mile from both proposed mining sites. And yes, I'm concerned about my property values, but I'm here as president of Wolf Creek Community Alliance. And uh, I've been 18 years monitoring the South Fork of Wolf Creek. Commissioners, at Wolf Creek Community Alliance, we speak for the watershed. We have a longer, more intimate knowledge of its hydrology and biological resources than the paid consultants who've made their limited walkthroughs and argued always for impacts being minimal 
or easily mitigated. Our view, unlike theirs, is that this watershed is a unique, irreplaceable resource for the county. Its areas of open space, free-flowing water, and unique habitats holding a great diversity of creatures, a resource that a densely populated area next to a city truly needs for its public health and well-being. To the EIR, we have read and commented on the NOP and the draft EIR, spending countless hours doing so. We've also closely considered the new appendices, the master responses, the individual responses to our comments, and those from other agencies or groups who have raised similar concerns. We find that the final EIR has changed little and still ignores, discounts, or inadequately addresses impacts to the biological resources in the watershed. It offers little new data and answers concerns, not by seriously considering them, as many people have pointed out, but by dismissing them, often by resorting to its own speculative conclusions and appeals to technical justifications that dismiss or lead away from actually considering the potential impacts being raised. We find all this very disturbing. We find this is the case with our own comments and the comments of many others. Our concerns about impacts remain largely unanswered. Therefore, we ask that this project's final EIR not be certified and that the project be denied. Um, following will be more detailed comments from some of our Wolf Creek community members. Thank you for your time and consideration. Thanks, Gary. And we're going to take a recess. Everybody can use the bathroom. And uh, what do you think? Uh, can we do 10 minutes? Is that adequate? We'll be back at uh, 4.05. Thank you. Test, test. All right, we're going to bring it back. And we'll hear from our next speaker. Please take your seats. All right, and we're picking up after Gary. And your number, sir? We'll get that mic on. Here we go. I'm ready. Feels like morning or evening, but... Um, uh, I'm Jonathan Keene. Uh, I live in Grass Valley District 3. Um, I've been a resident of Nevada County for 53 years. I'm a general contractor, and I'm also part of the Wolf Creek Community Alliance. And I've been monitoring almost monthly for the last 18 years, monitoring in our streams in our watershed. And I'm speaking for the creeks and the trout. And I wanted to, the ER, EIR you have before you, does not adequately address the impacts to South Fork Wolf Creek. Um, South Fork is one of many tributaries in Wolf Creek itself. It runs directly through the heart of the proposed Brunswick site. Um, it is a federally protected perennial stream, and the upper half of South Fork Wolf Creek, as it goes through the Brunswick site, was ignored in the EIR. One stretch of this part of South Fork is currently encased in a culvert, but the stream is nonetheless healthy and vibrant, upstream, downstream, and through the culvert itself. The term biological resource 
Um, it sounds kind of dry and scientific, <clears throat> but please remember what we're talking about here. Fish, the bugs that they eat, dragonfly larvae, damselflies, worms, beetles, an interconnected web of aquatic life. And so, yes, this culvert is an important biological resource. But please remember, it allows for the passage of trout and other aquatic species from the headwaters above Brunswick Road to the downstream reaches and back again. However, both the draft and the final EIRs disregarded this healthy stream, along with its fish and aquatic food web. Despite concerns raised by our alliance and others, both EIRs refused to discuss any impacts of the creek upstream of the spot where it leaves the culvert. Where do they suppose the water, the fish, and the bugs come from? Impacts, the biological resources that would occur during the replacement of the culvert should have been considered, but they were not. Alternatives, including the daylighting of the culvert, should have been considered, but they were not. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife also responded to this EIR. On page 2-202 of your FEIR, you'll find the comment, the EIR did not analyze all potential temporary, permanent, direct, indirect, and or cumulative impacts to aquatic features and associated biological resources that may occur. So commissioners, we agree with the CDF. Thank you, Jonathan. Good afternoon. Um, I am here to speak for the Brunswick Pond and the beautiful wood ducks who nest in this pond. My name is Wendy Thompson. I live in Nevada City in District 1, and I'm submitting these comments as a citizen who cares deeply for the Wolf Creek watershed and um, which is proposed project is situated. I'm also a volunteer water quality monitor, and I'm a member of Wolf Creek, Wolf Creek Community Alliance. We ask that this project's final EIR not be certified as it in inadequately considers impacts to biological resources, nor is it consistent with the county general plan and our community values. This draft EIR does not adequately address impacts to the Brunswick Pond, which I think you saw earlier in the pictures is quite large, it's over two acres. Instead, it dismisses and does not study or consider the biological resources or the diversity of the pond simply because it is man-made feature. State and federal law, however, requires that any body of water connected in any way to the overall hydrology of a watershed be protected for its biological resources and diversity. This pond historically was part of a larger wetlands area that exists today immediately downstream. South Fork Wolf Creek flows immediately next to this pond. Engineering studies in the EIR suggest uncertainty and possible connectivity between the ponds and the wetlands, thus the projected need to rebuild the pond berm. Study of how this pond is fed is lacking. Most importantly, the pond is rich with life, supporting a riparian zone with habitat for migrant birds, potentially including the special status black rail, pairs of beautiful wood ducks, and certainly a whole ecosystem of aquatic species. 
None of this is studied or considered by the EIR in spite of our previously expressed concerns. Please do not certify this flawed EIR, and I ask you please do not approve this project. Thank you very much. Thank you, Wendy. <clears throat> Hello. Thank you very much for your incredible listening skills today. <laughs> um, I admire your patience. My name is Josie Crawford. I'm a resident of Grass Valley. I live on Wolf Creek in District 2. I've been here since 2004. I'm a biologist. Am I speaking too close to this? You're good. OK. Um, I'm a biologist, a botanist, and I'm part of Wolf Creek Community Alliance. I've been as a volunteer and as staff. Um, and today I speak for the Pine Hill flannel bush, an endangered species. Um, this EIR does not adequately consider the impacts to the endangered Pine Hill flannel bush. The flannel bush species on the centennial site is unusual and rare. Um, and scientists are still studying it, trying to determine its exact identity. DNA most likely showing that it's going to be the Pine Hill flannel bush, the endangered one or perhaps a new species with only this location. Um, the EAR treats it as the endangered Pine Hill flannel bush, but in the interest of forwarding the most financially lucrative version of this project, it defends the creation of a mine waste zone that would require the removal of 18 of these mature shrubs. Um, and the EIR does not consider an alternative Seems like it could be simple to do that, where the boundary for the mine waste could be moved a short distance back from the population of these shrubs so as to protect all the individuals. Instead, it promotes a complicated, untested habitat management plan, which horticultural experts at CMPS see as dangerous and very unlikely to succeed. Um, CDFW, the uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife, concurs, saying that transplanting endangered species is generally experimental and largely unsuccessful. And I might say that with this species especially show, these are um, even the horticultural um, members of this genus, once developed for the trade, are so sense their root system is so sensitive if you have to cut off the pot before you put it in the ground you can't touch the roots imagine trying to to transplant a wild shrub it's going to be ridiculous and unsuccessful um, so uh, these mature shrubs would be dug up and plant transplanted in this plan independent evidence suggests that this would have um, an extremely high rate of failure, and it would end up in killing the plants. Collecting seeds and transplanting the seedlings is also unproven to work and will have a very low success rate. Thanks, Josie. Hello, and uh, I feel very privileged to be in this room with everybody. Thank you so much for all your time and listening to us. My name is Mary Ann Hart, and I live in District 2, which is 
downstream of Wolf Creek. Uh, I am a monitor for Wolf Creek Community Alliance, and I'm um, here today to speak for the stream community and with its and also its giant stoneflies, which are a very important part. Um, this EIR does not adequately address impacts due to dewatering. The uh, EIR attempts to assure us that dumping mine water into the South Fork Wolf Creek will uh, either not, it'll be too small to have an impact or fully mitigated by the water uh, treatment. Yet a number of agencies and groups still express their concerns, including California State Parks, California Department of Fish and Wildlife, South Yuba River Citizens League, and Sierra Streams Institute. They suggest that testing for turbidity impacts is too limited, that too little study was done downstream in the Bennett Street grasslands, that temperature regulation will be more difficult than suggested, and un uncertain as it will um, require reducing operations underground. We want to point out that the lack of study given to the benthic macroinvertebrates, BMI, those bottom-dwelling creatures essential to the aquatic food web species, such as the giant stonefly, an important food for trout, as any fisherman would know. Yet, no BMI studies, a standard protocol for assessing stream health, and essential for creating a monitoring baseline were conducted for this EIR. As Dr. David Earps, PhD of UC Santa Cruz, said in his comment, significant biological impact assessment needs to consider benthic microinvertebrates and the organic matter algae that are the foundation of the food chain in this section of the creek downstream of the project. The, uh, pr the post-project, the National Pollution Discharge Elimination System permit would require this BMI um, non-monitoring, but does, this does not satisfy the need to assess what the effects would be before the project is implemented. So I am also asking to, um, the and the, that the final EIR does not include this kind of essential assessment so please do not certify the EIR and do not approve this thing, this project. Thank you. Thank you, Marianne. <laughs> Hi, I'm Danny Robertson. I live in District 2 and I'm with Wolf Creek Community Alliance. I speak for the spotted owl, the foothill yellow-legged frog, and the finger rush. This draft EIR does not adequately consider impacts to birds, amphibians, or plants. Much of the biological surveying done in the EIR centers around the presence or absence of special status species. The EIR does a minimal job of this, initially doing so few surveys that additional ones had to be fit in and completed after the draft EIR. Yet. The problems with the surveys remain the same. Special status species are not always easy to find due to their rarity, their movement, their blooming season, or year-to-year -year changes. So biologists look for suitable habitat as a sign of possible presence. Unfortunately, the surveyors for this draft EIR frequently minimize the suitability of habitat, almost always in the report without substantiation or suitability of habit, habit um, excuse me, 
without substantiation or specific evidence. This bias against finding suitable habitat is pointed out repeatedly by commentators such as CNPS and other qualified experts. Further, CDFW protocols require that surveys should uh, space botanical field survey visits throughout the growing season to accurately determine what plants exist in the project area. This usually involves multiple visits to the project site, uh, for example, in early, mid, and late season, to capture the floristic diversity at, at a level necessary to determine if special status plants are present. Surveys were not done in this manner. The EIR, EIR uh, instead asserts that Single surveys were conducted somewhere, usually at the end, as it turns out, within a blooming or breeding season. CDFW is clear that this is not enough. Overall, whether it is in regard to the spotted owl, the monarch but butterfly, which no survey at all was undertaken, willow flycatcher, yellow-breasted bre chat, foothill yellow-legged frog, or the rare finger rush, EIR does its best not to find these species by minimizing the potential for their presence and not following survey protocols. And if these species are found, found during construction, they will simply be removed and their habitat destroyed. And if the species is disturbed by noise, loss of habitat, or other disruption, they will simply be forced to leave as the circumstances for their survival will no longer be present. Please do not certify this EIR and do not approve this project. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Hi, thank you for listening to all our comments. Uh, my name is Diana Suarez. I live over on Bear River. I'm a board member of Earth Justice Ministries and a representative of Friends of Bear River. I'm a 50-year resident of Placer and Nevada counties. This comment addresses current and potential water pollution from the Idaho-Maryland mine. The water code defines water pollution as, quote, acid mine drainage, the discharge or leaching of heavy metals, or the release of other hazardous substances, end quote. Currently, water draining from the mine into Wolf Creek, a tributary of Bear River, contains almost six times the regulatory limit of arsenic and exceeds the limit for iron, manganese, and zinc. The final EIR fails to specify how long-term monitoring of these substances will be accomplished. It also fails to identify how polluted mined water will be treated after the mine ceases operation. Although the final EIR recognizes the need for long-term monitoring, it does not specify how this long-term monitoring will be accomplished, nor does it identify mitigation measures capable of ensuring that unanticipated contaminants will not adversely affect water quality. Because it lacks a specific long-term monitoring plan and lacks any measures needed to mitigate contaminants, the final EIR fails to address what may be, based on historical evidence, significant and unavoidable impacts to the environment and to the Bear River. As the Central Valley Regional Water Quality Control Board notes, the draft EIR should be revised to address anticipated post-mining water quality issues and whether the mine will require long-term oversight 
to ensure that water quality conditions comply with applicable regulatory requirements. The mine project ignored this comment by the Water Board. Should this EIR be certified, the county will be left with the responsibility of managing the pollution of these remnant mine waters. This, along with its failure to address the monitoring of water quality after the mine closes, is a substantial reason to reject this flawed EIR. And I'd like to say that our water is more valuable than gold. Thank you. Thanks, Diana. Hello. My name is Daniel Elkin, and I'm the Communication and Engagement Director at the South Yuba River Citizens League. Prior to my role here at, Cir at Circle, I worked locally as a teacher uh, for 20 years. The proposed Idaho-Maryland mine and the EIR should both be rejected based on the identified significant and unavoidable impacts to our community and its clear conflict with the county's goals. Nevada County's stated recreation board objective is to, quote, promote sustainable recreation in partnership with community providers and other jurisdictions to enhance recreational access, support public health and safety, realize economic opportunities, and preserve natural resource assets. The Recreation Board's website goes on to state, quote, Nevada County recognizes the connection between the health of people and ecosystems, tourism and outdoor recreation, and community resilience. The county will work with our community to address challenges and opportunities for Nevada County's open space and organize recreation priorities, furthering solutions that promote community health, safety, economic development, environmental stewardship, and resilience, end of quote. The Recreation Board is currently working on developing a recreation and resilience master plan with the goal of identifying key goals and objectives to address challenges and opportunities for Nevada County's open space, trails, and other recreational interfaces. And prioritizing solutions that promote community health and safety, economic development, creative placemaking, landscape restoration, environmental sustainability, climate change adaptation, and resilience. A working mine does not fit into this master plan. A project like this will not increase the tourism appeal of the area and does not align with the goals of promoting health and safety, landscape restoration, or environmental sustainability in the region. In fact, as identified in the EIR, the mine will have a significant and unavoidable detrimental impact on the aesthetic values that makes this place attractive. The county should continue, continuing to invest resources in advancing efforts that support the recreation and resilience master plan, including addressing current priorities in the Sierra, like watershed stewardship and management and forest management. In addition, further support of the restoration economy, which is here and employing people today, is more in line with the county's goals and priorities. The significant and unavoidable impacts listed in the final EIR include impacts on aesthetics, traffic, and noise. Our county prides itself on its rural and scenic character and is actively working to capitalize on those values. I strongly encourage. Thank you, Daniel.
Hi, good afternoon. My name is Susie Kirsten, and I work at Remax Gold in Grass Valley in Nevada City. And um, Greg Ward asked me to come present this letter, which I've read a thousand times, and I can't get it done in three minutes, so I'm going to recap a little bit. But anyway, we have signatures from 250 businesses, thriving businesses within our community that are against um, moving forward with the mine. And at the, the bottom line is they're asking that you do not certify the EIR for several inconsistencies that are part of that. Um, I am a realtor, and if people think it won't affect your property, it absolutely will. We have people all the time that are, the first question is, how close is the property to the mine? You know, where, how far is that circle around the mine, and what will it do to my water table? It's one thing if you're in the city and you've got treated water, but it's entirely different if you're on a well. I live on Lost Lake Road, so I'm very familiar with the, everybody on that lake there is a super fun site. So um, for those of you that don't know, super fun sites are the federal government saying that your water is toxic on some front. You have to disclose it for the life of the property, but you doesn't mean you always maintain that water as super fund. It needs to be um, checked periodically. Like that M1 site, I know that the DTSC was out there, and I don't believe they tested it again. So although they're capping it on the top, those are open mine shafts where that water is shared between Idaho, Maryland, and the M1 site. So certainly a concern that we have. Um, but from a real estate perspective, I would say that people come to our community because it's beautiful, because it's gorgeous, and I don't see people staying or wanting that draw of people to come to our area when you've got an active toxic mine with an 80-year contract in that location where you've got dynamite, arsenic, all the things we've talked about today, I don't need to reiterate those, but it does have an impact and our customers express concerns. We have people from the Bay that are, you know, it won't be as popular as it is. You have to understand that people will move away. I personally am not gonna live in a town that has an open mine in the middle of town with all the things. And I do think other people will be um, hesitant to live here as well. And then I want to just talk a little bit about the jobs, and I'm going to read a specific paragraph in here from the letter that basically says that um, um, the Economic Policy Institute brief cited by Rice Gold themselves actually shows that other industries can produce for Susie, can you uh, can you submit that letter in the box out there? You, yeah, that'd be great if it hasn't been. Thanks. You got to get I am Jeff Ado Irwin, uh, District Four. It gives me great faith uh, that you, who have dedicated so much of your lives in service to this community to protect us, uh, have already discovered two lies that this company has told. One, regarding where educational tax revenues will go. And two, regarding how much waste 
will be created on a daily basis by Rise Gould and their endeavors. Uh, given the enormity of evidence presented here by the citizenry, I trust that you will vote no on the FEIR and on this project. Following is how the majority of Nevada County feels about this project. You might say your mining claim is what everybody needs. Beneath your lying promises is the heart of your greed. We won't let you slip it into the ground beneath our feet. Rape our land of treasures that our people solely need. Wills run dry and the people are thirsty. Wills run dry and the people awake. Wills run dry and the people are thirsty. Wills run dry and the people awake. Wells run dry and the people are thirsty. Wells run dry and the people awake. Wells run dry and the people are thirsty. Wells run dry and the people awake. Won't you please do us the decency of not pretending like you care while you fill our space with toxic waste and contaminate our air. Rivers have no memory of pausing in their veins. We will fight for every drop till you abandon all your claims. Wells run dry and the people are thirsty. Wells run dry and the people awake. Wells run dry and the people are thirsty. Wells run dry and the people awake. It's time to put the planet back to the place where it belongs. Sacred righteous architect of each and every song. Take dominion exploitation and greed without remorse. Bring harmony and dignity and honoring our songs. Wells run dry and the people are thirsty. Wells run dry and the people awake. Wells run dry and the people are thirsty. Wells run dry and the people awake. Wells run dry and the people are thirsty. Wells run dry and the people awake. Wells run dry and the people are thirsty. Wells run dry and the people awake. Wells run dry and the people are thirsty. Wells run dry and the people awake. Wells run dry and the people are thirsty. Wells run dry and the people awake. Thank you. Jeff, thank you for pre presenting on key. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Itera O'Connell. I live in Grass Valley and have been since uh, 2020, I guess it is. No, since before that. I've been here 20 years. So my math is not that good, but my um, speaking voice is better. You wanted entertainment, so here we are. Okay, so uh, this is in relationship to the Wolf Creek uh, Community Alliance, this DEIR ignores cumulative impacts as speculative when those impacts reasonably could be studied and considered. I guess the major thing that we're looking at right now is an 80-year project, which kind of blows my mind. 80 years is just beyond any uh, possibility of us imagining uh, during climate change how this will affect our community. We know that it will um, split up our community into a major industrial complex in an area that's zoned for light industry. So that's part of the uh, EIR that I object to. As the city of Grass Valley asserts, the applicant's request for an 80-year permit is extraordinary. The EIR justifies this 
saying it fits the economic model of the applicant. At the same time, it strongly objects to the need for any long-term consideration of the project's impact over that extended multi-generational period. Why 80 years? We need it for the money. Consider 80 years of impact, no thanks. What the EIR somehow assumes is the absence of change during 80 years of accumulative risk over time of the neg negligent operation or accident. Such details could have been easily analyzed through statistical modeling or reference to the compliance and accident records of similar mining operations. They are not. Most egregious, however, is the dismissal of climate change as an impact to be considered, the EIR dismisses these concerns as speculative. Whereas the state of California and numerous agencies have clearly acknowledged the existence of trends due to climate change, higher temperatures, increased drought, punctuated by extreme weather events, reduced water supply. Further, these entitled entities are modifying policy, programs, and goals to meet these challenges. The DEIR attempts to look scientific, I'm sorry, attempts to look scientific regarding all this by citing a single 2012 paper claiming that it shows wide uncertainty about the impacts of climate change concerning groundwater recharge. Yet the application, that the paper itself and its, its conclusions argues that the groundwater age in all the springs tested appears to be, <laughs> I'm looking at the zero. <laughs> Thanks, Atera. <laughs> Good afternoon. Thank you so much for holding the space for all these comments and for the opportunity to be a part of this important process. My name is Carrie Monahan. I'm the program director at the Sierra Fund. I'm also faculty at CSU Chico in the Environmental Sciences and Geology Department. My PhD is in hydrology with an emphasis on water quality, and I've studied the impact of mining to the Sierra for the past decade and a half. The Sierra Fund has submitted technical comments on the DEIR and the FEIR to the county. In short, we feel that the county did not address our comments on the DEIR. The responses to our comments were either to deflect the responsibility to another agency, specifically the Water Board, or provide a technically inaccurate response. So I wanted to bring a few of these to your immediate attention verbally, and I've also submitted these as comments to staff. The impacts to water quality are significant, long-lasting, and expensive, and the mine proponent has not done his due diligence to address these issues. We know that these water quality impacts are present because of the current EPA cleanup on the Centennial site. This site has the waste rock from the Idaho-Maryland mine workings on it in large piles. This material has been sitting out in the elements for some time, and water has been running off this material every time it rains. There are elevated levels of known contaminants from this pile of waste rock, including lead, arsenic, hexavalent chromium, iron, manganese, antimony, and copper. In addition, the water quality standards provided in the documents are only sufficient for discharging to land. This might be sufficient for a construction site, but not appropriate for mine water going into the creek that it can affect aquatic life. 
The county should demand a surface water monitoring plan from the mine proponent. It is not expensive to create a monitoring plan, and it is common practice for it to be included in an environmental analysis. The second overarching point is that the mine proponent did a woefully inadequate job of testing the deposit, which means that very little is known about the geochemistry of the rock. For example, 4 million tons of waste would be placed at two sites near the mine during the first 11 years of a mining, and it was characterized by four tailing samples and by six samples of the waste rock. This level of sampling and without any leach test does not meet the basic guidelines from the guard guide, which is the industry standard for reference testing. The geotechnical engineering work was not included as attachments to the EIR, which makes the descriptions of the waste rock tailings facilities described in the EIR purely conceptual, with no technical assessment of their viability. Lacking this information should evoke a significant level of concern. And finally, the biggest problem with this entire approach to permitting a mine is that there is inadequate financial assurances for the cost of reclamation, because it does not include the cost of ongoing water quality treatment. Mine reclamation could easily run into the millions of dollars, and if the mine proponent goes bankrupt, then there are supposed to be sufficient bonds to cover these costs. The county should demand that the mine proponent estimate the cost of ongoing water treatment and reject this proposal. Thank you. Thank you, Kara. And are these our last six, Jeff? We, we can do these six, and then we'll be done for the day. Thank you. I'm so glad. Thank you. My name is Marion Blair, and I live Marian, in District 3. Thank you. Hold on one second. Sure. You start her over. And Jeff, would you make sure Tyler knows so he's not lining anybody up outside, please? Thanks. Sorry, Marianne. No problem. My name is Marion Blair, and I represent Earth Justice Ministries. Record drought and wildfires and a winter of a dozen atmospheric rivers in California make it clear that we have a climate crisis impacting California, our beloved community of Grass Valley and Nevada City and beyond. Earth Justice Ministries' mission statement includes the following. We connect faith to actions that bring hope for the earth, the human family, and the community of life to further the cause of peace, justice, and healing of the earth. We feel it is Earth Justice Ministry's responsibility to protect our community and combat climate change, among other things. The proposed reopening of the IMM, the Idaho Maryland Mine, will not bring hope for the Earth, the human family, and the community of life. As a community, we need to be pushing for a just and equitable energy transition away from fossil fuels, which are the driving force behind the climate crisis. In fact, California Senate Bill 350 aims to establish clean energy, clean air, and greenhouse gas reductions, reducing its emissions significantly within the next decade. SB 350 also requires the state to double statewide energy efficiency savings, yet operations are projected to use as much electricity in one year as the entire town of Grass Valley uses in a year. Californians have been working hard to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by switching to cleaner energy sources, and since 1990, energy clean energy sources have increased by 22%. Still, over 40% of these emissions come from vehicles, a quarter of which are heavy trucks. The FEIR downplays the impacts of greenhouse gas emissions this project would create, along with many other environmental impacts that our attentive community questioned in the DEIR. 
The repeated use of master responses whitewashes the significance of these impacts under a legal cloak of empty and often conflicting statements. Specifically, the following FEIR master response, 25 states, the actions within the Energy Action Plan are voluntary and do not require the county or community to meet the reduction goals. Nevertheless, the project is found to be consistent with the EAP. This statement is followed by a chart of the assumptions regarding how the mine will voluntarily reduce its use of electricity. However, assumptions are not strategies. Additionally, this land is Heritage Nissanon land, which was never ceded to immigrants. There's been little attempt made in the FEIR to consider the cultural resources of these indigenous people whose ancestral lands and livelihoods were virtually destroyed by gold mining. A recent personal conversation oops, with Wanda Enos of the Kelly Enos Humwak, representing the local Nissanon community, confirms they were never consulted contrary to the to following statement in the FEIR, which states local tribes were notified and invited to consult on the proposed project. Um, this is another example of the whitewash to make it appear they are complying with CEQA. It is our responsibility and honor to provide the ethics of care and guardianship to this land, prioritizing profit over sustainability is an equity and, and rights concern for indigenous peoples and all local communities. We Marianne, thanks for the fresh testimony. This is, I'm Catherine Gerwig, and I'm here to talk about your FDIR. I'm totally against the mine. I've been um, in mine, my family's been invested in mining for a long time, so I've visited mines in, in all over uh, Utah and Nevada, and they are not friendly. This gentleman just reminded me how unpopular they are when they're brought up in other cities. Yes, they are very unpopular because they are very destructive, and here... I think that I can't repeat all the great homework all these people have done. They've made such good presentations about things that are reasons not to have this FDR accepted. And I fully agree with all of them. And I'd like to, I'm not going to repeat them, but listen to what they had to say. And I was under the understanding that they were cleaning up the centennial site because the arsenic there, the arsenic is still there and it will continue because these drugs have to be drugs. What are they drugs? Cyanide and arsenic are needed to separate the gold from the rock. So they're there, one, one way or another. Mercury is there, it's still there. How are they gonna take it out of the water? I don't know, but they're gonna pile it up on the centennial, excuse me, centennial site again. This is wrong, it's just really bad. 25 words or less. I still have one minute and 43 minutes, but seconds. I'm gonna let the next person say it, but please listen to it, pay attention to all this presentation. They did their homework. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. Hello, my name is Michael Lynn Logue. I live in Grass Valley, and I work for the Nevada County Arts Council. Uh, one thing that's been talked about a lot here is the vitriol and animosity, but I believe that we're all gathered unified in purpose. We care about this community, and we want to make sure that it grows and thrives into the future. It's been discussed how many jobs will be contributed, how much will be paid in taxes. I don't know if you guys know, but Grass Valley, Nevada City is a cultural district, one of 14 in California. 
one of four rural such designations. We just recently re-received designation and that will come with some funding. That funding will go towards hiring an individual dedicated to the development of our cultural district. I do believe that if we are turned into a one industry town, the culture will disperse and we will no longer have that valuable resource. You mentioned the uniqueness of our community. The true gold here, not to be extracted, but to be invested in, is the creative community that is in this room, that is in front of this building, that is in their homes. In 2018, when we received cultural district designation, Nevada County brought in $47 million in arts and arts ancillary spending. Five million of that was state and local taxes, 21 million was take home pay, created nearly 1,000 full-time jobs. I do believe that is more jobs than what has been promised today. I hope that you understand the value of the arts and culture when it comes to stewarding the future, not just for our town or California or the country, but the world, and we set an example here with what you decide and what you tell your supervisors today. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Hi, my name is George Olive. I live at 15356 Banner Lava Cap Road up on Banner Mountain. My family and I moved to Nevada County in 1980. I worked in various county school districts for 25 years and am currently the president of the governing board of the South Yuba River Citizens League, known as CIRCLE. You've heard from us uh, before. I address uh, the planning commissioners this evening. Um, I hope I'm going to offer a slightly different uh, uh, point of view than has been said before. CIRCLE asked the, commissioner, the commission to consider contrasting environmental impacts. What type of multi-year, multi-decade project is best for our county? Because Circle's vision for our local watershed is one of restoration and protection, because much of our work on the Lower Yuba is cleaning up the impacts of mining, the prospect of a reactivated hard rock mine is hard to swallow. In fact, it makes me gag. Circle is a 40-year-old, regionally influential and locally effective organization. We are all about planning, planning for the future health of our water, our forests, and our communities. We are here today to urge the planning commissioners to join us in our vision of a county that prioritizes health, that prioritizes improved water and air quality, that approves projects that are constructive, progressive, and future-oriented, dewatering, extracting, piling toxic tailings for multiple decades is regressive planning. Hard rock mining takes our county backwards. Products that are forward-looking make life better. Restoration improves lives for our citizens. Circles projects provide sustainable jobs for many contractors. Our grant programs bring in millions of dollars that are spent in our region on improving our rivers, our forests, habitats for wildlife, and recreation for our citizens. 
The FEIR on which you must pass judgment calls for mitigations, for controls, for protective measures in case of damage or disaster. A mining project and all the negatives that go with it can only move critical aspects of local life backwards. What might be improved that warrants a few jobs? Nevada County's planning buck stops with you. You five people. Circle respectfully recommends that your decision-making and recommendations of the Board of Supervisors on the, on the Idaho-Maryland mine turn us away from mitigation, extraction, and retrograde heavy industry and towards progress in improved quality of life, healthier air, and waterways. to start. Hello, thank you for being here. It's been a really long day. Y'all did great. Thank you for still giving me your attention. Uh, my name is Jonah. I work with Nevada County Sunrise. We work on mobilizing young people to address the climate emergency that we all find ourselves in. And I think that that is an important aspect that needs to be brought up. You would have seen more young people um, from the get-go, but just getting those tickets or a hard time getting students to leave school or me to leave work. That's a lot of work. Um, so it's not as accessible, but I want to let you know there are a lot of young people that care deeply about this. And it's more a broader conversation about the world that we want to live in and the world that we want passed on to us. And that we already feel that there has been a tremendous amount of environmental degradation um, and social injustices that also are carried with those um, that have you know, they're countless. Um, we can't count them all. We can try, but there's, there's just a lot. And it's really depressing and challenging to be a young person, um, not to mention all the other stuff we have to deal with. And I'm sure you all are already in the loop of social media and all the bombardment of um, media always hitting you. But the fact that we don't have a world that we can take for granted anymore is huge. And this project is another step in that same direction. And I hope you deeply feel and um, acknowledge that, that it really to us, you're passing, passing society and you're passing the earth over to us as we will if we have kids and the generations that come after us. Um, this county, it was built on the gold rush that has, you know, some wealth and it also has a lot of injustice and environmental degradation that went with it. And we're looking at that same choice again. I would love to see less miners. I would see more recognition of the indigenous folks that were out here um, and just more acknowledgement of what's really happening versus looking at the money, um, whitewashing it to the colonialism that happened here. And so, yeah, um, thank you for, for listening to me for hearing us. I am hoping that you're gonna hear more young people tomorrow. We're gonna to do our best to get some of us in here. Um, and we, as an organization, are actively working to talk to y'all more so you can hear student voices. Um, once again, thank you. Jonah, thank you for the fresh representation. Hi there, Sharon Golden, labor researcher, operating engineers, Local 3. 
I'm sure you guys know this, but Nevada County has a median income of $62,000 a year. Average annual base wages at the mine are expected to be nearly double that, $112,000. The lowest paid positions are expected to be $76,000 a year, which is $14,000 more than the average median income in the county, which is also 17% higher. 293 of these jobs are expected to be union operating engineer jobs. Our workers are skilled and trained. Not only having an expert equipment operator create a safer work site, our training also teaches workers to identify and report potential problems. These local union workers also wouldn't want their water contaminated. Due to the day and time of this meeting, a lot of people who want these careers were unable to attend. Instead, there's an overwhelming number of people who have had a successful careers and that were provided retirement that were able to be here. Nevada County working age folks deserve that same opportunity, a successful career and a chance for retirement. I'd also like to point out that gold is in everything, even this phone I'm talking on. We want to make sure gold is mined by skilled and trained professionals in the state with the tightest environmental and OSHA standards in the county to ensure that things are done safely. Rise Gold Corp has identified dozens of entry-level training positions to give locals an opportunity to learn the field and fill these available positions. When talking to us, this has been their main priority. We look forward to helping RISE get the working folks in this community high road careers with benefits and the opportunity for retirement like others that are here in this room. Please approve the EIR and staff recommendation B. Give locals a chance for a good paying career and a chance for retirement. Thank you. Sharon, thank you for another great representation of something that hasn't been represented today. Yes, thank you. All right, look at that, five o'clock. Yes, we do. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming. We will be reconvening here tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., and uh, we will take uh, we will be taking public comment, continuing public comment at that time. And, Chair, if I may, we will start at number 66 tomorrow. 66. Uh, yes, do I have a motion to adjourn if we need that? Second? All right. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Motion carries.